You're listening to The David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized humps. Tonight at 9 Eastern, it's Office Hours, where guests of The David Feldman Show meet the listeners, and the listeners meet the guests. If you would like to attend Office Hours tonight at 9 Eastern, that's Friday night, May 29th, 9 Eastern, then go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the Office Hours menu, sign up, and you'll receive an invitation, and you can join via Zoom or phone. No passwords. No passwords. I look forward to seeing you there. Bring your pets. Maybe we'll make a love connection, and we'll talk about whatever is on your mind tonight at Office Hours, 9 Eastern. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. It's 3 a.m. on Friday, May 29th, 2020. Welcome to the broadcast. I'm David Feldman, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. We're broadcasting live to tape here in Manhattan with a virtual studio audience and uh, so far, uh, they're they're watching and listening. They're attending this show via Zoom and by telephone. And they will be joining the conversation by asking our guests questions. And I hope they speak up when I open the floor to hear what's on their mind, which I'm about to do momentarily. If you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience, please go to davidfeldmanshow.com. And hit the office hours menu to sign up. You'll get a link. And if you have Zoom, click on the link. You'll go right in. There are no passwords. That invitation will also provide some dial-in numbers if you want to attend via phone. So I'm waiting for our listeners who are in attendance in our virtual studio audience to raise their hands. Whatever's on your mind, I'll talk about it. Let me tell you who's on today's show if all goes as planned. Uh, at 11th, uh, 11.30, I'm, I'm taping this in real time, so it doesn't matter what time we do this uh, recording. We're taping it at 11.30 a.m. in Manhattan. Susan Paolo Antonetta joins us. She's the editor of the Bellingham Review and author of the American Book Award-winning Curious Adams, A History with Physics, and she's going to talk about being bipolar in the age of pandemic then at noon, Professor Stephen Lewandowski, one of the world's leading experts on debunking conspiracy theories, talks to us about that pandemic video. Journalist Brittany Gibson, whose latest for the American prospect is the many varieties of voter suppression. We're going to talk about how hard it is still to vote in America and whether or not we really want people to vote in America. I think that should actually be a question asked of our candidates. Do you believe in democracy? Do you believe people should be allowed to vote? I know it sounds crazy, but when it gets right down to it, most most of our leaders don't want us to vote, and it's borne out by how difficult it is to actually vote, unlike most democracies around the world. Then Joe Williams joins us. He's the senior editor for U.S. News & World Report. His latest piece is... For many Americans, poor water access heightens the COVID threat. We're going to talk about how America, for many, is a third world nation. You you cannot get potable water in America. Screenwriter Dave Cyrus 
comes in to tell us how bad things are. Then I'm very excited about Shahid Buttar joining us. He's a Democratic Socialist who is running in California to unseat Speaker Nancy Pelosi. This is exciting. And he's going to be on the show. And Professor Harvey J.K. got him for us, and he will help me in the questioning. Animal behaviorist Dr. Jennifer Vertolin will answer all your questions about your pets. And then Elizabeth Spears, her latest piece in GQ is The Provocations of Elon Musk. He's trying to launch a spaceship and go to the moon, and uh, we'll talk about the criminal activities of Elon Musk. Comedian Laura House joins us. We'll answer your emails and take your calls. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn from Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Then we have philosophy professor Ben Burgess, author of Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. I'll take your calls after that. And then comedy writing legend Alan Zweibel joins us. His latest book is Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier. I'm so excited about Alan coming back. He is absolutely amazing. When I come back, I will take your calls. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. The David Feldman Radio Program is made possible by listeners like you. You sad, pathetic humps. We have a virtual studio audience, but very few people have their hands raised. So Henry is here, Henry Hakamaki. And so I'm going to ask the listeners questions. This is a new idea. Instead of taking calls from the listeners, I'm going to ask the listeners questions. What's on your mind? Let's take some questions from our studio audience. If you have something on your mind, please raise your hand and I'll take your question in the order they are received. So far, there are only two hands raised. Whatever's on your mind while you're raising your hand, let me tell our home audience that we have a virtual studio audience sitting with us today via Zoom and by phone, and it's a great way to record this podcast. It's just fantastic to look down, see people from all over the world listening and watching us live on Zoom. If you would like to attend a live recording of this show, we tape every Monday and Thursday here in Manhattan. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the office hours tab, and sign up. You'll receive an invitation. Click on it, and if you have Zoom, you're automatically in. The invitation will also include a dial-in number if you want to attend by phone. And I see that we do have some people just listening by phone. I think you can attend via Skype. They say you can. I don't know how to do it. But from what I can tell so far, two options, Zoom or phone, maybe Skype, and You'll get an all-day pass, which means you can come and go as you please. It's a great way to support this show, because when my guests look down and see a live audience, it makes them want to come back. And I'm a performer. This energizes me. Your presence just makes the show better. I'm always looking for audience members who have questions for our guests or who want to participate when I open the floor for questions like now. And I see two hands raised. I see a big audience. Nobody wants to raise their hands. So if you get this invitation, please forward it to a friend who has something to say. Invite them to attend. There's always room. Okay, I see some hands raised. 
Let's go to uh, Great Britain, where uh, the great Ricky is standing by. Hello, Ricky. Oh, hi, David. How are you, mate? Well, I'm glad you're here. You raised your hand. Yeah, well, you gave me an opportunity, and it's uh, afternoon rather than four in the morning. It's uh, it's quite uh, it's quite nice to be talking to you at four uh, four in the afternoon our time. So, yeah, we're doing uh, an early taping today. Most of the guests uh, couldn't do a, an evening taping, and we're just going to see because I end up going to bed way too late. By the you know, I have to get this show up by three a.m., and then it takes me about two more hours to unwind and. Sometimes I don't unwind till seven in the morning and then I have other things to do. So yeah, we'll see how this goes. We'll, we'll find out. Yeah. So, sounds good. Yeah. You're definitely the hardest working comedian I've ever heard of. So, uh, it's a pleasure to be part of it. Oh, thank you. Um, David, I've got, I've got, <laughs> well, it's, it's a truth. Hey, I've got, I've got two things. I'm, I'm actually today because I don't know if you've been following what's happening in the, in the UK, but everything's turning to pot here as well as it is uh, over at your side. Um, and I'm going to be heading down with my son to uh, Westminster, and we're going to clap our NHS in Parliament uh, Square. So um, to do to was, protest uh, what? To protest our government. You know, we've got 37,000 dead, and and we've got a joker called uh, Dominic Cummings who thinks it's all right to drive halfway across our country taking his illness with him. So, uh, yeah. you know, we're going to go and give our respect to our um, NHS workers. Yeah, tell us about Cummings. As I understand it, he's one of the top cabinet ministers. He orchestrated Brexit, and he tested positive for the virus. I think his wife did, and they needed daycare, he claimed, so they drove to northern England to shelter in place with his parents. Yeah. Is that what was going on with that? Yeah, so there's a, there's a few corrections, but basically accurate. One, he's he's the chief advisor, so he's like our little Spengali. Right, um, he's, I'm, he's the chief advisor on COVID nineteen, or Boris Johnson's chief advisor to to Boris Johnson, right. to Boris Johnson, and um, so the the uh, this guy is basically um, he's a, he's uh, what we refer to in the north of England as a scrote. Uh, which I'll let you use your Latin to, to get to the base of that. Yeah. But he's just a despicable man, um, and, uh, chose to, in the middle of the crisis on the 27th of March, when we were just locking down, to pack his family up and go to his, uh, family estate. His, his father's got a big farm and estate in County Durham. Hmm. Uh, and, um, his wife had shown the illness, had gone back, after going and checking on her back into 10 Downing Street, which is basically our White House, even though it's a bit smaller, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, spread around a little bit of the disease there and then drove north for 260 miles. Um, and, and Boris he had Johnson isolated. Boris Johnson is standing with him, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Everyone's starting to realize that this guy can't rule by himself. He needs his... Um, his advisor to to be the uh, power behind the throne to get right. things done for him. Right, and so, you guys yeah, are just as un- take- you guys are just as unprepared as we are. We we weren't unprepared. We've had a conservative government um, in coalition or on its own for ten years, and we had plans. We had stockpiles. We had everything. 
uh, in place, but over those 10 years, sort of like the way you guys do it, the neoliberals have said, well, we don't really uh, want to spend the money, so we'll just pretend that everything's up to s- snuff. And these guys just ignored it, played the played fools until they realised that, oh, geez, you know, a lot of people are going to die. And our uh, medical advisor um, who who quit because he had uh, gone to see his uh, his lover um, had basically said we might lose 20,000 people. Well, we've lost officially 37,500 to date, and uh, it's more likely to be 60 to 70,000. So um, this is not so, a virtual protest over at Westminster? You're, you're going no, to- I'm just going to go down with my son. We, we clap every Thursday night for our health workers and... Um, yeah, just. But are you going to wear? And, you going to wear protective garments? Yeah, we've got masks and and gloves, and uh, we'll walk. We're about a half an hour's walk, forty minute walk to Westminster. So okay. we'll walk down, great, and we'll do our best to to not interact with anyone. Fantastic. And then we'll, you know, we'll just stand. So we'll, we'll call us from there. Call us from the protest. I'll try. Yeah, that would be great if we can I'll get try. a, I'm a, a call. Bit old, so I'm a Huh? It's not a it's not a protest. It's me and my son. Oh, it's not like it's a not mass a protest. protest. It's just me and my son. Oh, no, it's just two of us. Oh, I thought it was a big protest. Okay, thank you. No, no. Okay, I'll see you at office hours tomorrow. I hope. Okay, look okay. forward to it, mate. Thank you. Great to hear Cheers. from you. Hey, Henry, you are here. Thank you for showing up. I have a question for you, Henry. I think this is the. I've come up with a new format. Where I okay, I, I think I just ask the the listeners questions. It's a call in show, and instead of the listeners asking me questions, I ask them questions. In the Q and A, I've been asked, "Have there been any more laundry room fights?" Yes, yes. There's there are people are losing their mind here in New York City, and they go after other people. And this one guy thinks the laundry room is his. He comes in and he unplugs all the, it's quite, quite genius. It's, it's almost something I would do. He unplugs all the dryers and washing machines that he's not using so nobody can come in. And then he stands guard in the laundry room. And he has OCD. He just has to be washing his clothes all the time. He's like a little ferret. And mm. I guess he's a kept man. So he goes just takes care of the kids and has an older, wealthy wife. So he's angry and nobody can use the laundry room except him. I think he's up on the top floor. Okay. I have a question. For I don't you, know. Henry. That sounds like the life to me, David. Yeah, it's the life. And somebody wants to know if I got my oven repaired. No, I haven't gotten my oven repaired. The pilot light has gone out. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the oven. I'm just talking about me. I have to get the oven repaired, but I'm afraid to have somebody come into the apartment and bend over and show me ass crack. I think it's a chamber I don't want unlocked. Henry, I have a question. Get you a bit too excited? Hey, yes. Yeah. Now you're you are fighting Ebola. You did a great job on the COVID nineteen town hall. I mean, really great. Uh, and you wrote the questions for me and made me look. Somewhat intelligent. You doing? You're doing a great job with irritable. You really are. It's one of my, it's one of my proudest moments on this show. 
I, I, you can't hear that. Doing my best, David. Yeah. Here's my question. So I can't find Lysol, but I'm mm-hmm. using this hand sanitizer that they sell, which is basically vodka or something or gin, just a big bottle of of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Is it safe to spray alcohol on, say, a, a, a wood chopping block after you've been cutting mushrooms? Yeah. So what you would want to do, uh, because alcohol has a tendency to dry out wood, and I say this to somebody who does wood. Every every time I've ever, after a night of drinking, tell that to every woman I've ever been with. (laughs) Dries out my wood. Hang on, Henry, hang on. Hang on. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. Delayed reaction from the audience, but they got there. (laughs) but yeah, speaking as somebody who does woodworking uh, as a hobby, alcohol does dry out wood really bad. So what you would want to do after you alcohol off the board is then wash that off because alcohol also, if there's any additives to it, would add kind of an off-putting flavor to the wood, which would get picked up by any things that you cut it's, in the future. So It's got to be better than anything I'm cooking, that off-putting flavor. But like with <laughs> Lysol... So you got to pick up more from Howie Klein, I guess. Yeah. But... Uh, so Lysol versus alcohol, alcohol. Because I've noticed, I've just been spraying this hand sanitizer, which is really alcohol without the aloe gel inside of it. Is it safe to just spray alcohol on things? Instead of Lysol, I would assume it's safer than Lysol. Yeah, I mean, and when you say Lysol, there's a bunch of different Lysol products that have different formulations of what they put in them. So there's some Lysol products that actually aren't super effective against viruses, um, especially coronaviruses. So if they use, I believe BZK is one of the compounds that some Lysol products use. And That's I, my rap if name. I remember correctly. BZK was also my rap name. Yeah, yeah. If I remember correctly, BZK is not super effective against coronaviruses, but any Lysol products that use uh, chlorine bleach in them, those would be super, super effective against coronaviruses. Okay, Alcohol so, so Lysol is Lysol a scam? As long as you scam? get above 70%, you're fine. Is Lysol no, a scam? it's not a scam. It, it's not a scam. So Lysol is just a brand name. And they have a bunch of different formulations for different products for different purposes. So they have some that are really, I mean, you could basically ingest them if you wanted to. Obviously, you would want to. But they have some that are super, super non-toxic. And then they have some stronger ones. And they use different chemicals in the different formulations. And the different formulations will be effective against different things. So the thing to look at would be what's the active ingredient in the in the Lysol that you're using. And you'd want to use one that has... Um, usually if you get one that has a bleach base, so a chlorine base, then you'd be fine. It would kill any coronaviruses that you have on any surfaces. Alcohol, on the other hand, you would want to make sure that it's at least 70% alcohol. If it's not at least 70%, you don't know how effective it's going to be. Okay. Well, Henry, then, we have David, some questions. Can I add we, one last quick thing? Okay, because we, we have to get to our first guest. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. it's very, very quick. I was just going to say, so if you're alcoholing your cutting board, yes. the wooden cutting board, you'd want to condition the cutting board every once in a while then. So I don't know if you have any uh, Woodman's conditioner. You can make your own if you don't. Doc Johnson um, sells my Woodman just, con- conditioner. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm just. <laughs> basically, you can make your own with just uh, melt together beeswax and mineral oil if you have those. If you don't have those, any sort of food safe oil would also yeah. work in a pinch. But 
you would want to uh, condition your cutting board. Otherwise, you'll be at risk of warping it or cracking it. I, I remember when I was married, I was fixing my cutting board, and she asked me what I was using. And I said, this is none of your beeswax. Yeah. I can't believe yeah, she that's left me. a good one, me. David. I can't believe she left me. <laughs> hey, Henry, we have a lot of questions for you. I'm looking at the oh, Q&A. <laughs> there are so many questions for Henry. Are you going to be around today to take some of these questions? Apparently yeah, people yeah. are. I mean, off and on, off and on, I'll be, okay. I'll be doing stuff and I'll be on. So apparently people are concerned about this global pandemic. We will return with our guest, Suzanne Antonetta. She's the editor of the Bellingham Review. Her latest piece in The Independent is entitled Coronavirus is Disrupting Medication Supply Lines. And I'm terrified she'll be with us when we come back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized humps. Suzanne Antonetta is the author of Body Toxic, A Mind Apart, and the forthcoming The Terrible Unlikelihood of Our Being Here, American Book Award, New York Times Notable Book, and Amazon Best Memoir of the Year Award winners. She writes about consciousness, physics, and neurodiversity. Find out more by going to SusanTonetta.com. Welcome, Suzanne Antonetta. Thank you, David. Do you go by David or Dave? You can call me anything you want. <laughs> Usually you won't be calling me Dave or David by the end of this. But uh, okay. I, David, David is, uh, is, is fine. I contacted you because you have this really fascinating piece in The Independent. It's entitled, Coronavirus is Disrupting Medication Supply Lines. And I'm terrified. It's published in cooperation with the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. And you're joining us today, I would assume, from Bellingham, Washington? I am joining you from Bellingham, Washington, where uh, tattoo parlors are not open. Oh, that's too bad. (laughs) And you also are the editor of the Bellingham Review. We'll talk about that in a second. But let's talk about one of the problems of having everything manufactured overseas, because our supply chain can get disrupted with gruesome consequences. You wrote over at The Independent that Americans who rely on prescription drugs are most vulnerable right now because their drugs come from places like China and then India. Before we talk about your experience, describe, if you can, the supply chain. Describe like how an antidepressant gets to our kitchen table. Sure. Well, I want to start off and frame this by saying that I got so scared about the situation when I started reading about it that I reached out. I talked to Rosemary Gibson, who wrote China RX, which is one of the great exposés on the situation. I'm not a, an expert. I am the person that they are writing about. I'm the person dependent on seven prescriptions. I'm the person who is really going to be stuck. I, I can certainly give you um, the overview is that about 90% of our generic drugs come from China and India. Um, China produces most of the world's 
pre you know pre medication uh, materials. That means the materials you need to have in order to make that antidepressant pill. Many of them go from China, those preliminary ingredients, to India where they're finished um, and sent out. And right now, antidepressants happen to be one of the drugs whose supply chain is at a lot of risk. So are anti-anxiety drugs. Uh, already in shortage are drugs like certain antibiotics, certain pain relief medications like propofol. Um, you know, the problem that we're realizing now is that when these factories necessarily shut down because there's illness, because people are, you know, sheltering, then you're just seeing these supply chains disrupted. It's incredible. It's, 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 it's absolutely incredible. You said 90% of our pharmaceuticals are made in China? Um, 70 or 80%, and I'm, or, sure and that, or that's India. The number. Yeah, and particularly our generics. And I just want to stress, 90% of our generics are coming from overseas. Most of them, almost all of them from, you know, are, are generated in India. Um, and I want to make two points. <laughs> One is that, um, supply chains, medication supply chains are considered trade secrets. They are not disclosed. They do not need to be disclosed. So if you want to, you know, if you want not to the, not the, might- not the making of the drug, the supply chain, how you get the antidepressant, mm-hmm. how you get mm-hmm. the Zoloft mm-hmm. from China to India to our mouth. That's a trade secret. It's a trade secret. So if you want to tell me where your Zoloft exactly that drug is coming from, sure. I can call the manufacturer and say, can you tell me where this is coming from? They might tell me. They might not. Um, likely or not. And the second point I want to make is that sometimes people say, well, you know, um, it's not so terrible we can't get the generics. We can still get it. Well, I take medications, I take seven, one of which for a 30-day supply could be almost $600. Wow. Um, it's not nothing, right? And people with disabilities are likelier to live in poverty. So you're putting people in a position where they're going to have to say, do I survive do i feel okay or do i put out you know whatever it 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 comes to to take multiple medications we're talking with suzanne antonetta she's the author of body toxic a mind apart and her next book is the terrible unlikelihood of our being here she's also the editor of the bellingham review before we talk about you may i Mm -hmm. reveal that you are a recovering heroin addict yeah, I mean that you absolutely may. I write about. Well, I just a lot. did. Um, I, I, I was very. I, I kind of pulled sure, an Elon sure. Musk. I did something wrong, you and know, now I'm asking for forgiveness. It's been out there in the independent, and that feeds into some of the news, you know, things that you get on your computer when you turn them on. The Google News kinds of things. I don't know if my piece made it to that, but it could have. Okay, um, so, so you you talk about yeah. you talk about heroin addiction. Before we talk mm-hmm. about you, and in, in, in your piece, you describe, you know, being on your knees begging for, for a fix. If 90% of our pharmaceuticals are made overseas, we're addicted to a lot of these pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. It's very mm-hmm. hard to kick mm-hmm. an antidepressant. Some people just mm-hmm. can't do it. They mm-hmm. titrate away and they, they're still mm-hmm. addicted. Mm-hmm. So... We've seen what what has happened during the COVID-19 pandemic here in the United States. 
we don't have the tests, we don't have the drugs, we don't have mm-hmm. the PPEs, mm-hmm. and right. but our president says it's all fine. You do, you do. It is conceivable that mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. could have a nation. I, some, I don't know what is it like. Two out of ten Americans are on some kind of antidepressant, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We could conceivably have a nation going through withdrawal. Right? Yeah, we could have, we could. I don't think there'd be a nation in which 100% would be going through withdrawal. There's always going to be a supply somewhere, but it's going to be really squeezed. I mean, Rosemary Gibson, who wrote China Rx and has really investigated this, um, told me about this. There is no real transparency. Um, Vice wrote about this too. Vice identified antidepressants and anti anxiety drugs as one of the more at risk, and mm. actually did uh, Gibson. Um, so you could have lots of people in that state. You could have lots of people who are saying, hmm, I can get the brand name because that's what out, what's out there, but then I can't eat, right? right? And the withdrawal is a lot worse than most people realize. I so see. So you're like, talking about well, price yeah. gouging. You're talking about price gouging. Basically, yeah, and yeah, and if I can get off antidepressants for just one one second, yeah. here's a great example. So we're all excited now about remdesivir. It's had some good effects. Um, it's made by a drug manufacturer called Gilead. It can apparently ease uh, the coronavirus. And we gave tens of millions of dollars of taxpayer money to Gilead to help them develop that drug. We have no input. We are not trying to have input in what they charge. So the Washington Post did a great report on this. They could charge $4,500 for a 10-day supply. For a 10-day supply. Um, Yeah. I mean, an independent agency looking at what they might charge came up with that figure. They can break even for a dollar a dose. So it's just what the market will bear, and it's hard to shop around. You know, during a hurricane, during a hurricane, it's against the law to price gouge, to, to charge too much for mm-hmm. water, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, absolutely. But Big Pharma, all they do is take advantage of a crisis and overcharge. Right. We, many people are talking about nationalizing Big Pharma. There's really mm-hmm. no need. Mm-hmm. Most of their mm-hmm. research is paid for by the federal government. Their, their, most of their money is spent on marketing. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you write that you're bipolar. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Now, according to MSNBC, and when I say according to MSNBC, I'm talking about their commercials. Mm-hmm. The bipolar disorder can be treated. That's what MSNBC says in between Rachel Maddow playing with my emotions. There are side effects. <laughs> There are side effects to these treatments, mm-hmm. these medications. So specifically in your case, what you said you need seven prescriptions to deal with your. I do. Yeah. And, and how do we describe what is the, the proper way to describe being bipolar? Sure. Um, bipolar manic depression just means that you are going back and forth. You have extreme mood swings. Not every minute. Extreme mood uh, swings. Extreme. I mean, um, you know, I'm bipolar type one, which means that at times it gets to the point of psychosis, um, which I wrote about in the New York Times. So that's out there. 
Um, and this fall, I actually had an episode of psychosis. My life shut down um, for months. And I learned during that period that there is literally only one drug I can take. There's only one drug that works. And, and that's what I need or I'm going to be in that place. So uh, bipolar disorder involves like very extreme swings between mania and depression. Um, and as I said, I'm very dependent on one medication. And that's what, one of the reasons why this for me was such a panic situation. Right. I mean, I just learned I cannot function without this. And right. if it's not available, what am I, what am I going to do? Right. Um, what am I going to do? Right. And there's no reason for this. It is fixable, right? If you can make a dollar a dose and break even for remdesivir, and you got enormous amounts of it's your money and my money. We pay taxes. Right. That's what they got. Um, but we're not, you know, we're letting them just take the patent and run with it. Right. And, of course, there's not going to be generics because we legally can't have them for a while. Um, that's our deal with the drug companies. So, yeah, I mean, it's a terrible situation. Do you mind if... It uh, was, do you mind sure, if, no, go ahead. Uh, what is the name of the drug that you need? Who manufactures it? And I would assume they advertise on MSNBC and CNN and <laughs> all our favorite Probably. news. Probably, yeah. Um, well, the brand name is Seroquel, and I honestly would have what, to say... Uh, say it again, please. What is it? Seroquel. 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 Yeah, quetiapine, and so I take the generic. Right, right. And so far, has the supply chain been okay? Yeah, it has for that medication. I have a three-month supply. Um, I can tell you another thing that is horrifying. Um, an enormous number of our medications are contaminated. Because they're made overseas. When we inspect in the United States, we spot check, right? Mm -hmm. Suddenly the FDA is there. What's going on? Overseas, we give them notice. And so another wonderful book by Catherine Evan is called Bottle of Lies, and it's about how tainted generics are. And I mean, they have situations where they find trash bags full of adulterated uh, records and they are wiretapping the inspectors of Dallas. I mean, real. They're wiretapping know, who? Uh, in a case that she identified, they had actually wiretapped the hotel rooms of the inspectors. Right. So. <laughs> Unbelievable. Wow. How cruel so, is America? I mean, when, when it comes to people with medical conditions like yours, doesn't the cruelty exacerbate the mental illness? Well, that's actually a really fascinating question, David. I have not considered that. I have to say the level of anxiety I experienced over this right. um, was pretty excruciating, so I have to say yes. When, um, you know, the, the, uh, your dependence, our dependence on legal pharmaceuticals vis-a-vis uh, -vis being addicted to heroin I want to believe the medical establishment has us addicted to drugs that are better and safer for us than the drugs Nikki Barnes, Frank Lucas, or El Chapo got us addicted to. But you're saying mm -hmm. they they may, they're contaminated. They they've been mm -hmm. they they mm -hmm. could be killing us. What what can we do right now 
to make sure that that our drugs are being inspected properly. Mm. Are there any bills before Congress or is there anything we can do? Or do we just take yeah. more drugs yeah. to deal with it? <laughs> to deal with the anxiety of yeah. drugs. Well, let me tell you quickly that um, in the past four months, I've experienced two episodes of contamination. With what, what drugs? With what drugs? One was my Lamotrigine, and I went to pick it up, and they got very uneasy and said I'd have to wait and come back. And, I, you know, I went through this sort of like they were trying to get it from somewhere else. I mean, I don't need to tell you the whole story, but it turned out it was um, contaminated with a drug called, and I wrote it down here, well, it's a Nalapril, I think, Maliate, which is a blood uh, hypertension medicine. Right. So, and that was January. Before the um, pandemic. Before the pandemic. And there's a company that actually it's called Valisher that um, checks every batch they get. Right. Um, it's, it's kind of an extraordinary, small, scrappy company. And they've found about 10% are either contaminated or ineffective. Ten years ago, ten yeah. years ago, five years ago, if I needed antibiotics or anything, mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. go to my pharmacist. Now everything is mailed to us in 90-day supplies. Uh, we need pharmacists. The local mm-hmm. pharmacist is disappearing. So if you're having a right. bad interaction with your drugs, I, when I, I remember an experience where I... I was in Las Vegas and I was freaking out and this was Mm -hmm. 20 years ago and I was being prescribed certain types of medication and it just wasn't working. It was like a sleep medication and an anti-anxiety pill and I was just trying to get through this week and I was freaking out. I, I, I was losing my mind and I went to the local pharmacist in Vegas and he sat with me and said, you know, just his just his fatherly advice alone was worth everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now my pharmacist is my my postal delivery guy. Here, here, here are your drugs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually do a local pharmacy, and it's you know they can't spot check. And if you go back and say this isn't working, they don't know if that's just you. Maybe you're just having a terrible week. Yeah. Um, well, we have some questions. We, we have a, a, sure, a virtual sure. audience. Uh, they've, yeah, they've raised their absolutely. hands. Let us go to Chloe. Hello, Chloe. Please unmute yourself. I'm going to ask you to unmute yourself. There you Hello. go. Hello, Chloe. You can hear me? Yes. Where are you calling from? Scranton, Pennsylvania. Scranton, Pennsylvania. What is your question for Suzanne? Uh, I thought about the the contamination issue uh i wondered if there was anything that was being looked at as far as uh allergic reactions Mm. Uh, a number of years ago i got stevens johnson syndrome from bactrim which was a drug that i'd taken like many times before, I never had a reaction from, from it, but then I had a reaction from it. And then this year, um, and that was like over 10 years ago, that was in 2009. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I've always been careful when I start taking an antibiotic to watch for signs. And this time it was, uh, I believe, by the beginning of February, uh, I was prescribed an antibiotic that I had it was, I think it was a generic Leviquin and 
uh, I had taken this before. I had taken it the year before. No problem. I took it within a half hour. I started getting hives. My throat Aye. started closing up. Mm-hmm. I had to be rushed to the hospital. Aye. So yeah. I just wonder about like if maybe s- some of these contamin like some of these allergic reactions to medications might have something to do with contamination more than the actual drug. And if there's any kind oh, of that's interesting. about that because that's really interesting. I mean, because right now, now I'm excluded. I can never take, even though it may never, that, those reactions may have been a one-time thing. So I may never, like, I might be actually safe to take some medications again, but I can never take it again just because I can't risk it. Right. Great question. Well, Thank you. Yeah, Claire. it's a fabulous question. Um, you know, Valisher really is an interesting place. They they do dispense medication, but they do test every batch. So I would say that might be something to look into. Um, I, I had the same question when I discovered that my Lamotrigine had this enalapril malleate in it. And I did ask my pharmacist, well, um, you're telling me it's not an effective dose of enalapril, so it doesn't matter. It's not the clinical dose. But what if you were allergic to it? And I didn't really get a clear answer. And I can't imagine that that isn't happening. Yeah. Obviously, I can't tell you for sure that it is. But I, I find it hard to believe that with this level of contamination, uh, that there would never be somebody who had a sensitivity like that. Wow. Um, it's one of these huge problems. Um, with singer Single-payer, you know, countries, they buy up a lot of medication. They get the good prices. Um, so this is a problem endemic to the United States. Well, I think most Western countries now are buying from uh, China and India. But too. you don't see the kind so, of price gouging, right? Yeah, the price gouging. And, you know, one of the examples I gave in my article was a drug that went from 91 cents to 100. I believe it was $159. I have the article in front of me. Um, you know, for a 30-day Seroquel. supply. Yeah, 160 to almost 600 for a 30-day supply. Well, that's a Seroquel. This was, this was a different one, actually. It was an antidepressant uh, that went from $0.91 cents to $159. because, And that was because it was a capsule, not a tablet. I mean, this just makes no sense. And wow. the price gouging, yeah, is a huge problem. And if you buy large batches, you're likelier to, I think, identify those problems. Well, um, thank you. Yeah. We're going to go to Henry in a second. We have conversations, Suzanne, on this show. Where where are the people? Why aren't they marching on Washington? Why I was there in Washington for the impeachment and I remember walking out like, where where are they? Where is everybody? Well, they're being medicated. And mm-hmm. if I, I listen in listening to you now, I realize that if we take to the streets, we could turn this country off by interrupting sure. the supply chain. No drugs. Just, right. you, know, you don't mean, get. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, yeah. No, I'm just going to say, I think that's a brilliant point. How do you protest? Oh, I'm going to make you, hey, I'm not going to take my Lavoxel. I'm not going to take my Lexapro or whatever it is. I'm not going to take my circle. And then you'll see. No, well, that wasn't the life. point I was making. Okay. I, the point I'm I was sorry. making is they've got us medicated now. And if we get yeah. if we get a little uh, ambitious, they'll 
disrupt the supply chain and they'll unplug us. We won't get our drugs anymore. Henry. Hello, David. Henry is, uh, uh, what, what, you're a bioimmunologist? Is that what you are? Immunobiologist. You're an immunobiologist. Yeah, and I specialize in viral immunology. Okay. Mm -hmm. What is your question for Suzanne? So I'm going to make just a quick statement to remind people of contamination of drugs that happened a few years ago, and then I'm going to ask a question. So okay. um, just to remind people, in case they forgot, uh, a big outbreak of uh, contaminated drugs, I want to say it was in the spring of 2013, there was contaminated um, steroids from a compounding facility in New England mm-hmm. that caused... Uh, about 800 people, as memory serves, about 800 people were confirmed to have gotten fungal meningitis from these uh, contaminated steroids uh, for mm-hmm. back pain. And there was uh, roughly 100 people that died from that. And the reason that this was notable is because these compounding facilities weren't able to be regulated by the FDA. They uh, were basically completely unregulated. So there's something for people to look into if they want to if they don't remember this uh, incident particularly well. Right. Now, for my question, I was just wondering if you could talk about, I know that this is a diversion from what the previous conversation was about, but you wrote uh, earlier in your career about the Radium Girls, and I was wondering if you could uh, remind everybody about who the Radium Girls were and, and kind of the lessons that we can still be taking today from the incident that cause them to become newsworthy. You've been compared to Rachel Carson, Suzanne. So, yes, yeah, thank and you. I, yeah, and I do want to stress that I am always very dependent on finding the right experts on interviews, on educating myself. Um, I'm not Henry. I can't speak from that kind of place of an immunobiologist. But the Radio Girls were a group of women who actually, in the early 20th century, uh, painted radium clocks. They wanted the clocks to have a bit of a glow. So these women actually sat there with radium and paintbrushes. Hmm. And they dipped their paintbrushes in the in the radium and if it wasn't if the you know the you know how you do this, if the point wasn't sharp enough, they would put it in their mouths and sharpen it up the way you do with a paintbrush. Wow. Um, and so they became very contaminated and very sick. Um, and they would kind of use it as a jokey thing. They would they would paint their fingernails with radium and kind of enjoy the glow. Um, it was just kind of extraordinary that we didn't pick up on how carcinogenic radium was. The lesson maybe is pay attention. I mean, the evidence is these things are happening. It's not like it's not there. It's not like you can't notice that people are using radium like that. Um, they would paint their teeth. I mean, it was just extraordinary. Um, we're often made to look the wrong way. W- where did you write about this? In a book? or In Body Toxic. In Body yeah. Toxic. Yeah, which examines a lot of different kinds of, a lot of environmental material um, how, how it's di- how yeah. illness or maybe even mental illness may not have anything to do with your parents. It may not have anything to do with your own chemistry. It might be sure. the chemistry sure. of the local industrial plant. 
Sure. And I don't know the evidence about that for things like bipolar disorder, but for lots of things, absolutely. Um, you know, we're born just being constantly exposed to chemicals. And um, it's kind of extraordinary. I interviewed a, a guy who had worked for a, a, a power, you know, he worked for power plants. And um, talked about how in the early days when they wanted to dispose of radioactive material, they actually used trucks lined with Kotex. They have, I'm sorry, you when, said what? They, when they were disposing of radioactive material, they would use trucks and line them with women's menstrual pads with Kotex hmm. to just absorb this material. I mean, you can imagine how badly that worked. Yeah. Um, mad, a mad, yeah. A mad, you're a mad hatter, the term a mad hatter. Mm-hmm. Where does that come mm-hmm. from? Doesn't the it, Mad Hatter is in Alice in Wonderland. But the idea that hat makers yeah. went crazy, I believe, oh, because yeah. of the, there was mercury or something yeah. in the hat making process. Yeah. And they went crazy and yeah. they, they you know and they assumed it was their fault. It had nothing to do with yeah. their job. Well, Suzanne Antonetta is the author of Body Toxic, A Mind Apart. Her next book is The Terrible Unlikelihood of Our Being Here. I love that title. Uh, (laughs) She's an an American Book Award winner, a New York Times Notable Book winner, an Amazon Best Memoir of the Year Award winner. She writes about consciousness, physics, and neurodiversity. We we didn't get to physics. You'll you'll have to come back. How do people? And you're also the editor of the Bellingham Review. Very quickly, very quickly, tell us about the. Bellingham Review, because I was reading it last night, and you're non. I'm a big fan of nonfiction, mm-hmm. but it's it's poetic the way it's written, and mm-hmm. and your book mm-hmm. on physics is poetic in the way it's written. Mm-hmm. You're a poet. Tell us about the Bellingham Review. Oh, it's an amazing journal. I've done it for I don't know six years now, and one of the things we do that I think is very cool is that we always publish a lot of international writing. Um, about 5%, I think, of what we read here is in translation. So in the U.S., we really are not good about looking at um, work from overseas. So right now I'm working on some translated work and new work from West African countries, wow. um, which is amazing. And I published back in 2006 a bunch of writing from Hong Kong that was about specifically what was then called the Occupy or Umbrella Revolution. Right. And that was, um, you know, it's kind of amazing to have those voices and have them out there now in this current situation, which is so tragic. Yeah. So, um, and, and not all of our, we, we run some pretty narrative nonfiction to, um, it just, it probably is just the luck of the draw. Yeah. That we run. Yeah. yeah. And we'll yeah. talk about, I want to talk to you about Curious Adams, a history with physics. Sounds really interesting. Thank you so much, Suzanne Paula Antonetta. We'll be back with Professor Stephen Lewandowski right after this.
You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Speaking of Big Pharma, we just spent 30 minutes talking about how Big Pharma could unplug the entire country if they wanted to. Was COVID-19 invented by the pharmaceutical industry so they could sell more drugs? Is it more a pandemic than a pandemic? A YouTube video since taken down features a once prominent epidemiologist insisting that it's a pandemic. Our next guest says the video meets all the qualifications for a crazy conspiracy theory. Professor Stephen Lewandowski is chairman of cognitive psychology, is the chair of cognitive psychology at the University of Bristol and is one of the world's leading experts on debunking conspiracy theories. He conducts research and misinformation, post-truth deception, and climate change denial. He joins us today from Great Britain. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us. Sure, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, I don't know if you heard our previous conversation about Big Pharma and the supply chain, and it's terrifying what how vulnerable. No, unfortunately, I didn't, so I can't, uh, unfortunately, I can't comment on that. But we're going to talk about conspiracy theories. 90%, close to 90% of America's pharmaceuticals come from either China or India. You've written the Conspiracy Theory Handbook and How to Spot COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories. And you say there are seven distinctive traits of conspiratorial thinking. You go on to write over at the conversation that the pandemic YouTube video offers textbook examples of them all. Before we get to the seven traits of what constitutes a conspiracy theory, explain to me the motivation behind this pandemic video. If COVID-19 benefits the pharmaceutical industry, what does it benefit someone like this epidemiologist to spread these falsehoods? Is it is it mental illness? Is she suffering from mental illness? Is it mercenary? Well, I think, first of all, we have to start by acknowledging that uh, throughout history, whenever there's been a pandemic, there has also been an outbreak of conspiracy theories. A pandemic or a pandemic? Uh, uh, did I say that? No, it's said- a pandemic. Okay. Uh, well, maybe all the others were a pandemic, too. <laughs> but, um, basically, whenever there's a pandemic, um, conspiracy theories are rife and the reason for that is that any frightening event where people perceive a loss of control and they feel that you know they're fearful and they don't know how to deal with their fear then that creates a need for some kind of comfort like the, the bubonic plague they they blamed on rats well, actually, they also blamed it on, I mean, you know, it also led to the usual outbreak of anti-Semitism. Right. And, you know, there, there was always some blame involved um, against right. other people. Right. Um, China, they, they still insist that uh, the Black Plague came from China. All the, all the plagues they say well, come from I mean, that's completely irrelevant if you're confronted with, you know, a bacterium or or a virus. Once it's in your country, it doesn't matter where it comes from. So, but the point is that any frightening event will cause an outbreak of conspiracy theories. Um, Every time there's a mass shooting in the U.S., there'll be a conspiracy theory about it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, um, I can tell you that right now. The next mass shooting, there will be another conspiracy theory. Now, it's harder to say ahead of time what exactly people are going to make up, but there will be a conspiracy theory simply because for some people, it is easier to to suffer this loss of control if they can blame a person for that. Because if you can blame somebody, if you can hate someone uh, who is responsible for your misery, then you can sort of play this game in your head, this counterfactual, that's what we call it, uh, and you can say, well, you know, if these people had acted differently, then the world would have been a different place. So what, that, what, what is the motivation behind this epidemiology, this disgruntled Fauci? Well, she's not an epidemiologist. She, she was at one point a, a virologist yeah. who, who has published a few papers uh, a long time ago. Well, to be honest, I don't know that. But, of course, she is now receiving a lot of attention. She is, um, you know, also, of course, receiving a lot of derision. And, 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 you know, no one in the professional community is taking her seriously. Um, but still, I mean, for some people, the attention is, is attractive enough. There, there's clearly a market out there for conspiracy theories. And I think we have to understand the whole thing is an interplay between people's needs for comfort, and some other group of people usually who come up with these stories and then occasionally something will find traction yeah. and start believing it. Right. So what and are the seven traits of that, a cons- I'm sorry? No, whoever comes up with that then is, of course, uh, uh, you know, in the limelight of attention and, and uh, among their own people who listen to them, they're being admired and you know, probably supported as as these heroes who take on the establishment, which brings us to one of those criteria you're mentioning. Yeah, let's talk about the seven traits of a conspiracy theory. And when you say conspiracy theory, you mean something, because there are conspiracies that are true. When you say conspiracy theory, you mean things that are false, right? Precisely. And, 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 of course, the real problem in all this is... How do we know something is a true conspiracy or it's a conspiracy theory, which we presume is false? Right. And the point of these criteria that I, you know, well, philosophers have been working on this for decades, and I have done some empirical work on this and added to these criteria over time. The point of these criteria is to discover cognition that is unlikely or less likely to be a reality tracking device. Right. You know, because, um, for example, incoherence, if people are incoherent. Is that one of the traits? That is one of the seven well, traits. Before you go to the seven traits, before you mention right. but before, as I was reading your piece, you mentioned the seven traits of a conspiracy theory. And it, I'm not trying to be glib here. It's also the seven traits of the Trump administration. Isn't it? Uh, well, <laughs> you want me to contradict you? Yes, please. Uh, that would be difficult uh, for me to contradict you on that one. Okay. I, I uh, certainly have observed a rich uh, repertoire of, of utterances from the Trump administration that, that resonate with my research. Let's, let's put it that way. Okay, and so let's go through the seven traits, if you don't mind. And the people who promulgate conspiracy theories, do they know what they're doing? Do they know, do they know these traits? Are they 
onto, onto the game? I well, I don't know that. In, you know, I, I can't be sure of of in an individual instance uh, what is going on. I mean, I've certainly had interactions with conspiracy theories, uh, uh, sorry, theorists, where where they would um, you know defend themselves by saying, "Well, no, 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 I'm not fulfilling these criteria. No, 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 not at all." Right. But then they would say something that was like a textbook case of one of the seven. And right. if you then point that out to them, they kind of, you know, it's it's not an easy dialogue to have because uh, one of the aspects, one of the seven, is the prior belief um, that conspiracy theorists hold, which is that there must be something wrong with the official account. Whatever right. it is they're opposing, something has to be wrong. And that overriding suspicion is is preventing them from uh, engaging in an, in an argument the way that uh, scientists might do it. Because right. we are skeptical as scientists, but that doesn't mean we don't occasionally surrender our skepticism and accept things as fact. Right. For example, the fact that there is a virus that causes COVID-19. So some of this is kind of hard. And you've written two books that people can can download, the uh, Conspiracy Theory Handbook and How to Mm -hmm. Spot COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories. As I understand it, you're primarily concerned about climate change. And there is a conspiracy among the paid for scientists by ExxonMobil to deny climate change. I mean, there are f- conspiracy theories promulgated by ExxonMobil. But let's talk about the seven uh, traits. Mm. Uh, first is con- contradictory. So what what does contradictory beliefs mean, and how do we find them in your typical conspiracy theory? Well, uh, contradictory or incoherent means that people are holding two beliefs at the same time that that are mutually incompatible. You cannot believe that the Earth is round and that it is flat. You just can't because it makes no logical sense. You can believe one or the other, but you can't believe both at the same time. That's the flaw in a conspiracy theory. That's not what makes a conspiracy theorist... It makes it ripe for a conspiracy theory that a a conspiracy theory holds contradictory beliefs. Well, what that does, what I'm using that as is a diagnostic tool to identify, aha, we're talking about somebody who is probably engaging in a conspiracy theory rather than somebody like colleagues of mine who write papers about the conspiracy you mentioned by Exxon. You see that the, the, we all agree that conspiracies sometimes exist. And the challenge is to say, well, how can I tell whether this might be true or not? And so what I'm saying is, if somebody comes up to you and says something that's incoherent, then you probably have a sign of of this being unlikely to be correct because it can't be both a flat earth and a round earth. Right. So explain to me the contradictory, how the Wuhan virus came from the lab, but what is the contradiction? 
the contradiction is that we have already have the have the virus in us from previous vaccinations, and that's and they're being activated by wearing masks. So that's completely incoherent. I mean, either this virus has been in our bodies for however long, then somehow wearing masks, which no one did early on, is triggering activating this virus. I mean, that is at least you know, unlikely but plausible. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, if that's the case, then it cannot also be the case that the pandemic originated in a lab in Wuhan a couple of weeks. Okay. How does that hang together? Great. So saying both is incoherent, and that is enough for us to say, whoa, let's be careful. You're one-seventh there. If if there's a contradiction, you're one-seventh there in debunking the theory. Overriding suspicious is number number two. Overriding suspicion. I've already mentioned that that anything involving the official account has to be wrong in the eyes of a conspiracy theorist, and so they're they're applying this intense suspicion and almost paranoia about the official account on the one hand, while at the same time being extremely gullible about some tweet by some random dude who says, oh, I have evidence for UFOs or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's the second uh, uh, trait. And So they're part, anybody who goes against your theory is part of the conspiracy. Well, that is the self-sealing nature of, yeah. of conspiratorial thought, that you reinterpret having no evidence <laughs> right. or having contrary evidence as being in favor of your theory, which is completely the opposite of how scientists deal with with uh, evidence. And if you want an example, there's a beautiful example in this uh, pandemic video where, uh, you know, some one of the characters is saying, oh, Fauci is controlling all this money and he's sending it to China to finance the virus or whatever it is. And then an interviewer pointed out, well, you know, but there's no evidence for this. Right. And the response now is interesting. The response was, Precisely. There is no evidence because the cover-up is so perfect that there is no evidence (laughs) for anything. Okay, so that means I can be sure something is happening because there is no evidence for it? Right. Well, that doesn't quite work in the real world. Nefarious intent is, is, is the third trait. What does that mean? Uh, sorry, which one? Nefarious <laughs> intent. Sure. Absolutely. That goes with everything. You know, the officials, uh, the CDC or the WHO, they're, they're all these terrible people who are trying to kill us or trying to make money. Um, you know, and, and there is never any room for anyone involved in the conspiracy actually having some, you know, being anything other than absolutely evil. Right. Right. Number four is it's too fishy. The the conviction that something's wrong. What does that mean? Again, the same thing, that even if an aspect of the conspiracy theory is disproven, which occasionally even conspiracy theorists have to admit, that that doesn't really matter because something else is wrong. Right. Um, so they're, they're, you know, again, it's the use of evidence by... 
saying, well, okay, maybe this wasn't quite right. Oh, but something else is wrong. Something's going on. I, I remember when Donald Trump announced that he wanted to ban uh, Muslims from coming on into the country until we can figure out what's going on. He literally said until we can figure out what's going on. Speaking of Donald Trump, number five, this is so great, and it's in your handbook. It, it, it's a great way. It's a jeweler's loop for conspiracy theories. You can just look at any conspiracy theory and, and run it through these seven traits. And uh, number five is the persecuted victim, speaking of Donald Trump. What is the trait of the persecuted victim? Well, it is that the people who hold these beliefs strongly consider themselves to be victimized by the establishment, whatever that is, right. uh, you know, the government, the WHO, the CDC, you know, anything, scientists, mm -hmm. uh, just any official body. Um, but interestingly, while they're, they're considering themselves to be victims, they also very often at the same time consider themselves to be heroes, because they're the ones who are taking on the establishment. The deep, dark are. state. The deep, dark state. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Uh, number six, we're almost there. Immunity to evidence. Well, we've already touched on that yes. in multiple ways. You know, you, you just invent stuff. There's a cover-up if there's right. no evidence. And finally, number seven is reinterpreting randomness. What does that mean? Yes, that, that is actually the one I, I, I really like. Well, you know, sometimes Al Gore goes shopping and he might have been in a checkout line at a supermarket 20 years ago next to a climate scientist. And I can assure you that some people will, will draw from that the conclusion that climate change is a hoax. You know, that's the sort of pattern of thinking that we observe. We, well, we saw that in Russiagate, Right. The steel document, I, maybe, uh, right? You have to tell me more about that. I'm not up to detail on that one. Well, was there, the there was a there was a reinterpretation. Some suggest uh, of RussiaGate, the idea that the Russians were trying to put Donald Trump into office, and the steel memo kind of reinterpreted some randomness. But that's some randomness, of course. Yeah. Yes. Well, that is is uh, you know that's a human tendency to uh, that's where superstitions come from. You know, you right. a black cat crosses the road and you fall over by chance and you mm -hmm. put the two together and there's a superstition born. So these these traits, it's almost as though they're baked into our psyche, right? That that this is it says something about more about humans, maybe, than conspiracy theorists. Well, that's a very interesting uh, point, and, and I think um, you're right. I mean, all of us, to, to some extent, tend to do things like that. I mean, perceiving a pattern in randomness is a, is a human ability. You know, you look at the sky... And you look at a cloud that looks, you think looks like a poodle. I mean, we can do this all the time. We just look up and there's a cloud. We can give it interpretation. So it is a very human thing to do. But if we're trying to understand reality, um, if we're trying to make evidence-based decisions, then we have to be aware of these problems and avoid them. And, of course, collectively speaking, science scientific community is able to do that. Policymakers that rely on evidence tend in the long run to be able to overcome these uh, problems. But if we observe them, 
in an exaggerated manner in an individual and they're talking about a theory, then then we have a fairly good hint that, that there is something problematic there and it's probably not a true theory. Right. You say critical thinking is the antidote to conspiracy theories. What about religion? If you're if you're a religious person, do you believe, are you prone to conspiracy theories other than the conspiracy that God is behind everything? <laughs> I would think if you have a faith that you wouldn't be looking for somebody to explain the randomness of it all. Exactly. I, I think it can work both ways. It, it is very difficult. I, I would be hesitant to generalize there. I mean, I think on the one hand, um, if you go to religious extremists, you'll find that they're indulging in conspiracy theories. I mean, you look at Islamist fundamentalists, probably they, they will be immersed in conspiracy theories, just like any other extremist group. I mean, there's an overlap between, you know, radical extremism of any sort and belief in conspiracy theories. And apocalyptic Christians are falling falling prey to the conspiracy theorists behind denying climate change, that they think this is end times and this is... Precisely. Precisely. But... Not every religious person is an extremist, and there are many, many religious people, the majority of them probably, for whom, as you said yourself, their faith offers a uh, the same psychological comfort that others are seeking in a conspiracy theory. Right. So I think that's a very double-edged thing, and I wouldn't... Uh, uh, make a strong claim about that either way. What role does income inequality play in the proliferation of conspiracy theories? For example, in Great Britain, you have the royal families. I would assume that some, whenever something bad happens, you just say, oh, that's the queen. She's behind it. Well, the British don't do that. It's actually, uh, what's his name? Lyndon LaRouche, the, yes. one of your guys. Yes. You know him. Yes. The, uh, um, he's the one who thinks that Prince Charles is running the world's drug trade. So um, I think accusing the royal family of all the evil in the world is, is surprisingly more of an American thing than a British thing. Um, however, your point about inequality is well taken because uh, inequality is one of the factors that is responsible for um an outbreak or the, or the prevalence of populism in a country. There are data to suggest that, that more unequal countries are more likely to vote for populist parties. And, of course, as you've already noted in the context of Donald Trump, there is a correlation between populism and believing in conspiracy theories because both populism and conspiracy theories are based on putting one's own intuition that something is wrong ahead of the evidence. And, I mean, the essence of populism is is that evidence is not relevant. What is relevant is my affiliation with the real people who oppose the establishment, however that is constructed. Right. So a legitimate conspiracy theorist would say, I mean, this to me sounds legitimate, the richest 1% are stacking the system in their favor. They've rewritten the tax code so they get richer, we get poorer. They are conspiring to keep the 99% down and not charge too much for their labor. Is that a crazy conspiracy theory? 
Well, again, no. I think it depends on your cognition. This is I'm I'm a cognitive scientist, so I'm interested in how you then present that. And if you point to evidence and say, well, look here, tax rates have gone down, inequality uh-huh. has gone up, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that is that is that is an evidence based accusation. It's a political case. It's an accusation. I mean, of course, you can make that accusation. Um, where it becomes problematic or where it slides into populism is if you give up on the notion of evidence, if you think intuition and emotion should take precedence over that, and if you think that the people have an exclusive right uh, to determine what happens in a society and everybody else, the elites or other outgroups like immigrants, Muslims, uh-huh. African Americans, anybody else, if you exclude them, that is when you are uh, a populist and you're no longer making an evidence-based case against inequality. I, I promise to be respectful of your time, so we, we have to wrap it up. But I, what, what to me would be really interesting is to have you come back and have people present, because we have a virtual studio audience, have people present to you a conspiracy theory that they may or may not believe, and or without you. they Everybody can go to your website and download the Conspiracy Theory Handbook and how to spot COVID-19 conspiracy theories as a, a party game to present conspiracy theories without fighting without arguing and run these conspiracy through theories through your seven traits see if they pass the smell test it would be a fun game to play it would be a fun game but i tell you what don't put them on twitter because somebody will believe them right no but there are i mean there are all these conspiracy theories out there and i and i think you can have rational discourse yeah but don't make up new theories and put them on Twitter because it doesn't matter how absurd it is, somebody will believe them. And you never know. It might be the guy with a Twitter button on yeah. 1600. Yeah. Very quickly, let me just take one question from our audience. And I, I want to ask you about climate change and how people manipulate us into believing things, but we don't have time. Oliver, where are you calling from, Oliver? Hi, David. I'm calling from the Netherlands. We have a listener in the Netherlands. Professor, yeah. that also means Holland, just so you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I once lived in Amsterdam. I kind of okay. know my way around the tulips. Okay, yes. I think you also had a couple of uh, kings from or from Holland. Go ahead. Yeah, um, yes. I have two questions, so I'll just the most interesting one. Um, I've read your piece on the conversation, and you said, okay, you can fight conspiratorial thinking by... Uh, teaching critical thinking and uh, calling out these traits. But I read in another piece in a Dutch newspaper that you also, you shouldn't engage with conspiracy thinkers and contradict them because they'll, they'll only sort of shell up and uh, uh, sort of dig in. Yes. And I was wondering, does it also hold up for young people? Because I teach teens and if they hold a conspiracy thinking... Should I also withheld being contrarian? That's that's an excellent question, um, and and the answer is a little bit complicated, unfortunately. First of all, let me let me try and make it as simple as possible. In terms of protecting the general public against being misled, the best thing you can do that we know of at the moment 
is to inoculate them ahead of time before they're exposed to the misinformation by teaching them what to look out for. And that's the seven signs that we're talking about. Now, if that's too late because somebody has already bought into a conspiracy theory, then you are in a dilemma because then it depends on how much that person believes the conspiracy. In the extreme case, if somebody is all the way down in the rabbit hole and totally has bought into this conspiracy theory, um, it is going to be a very long and painful process to try and, you know, talk them out of that or, or let them see the evidence as it is. And we know that from research on extremism. It is, it is achievable, but extremely difficult. So the dilemma for you is if you're, if you're teaching people that, um, you know, teens, it may be the case that if you are encountering somebody who's deep down the rabbit hole, then you're going to have a very hard time with that person. However, if the person is just articulating this conspiracy theory because it's kind of cool and his or her friends believe it, you know, and it's kind of like anti-establishment, you know, blah, blah, blah then yes, an intervention and, and sort of having a conversation we know from our research can be very useful. So the answer to your question, unfortunately, is it depends on the audience and how deep down the rabbit hole they are. And I can't tell that from a distance. Professor Stephen Lewandowski is chair of cognitive psychology at the University of Bristol. He's one of the world's leading experts on debunking conspiracy theories. He conducts research in misinformation, post-truth deception, and climate change denial. He's written two books that everybody should download, The Conspiracy Theory Handbook and, and How to uh, Spot COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories. Where, where can we get those, Professor? Um, well, um, it's sks.to slash conspiracy. That, that would be your website. I'll link to it at, at my site, but that's your link to the website. It's sks, sks.to slash conspiracy. Great. And if you can remember that, you type that in, then you'll be taken to the conspiracy handbook and other handbooks there as well. Right. And I'll link to your piece in the conversation entitled, coronavirus pandemic and the seven traits of conspiratorial thinking thank you professor stephen lewandowski well thanks so much for having me goodbye thank you stand line for one quick second Okay, now I hit the. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, you happy, self actualized hump. I forgot to hit the record button. We're going to have to repeat an interview that I just did. I'm so sorry. A global pandemic making it unsafe to go to the polls, the proliferation of misinformation coming from Russia or your neighbor. Can America hold an election this November without calling its legitimacy into question? Wisconsin opens up the polls for their presidential primary, and now there are more than 50 confirmed cases of COVID-19. Can America vote? 
simply with mail-in ballots? Do we have the time or the will to change the way we vote? Joining us is journalist Brittany Gibson. She writes for the American Prospect, and her latest piece over there is entitled Voting Rights Lawsuits Multiply Across the Country. Thank you for doing this all over again. (laughs) It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I didn't hit the record button. (laughs) Have you ever uh, accidentally erased something you were writing and couldn't find it? Oh, not something I was writing, but I have lost an interview recording before, which is horrible, (laughs) horrible to the process. (laughs) Well, I had two choices to make because we have people who are in attendance through Zoom and by phone. And I could I could have just pretended I recorded it and just, and then said to you, oh, Brittany, uh, we, we didn't have time. We had a we had a bump. But I I screwed up. So I, my apologies no to you and my apologies to our virtual studio audience. Access to absentee ballots and ensuring a fair count have suddenly become newly important because of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Are we going to be able to vote in November without catching the the coronavirus? Are they going to let us use mail-in ballots? The short answer to that is it will depend where you live. Um, there are some states that are much better prepared than other others. Um, there are five states in the United States where there's already universal vote by mail access. So, uh, you know, unless you have a special circumstance where you prefer going to the polls, maybe because of a language preference or, uh, some sort of disability, if you're blind, something like that, uh, you probably, you won't be too affected. California is another state that are in their vote by mail transition, so won't be too affected um, if you need an alternative to going in person. But if you live in a state like South Carolina, Alabama, Missouri, uh, states right now that are in the middle of some litigation, some lawsuits trying to roll back the laws and procedures that make it more difficult to request a vote by mail ballot, uh, depending on the outcome of those suits and action by the federal government or even your state legislature or governor, um, you, you could become disenfranchised because of the coronavirus. And that's partially what happened to Wisconsin to some voters. Yeah. So for our international listeners, there are two opposing viewpoints on voting. You have the Republicans who claim there's voter fraud and you have the Democrats who claim there's voter suppression, that the Republicans are suppressing the vote and the Republicans are saying that Democrats are sending people to the polls to vote 10, 15, 20 times, that they're not citizens. Explain what the difference is, please, between voter suppression and voter fraud. Absolutely. So uh, voter fraud, as you'll hear from the Republican Party, is kind of like you said, this fear that people will vote multiple times and rig the election in that kind of way on a vote by vote basis. And uh, there's no evidence for that. There's no research for that. And even more interesting is, you know, voter fraud, the way they describe it, is the perfect bad crime. Because to register to vote, you give your name, your address, 
all your, you know, private information. So if you do, uh, you know, commit voter fraud, it's very easy for the authorities to try and find you and arrest you. Um, so Democrats call that out. There's also been a wave of, uh, new laws that have been passed on a state by state level. Uh, these are your voter ID laws, witness signature laws, um, Explain what the, law. yeah, explain what the witness signature law is. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably the most, um, you know, interesting one of these uh, laws that have come across in the last like seven, eight years after a Supreme Court decision. Uh, so with this signature law is basically like uh, a checklist if you do a mail-in ballot. So if you get your mail-in ballot, you think, all right, all I have to do is just vote um, and mail this back. But a witness signature law, if you have one in your state, means there's actually a checklist before anyone even counts your ballot. Um, so you, first, you have to sign it as a voter. Then you need to find a witness to watch you vote and sign your ballot. They need to sign your, it's like your envelope out that you send your ballot back in. And they need to provide their address. And you know, this witness also needs to be an American citizen for this all to count. And if you miss any of those three parts, you know, you could have your signature and the witness signature, but you don't have your witness address, then your ballot doesn't count. Um, and so a lot of people can get left out because of this administrative choice to have this checklist. Um, and in South Carolina, for example, where I uh, visited and did reporting on ahead of the primary and on primary day, um, there were uh, more than 100 ballots that weren't counted this year. And a lot of people can get caught up in that system. Right. And so the Republicans in South Carolina are pushing for this because they mm-hmm. believe that the harder you make it to vote, the better they're going to do. Um, I couldn't say exactly what their motivations are. But you don't find Democrats, but but you don't have Democrats trying to make it harder to vote, right? No, that's true. You're not seeing these kind of laws from Democrats. Um, And what we do know is we can see when a law is passed and we can see who it affects. And we can also see that who it affects is tracking along other socioeconomic factors. So it tracks mostly along race and it can also track along uh, geographical uh, information. So usually Minority voters and voters in rural areas are the ones left out. But what I will say that kind of complicates it a bit more is you have states, uh, you know, blue states run by Democrats, and they aren't in the opposite direction. They're not actively pushing legislation forward to expand access to the vote. You can look at a state like New York. They only just started early voting last year. So it's not quite as cut and dry as the uh, Republicans are bad and the Democrats are, are great. Um the Democrats are definitely neutral, and the Republicans are usually pushing the bad laws. But there's a lot that can be done, uh, and Virginia is a great example. They recently just, uh, as of this year, got full Democratic control of the state, and they're working to reverse some laws that Republicans passed. For example, their voter ID law. Uh, they had to redo gerrymandering uh, for their last November 2019 election. So there are you know, ways that you can be proactive about expanding the vote as well. It's not just the voter suppression laws. You know, one of the virtues to Donald Trump is besides being a pathological liar, he also <laughs> tells the truth while he's lying. And he <laughs> he said that if we allow everybody to vote, he said this this year, we, you know, if we see these types of levels of voting that mail-in ballots uh, will provide, uh, no Republican will ever get elected to office if we allow everybody to vote. That's what Trump said. So Mm -hmm. is that true? I mean, you write over at the American Prospect about Utah. 
and mail-in ballots. How do Republicans fare in Utah with mail-in ballots? Yeah, that's a great example because Utah is one of the five states where they already have a great universal vote-by-mail system. They're, you know, well-prepared for a coronavirus kind of situation where people can't go to the physical polls. And they've elected two Republican senators and a Republican governor. Um, and, you know, they're a vote-by-mail state. This is the perfect counterexample for, you know, Trump. Trump's tweets that he just got in trouble for, uh, I think yesterday or the day before, about mail-in ballots. Um, you know, when it comes to voting habits in the United States, I don't think there is any evidence that vote by mail during the coronavirus um, will hurt or help Republicans. You know, there's no research or evidence to show that currently. Because um, you have to think as well, the older voters in the United States, the more dedicated regular voters, they want an option besides going to the polls as well, considering the age risks associated with the coronavirus or, you know, the correlation between risk. Um, you know, there's no reason to believe that these older voters wouldn't participate in vote by mail in high numbers. And young voters who usually don't go to the polls uh, usually don't really vote, vote in the same, um, you know, levels as these older voters will suddenly take advantage of vote by mail. Okay, you ran over the American prospect that 16 states usually require a pre-approved excuse for mail-in ballots. We're talking about pre-clearance from the 1960 for voting no, 65 voting app? I'm sorry? No, it's another component. Okay. So pre, pre-clearance from the 1965 Voting Rights Act was, um, you know, a measure put in to monitor to an extra degree states that already had a history of discriminating uh, or having discriminatory laws in their voting procedures. So, you know, those are the Jim Crow uh, states, South Carolina, Florida, uh, you know, states that have a history of discriminating against voters and their laws. And pre-clearance was struck down in about in 2013 in the Shelby uh, County v. Holder decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just basically if any of those states passed a law that could discriminate against someone before it was implemented, the Justice Department verified that that law wouldn't hurt people based on race or ethnicity or anything like that. Um, and so no states no longer have to do that. The 16 states that require excuses for absentee ballots, that is just, you know, in order to get uh, a ballot in the mail in any of those states, if you happen to live in one, that's going to be, you know, Texas, Alabama, uh, South Carolina again, uh, Missouri. There's a list pre-written up by the uh, state legislature that says you need one of these excuses on our list to qualify for an absentee ballot. And that can be anything from I have to work or uh, I'll be out of the country and things like that. Other states, there's no excuse needed. You can just ask for one. Our next guest, Joseph uh, Williams is here. Can you give me five more minutes? We, we, uh, Brittany forgot to hit the record button. It's her fault. I, I did. I forgot to hit the record button. I'm so ashamed. Can you, I, I would love you to, uh, chime in here if you want, which is, I, but I, I don't, uh, want to be rude to, to Brittany. And, uh, can you give, can you give us, let me unmute you, uh, for one second there. Can you, uh, give me five more minutes with Brittany? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. She she it's her fault. She didn't hit the she didn't hit the record. <laughs> I'm, I'm never wrong. I'm never wrong. I'll leave you unmuted because you you're a brilliant writer and a brilliant reporter, and you know all about this. So this is what Chief Justice John G. Roberts wrote for the majority. Our country has changed. This is in the Shelby decision. Our country has changed. Well, any racial discrimination in voting is too much. 
Congress must ensure that the legislation it passes to remedy that problem speaks to current conditions. So when he wrote the Shelby decision, I don't know if he wrote the, the majority opinion, but he was basically saying there's, there's no problem in the old Confederacy when it comes to voting, right? That, that those, the, the racism that existed in 1965 has disappeared. They're not trying to make it harder for African Americans to vote. Yeah, that that's what's so interesting about uh, you know what what he wrote there, and everyone cites back to that line, uh, and you know maybe there's an essence of that that is true at the time of that decision, but you have to believe it's true because this preclearance uh, Department of Justice verification measure was in place, mm-hmm. and we have seen since that decision, you know, out, so Shelby County in Alabama brought this case that made it all the way up to the Supreme Court that rolled this back. 24 hours after that Supreme Court decision, Alabama implemented their voter ID law, which we right. know um, disproportionately affects um, bl- uh, black people living in Alabama. It also disproportionately affects rural people. And if preclearance was still in place, that law would not have been allowed to be implemented because of how it's discriminated. And what's interesting about Alabama, just add another layer to what they did that uh, the Justice Department did stop, but it had to stop it after the fact, is Alabama started closing down uh, DMV offices around the state in counties that had significant black populations. So, you know, in addition to now needing a voter ID to go vote, you know, the places where you would get a pre-approved voter ID, because uh, not all IDs are equal in the voter ID law system, uh, you know, either your office was closed and you had to go farther than you would have normally had to, or the office had reduced hours, so you were going there, you know, may, you could only get an ID maybe from like 12 to 2 p.m. on a Thursday, something right. like that. And, you know, the Justice Department, inter- you know, interfered with that after the fact, but with pre-clearance, they could have done it before anyone was affected. You write about... Uh, the 2000 election. Yes. Where we thought, okay, this is never going to happen again. And we passed the Help America Vote Act. There was never going to re- be a repeat of Gore v. Bush. Where did that money go? How much money was allocated and where did it go? Well, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but states are still getting money from the Help America Vote Act. Uh, the last um, disbursement of funds or possibility to request and get funds dispersed was actually just December of last year. And that money is coming into states. Where does it go? Where does it go? Um, mostly where it's gone is voting machines, um, which is n- you know, central to the idea of what happened in, you know, Bush v. Uh, Gore and what happened in Florida was a machine problem and the hanging chads. Um, but what we're kind of seeing now is our problems aren't machine based. Our problems are really communication based and these new laws that have caused additional problems and additional layers of uh, confusion in the system. Right. Um, so, you know, uh, where to go mostly to machines, the machines. Yeah, and they're proprietary voting machines, which have softwares that even the states don't operate. They have private companies that operate these machines and things like that. And to to examine them, you're violating trade secrets. Yeah, in in a way. And, you know, if something does go wrong, a state would have to call that private company to help them out. The state can't be autonomous in that by themselves. Jimmy Carter, who travels all, all around the world verifying elections, what did he say about the American elections um i don't know but if you have his contact info tell him to give me a call okay. to write about that i, I believe he um, I, be, I believe he said he could not verify 
an American election. Before you go, you have this piece over the American prospect is so great. It's entitled The Many Varieties of Voter Suppression. We, we hear about Russia hacking into our system. We're worried about that. But you say there are many advantages to this decentralized voting system. Because I keep thinking, you know, the Voting Rights Act is 65. It's time for the Justice Department to step in and say, no, this is how you're going to run the elections. But you write that actually it's better to have it decentralized. Why? Yeah. You know, there's definitely a lot of negatives. And we're seeing those negatives kind of multiply because of the Shelby Beholder decision uh, and because of the coronavirus and the situation. But one positive, you know, as we're worried about election interference from wherever, no one can hack the U.S. elections in one way. You can't make a code and then bring down the whole system. Right. You have to, you would have to hack, you know, thousands of elections across the country to eat and you know you're doing that one at a time i guess you could be hyper targeted and get like 10 counties in michigan and 10 in pennsylvania but that's still a lot more than one code and one system and so that's a that's a benefit and you have to think too the united states is enormous and you kind of want a more tailored uh policy in certain places and others I just to add some worst case scenarios to what's already going on. You have to think in November, if we still have the coronavirus, California needs to go vote. But in Southern California, there's a wildfire. Who knows how to deal with wildfires better than the governor and officials elected in California? You have to think a place like Wyoming, where they have or in the middle of the United States, where it's very rural. They're really dependent on the Postal Service. You have, uh, you know, Native American tribes that still vote and participate and need specialized support in that way. You want the elected officials in those states being able to tailor to their communities. You know, Florida and a hurricane in November, like you can just keep going. So there are some positives, um, but it's 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 counterintuitive because, you know, we're we're told we all hate each other. We're so divided. (laughs) But that may be our saving grace. The idea of Trump turning into a fascist dictator is impossible because we hate everything and everyone. (laughs) It's almost healthy if we embrace it if we em- embrace the division and you know don't hurt anybody but maybe that's what keeps our system safe maybe i don't know i'm just you know i'm trying <laughs> to be an optimist well this has been fantastic journalist Brittany gibson covers elections and voting rights over at the american prospect and you write some of your pieces with the pulitzer foundation they've helped you Yes, the Pulitzer Center actually funded my traveling for the the primary. So uh, I was in South Carolina, Alabama. Uh, so I was in Alabama when everyone was thinking about California. And then I was in Missouri when everyone was thinking about Michigan. Uh, and they support uh, reporting uh, locally and internationally uh, for underreported stories. Uh, and then, you know, little did I know Trump would start t- tweeting about <laughs> these underreported, you know, technical procedural parts of voting and mail-in ballots and made it a not no longer an underreported story but the pulitzer center helps support all of this reporting and this longer feature that we've been talking about. how can people contact you are you on twitter yes i am on twitter at uh britney uh a gibson b-r-i-t-t-t-a-n-y um uh, on Twitter, uh, and you can find all my email and contact and all my stories at uh, prospect.org. I will link to it. Thank you so much, and uh, you're, I hope you come back. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank stay, you for Stay on me. the line for one second.
You're listening to The David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized humps. And yes, yes, the record button has been pressed. Oh. Well, Joseph P. Williams is senior editor for U.S. News and World Report, and his most recent piece is entitled... Poor water access heightens coronavirus threat for many Americans. Thank you for joining us, Joseph. Yeah, nice to be here. Not exactly a thrilling headline, but... Uh, it was for it me. <laughs> it was for me. And I've asked Brittany to stay with us because I, I kind of uh, screwed the pooch, as the astronauts say. I, I hit the wrong button. And uh, so you can... Uh, you, you were saying something during the break about voting rights, Joe. Well, yeah, I was saying that uh, I was listening in on your discussion uh, with Brittany, and I remember reading a story in the Post uh, this morning talking about how Democrats are worried not just about polling places being closed down, but about how if the pandemic has a rebound, as a lot of people are expecting, that that could portend some really bad news at the polls like it did in Wisconsin during the Democratic primary, where you had a three-judge panel in Wisconsin ruling that in-person voting had to take place and putting even more restrictions on absentee and mail-in voting. Um, and uh, before I became a public health reporter, I was covering voting rights, uh, and I covered the Supreme Court. And this is a case that's probably going, you know, these kind of, uh, of iterations are probably going to make it all the way up there. And who knows what's exactly going to happen if there are, if there is a rebound, and if there are states that, with Republican-run states that will restrict voting, how are we going to make those ballots count and how are things going to progress from there? I mean, it's just really got huge potential for, for a nightmare scenario that makes Bush v. Gore look like uh, tiddlywinks. Well, it's got to be a nightmare scenario because it's Donald Trump. So if he doesn't win, it's voter fraud and it it'll have to go to the Supreme Court. It'll just be one lawsuit after another. Brittany, do you foresee uh, an election in November that's all mail-in ballots, or do you, do you see people lining up to get the virus? Um, yes. Yes, and. <laughs> yes, no. um, it You know, it really is going to depend where you live, what your options are, and then, you know, everyone's going to make a personal decision about what risks they're willing to put themselves out to. But, you know, speaking of Bush v. Gore, one reason I end my story thinking about, you know, the presidential election 20 years ago is that was the most recent time that one state's procedures and one state's, um, you know, way of running the election held back the whole country. And so, you know, looking ahead to uh, November, you have to think that there's going to be more than one state that is not making the proactive decisions right now to give people as many options as possible or to, you know, make voting happen as smoothly as possible. And so, you know, like you just said, it'll be Bush v. Gore, but multiplied, not just because of Trump, but because it'll be multiple states that can hold the whole country's results back. Joe, well, and we've been, so we've been sort of moving towards that over the last couple of decades anyway. I mean, as things have become more polarized and as populations have shifted, the Electoral College kind of has shifted to where it it matters more than it ever did before because you have population centers that are basically foregone conclusions. And so because the Electoral College matters more, swing states matter more. And because swing states matter more, swing states with uh, either Republican-led legislatures split uh, uh, between a Democrat and, and, and Republican-controlled legislatures or Republican-controlled in their entirety 
that's where the rubber hits the road, right, for voting laws, because you have to make sure that the vote is fair and, and equal. And I think, as Brittany said earlier, uh, Democrats have been kind of neutral about this, and now they're starting to recognize that, that this has become very much a flashpoint and a, and, a, and a point of tension in the upcoming election, as it was in a, a point of contention in past elections. And uh, Republicans are being very aggressive. I mean, the, the three-judge panel in Wisconsin, they made no bones about the fact that this was a a, a very I don't I hesitate to say partisan, but but it was. I mean, you had the, the the two Republicans voting yes, people should vote in person during a pandemic, and the one one Democrat on the on the panel said, well, this is kind of preposterous. Why are we putting people in harm's way when there's a very acceptable solution? And and Republicans are kind of walking past places uh, like Oregon and Idaho where there is consistent mail-in voting and Republican-led states to just kind of lock in this argument that anything that's other than in-person voting is a fraud. And, oh, by the way, we're on the lookout for for voter fraud at the polling place. So you kind of have like a vice where a uh, pincer move where, where you have these this conversions of, of unfortunate events that could lead to real, real headaches uh, five months from now. Okay, I'm trying to understand this because it's a little confusing. In Brittany's piece for the American Prospect, she says that it is not axiomatic that mail-in ballots spell doom for the GOP. She says, you know, look at Utah. They have, you know, Mitt Romney, and they have plenty of other Republicans who win through mail-in ballots. But they, I don't think of Utah the same way I think of Wisconsin or the swing states that have uh, people of color voting there. And uh, that I, I would assume that if you target people of color, you're going to hurt the Democratic Party, right? That's the the idea behind fighting mail-in ballots, right? Well, it's it. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, but but I, I was thinking about and and I I, I apologize for stepping in, Brittany. Um, but I was thinking also about Florida. You can make a, a, an argument a step further there, where you have a, a, a judge overturning. Uh, rather, a governor working to overturn a law that allows felons to vote after being after serving their sentences, and it's not a guarantee that it will help Democrats. It just is. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's maybe the conventional wisdom that expanding access uh, does help Democrats, just because of, um, as I was saying earlier, uh, statistics about demographics and younger voters and uh, racial and ethnic minorities supporting Democrats. But there's not really a guarantee that they'll turn out to vote. And- I find that I don't mean to interrupt you. I find this very confusing, and I apologize. <laughs> Because That's all of American elections, though. It's all very confusing. Well, everything I believe, you know, I like to break things down. The Republicans believe this. The Democrats believe that. And voter suppression is all about suppressing the the African-American vote. And that way uh, the Democrats don't win. But Joe just brought up uh, Florida, which has given the, the right to vote to ex-felons and and then it was, I believe it was a referendum. I think the people of Florida yeah. voted for it, and then the Republicans... They voted for it almost overwhelmingly, almost by 60-65%. They were in favor of restoring the franchise to people who have completed their sentences. But I think a lot of what you're, what, what's throwing the confusion in here is that we're, we're locked into a certain amount of conventional wisdom, right? I mean, that, that yes, 
uh, definitely voter uh, suppression does mostly focus on people and communities of color, while expanding the franchise is granted almost without reservation to largely white communities. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the way they're going to vote. But it also means that, that we have uh, systems that probably need to be rethought and old political rivalries that probably don't apply in, in, in the literal anymore. They apply in the abstract and they apply, you know, statistically speaking. But in, 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 on the ground, the vote is the vote, right? I mean, you have a, a fair number of black people who don't vote. Uh, at all, because they feel like there's no distinction between the two political parties. Okay, so again, I when I read about Florida giving ex-felons the vote, I thought, well, that's it. Florida is no longer a, a swing state. It's going. It's just going to become a Democratic stronghold. It's going to be deep blue because ex-felons can vote. And I, I've been led to believe that ex-felons. Well, I think a lot of that belief. Am I, am, I, am I wrong to assume that ex-felons are, I mean, are they, do we know the percentage? I mean, they're disproportionately people of color. And well, I people would, incarcerate, incarceration rates typically target people of color. And those who finish their sentences and are re-eligible to vote, I don't have personal t- statistics on that or like statistic at my fingerprint at my fingertips. But because the incarceration rates are so high among communities of color, it is logical to assume that they would support uh, Democrats, especially after returning home from prison and being regranted the franchise. However, the problem is that you do have a lot of, of, of white collar criminals and a lot of white people, uh, lower income whites who, who are serving sentences on franchise on uh, fel- felony level convictions who want the right to, re- to, to to vote again? I mean, and, and expanding the franchise is is perfectly logical and acceptable for them as well as is for everybody. But you have uh, the, the locked in notions that the Republicans are fighting, and you also have what Brittany was talking about, where if, as long as you expand the right to vote to everybody, Republican ideas have to compete in the open marketplace. And when they compete, they aren't always guaranteed to lock in white voters, especially white voters who might have had some kind of a hardship or who might have had to go, go through something like incarceration. I mean, right. that's just a theory, but it, but it seems like it, it's something that might be legitimate based on the numbers that we know about. I asked yeah, Brittany. I oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Just to add to that, because I, when I was doing my reporting trip and went to Missouri, I went to St. Louis and Ferguson specifically, uh, nothing to do with incarceration, but just thinking about the black population there and the massive amount of organizing and community engagement that happened after the uh, Ferguson uh, mobilization. And I was really convinced that I would see in the, the primary this year, higher turnout in those communities in St. Louis County. And I even, you know, I was with Cori Bush and she was, she's um, running for U.S. Uh, Congress now for the house and she was a she was a ferguson activist and um, protester during that time and she basically said what joe just said you know if you even if you expand the right to vote even if you're reaching out and you're making these community connections if a voter doesn't feel motivated to go vote doesn't feel like there's a difference between the parties or their vote counts in the system and of course they're reading our stories and seeing all the ways your vote cannot be counted they're not going to go vote 
Um, right. You know, and she said specifically, you know, in a place like Ferguson, there's still a lot of hurt and a lot of, um, you know, trauma that needs to be amended there. And I think that can kind of extend to a lot of U.S. history with the black community and the right to vote. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but in Ferguson, weren't there, wasn't there a candidate running for city council that didn't win or there's only there even four years after the Michael Brown uh, protest, there still isn't a black majority on the council? Isn't isn't that? Isn't yes. That the city council and there was also a mayor's race that was very, um, you know, competitive, I guess is the right word, with multiple black candidates and the, I believe is the incumbent or the white candidate still won. Um, but they did have one electoral kind of um, uh you know, mobilization post Ferguson. And that was with Wesley Bell, who's the district attorney who really turned people out. But besides him, uh, you know, the people I talked to there when I was on the ground ahead of their primary, other academics and organizers, they basically said the only time they've seen people really mobilize to get out to vote where they live, uh, where they are, uh, was when Obama ran in a wait. Uh, there was a little bit more, uh, sorry, a little bit less, but still in- enthusiastic in 2012. But then, you know, after that, and even after Ferguson, all the organizing that went on during that time, and and, and even to, net, to today, you know, that turnout, that transition from organizing or uh, community uh, engagement to the electoral system just has not happened. Is is Ferguson primarily an African American yes. community, and yet? Yeah. Their city council is white. Is that because the, the 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 black vote is just split among so many people when um, they run for city council? They have. When I was there, that's what they told me. The case was with their mayor's race. Uh, their mayor's race. There were multiple black candidates that split, possibly split, split right. a more progressive vote. Uh, but in terms of the, the city council, uh, I couldn't say for sure. Um, it m- probably is different in different races. Right. Well, and also this this kind of touches on another area of concern for the election in the fall, especially when it comes to the House of Representatives, is that a lot of times you will have packing and cracking and redistricting that will concentrate the white vote and dilute the black vote. Now, I don't know if that's happened in Ferguson, but that seems to, to be some kind of a logical explanation for why you had a, a, a town that was the epicenter of, of Black Lives Matter and an epicenter of voting rights and a, a, a textbook example of how the vote and how adjusting the vote to, to guarantee white uh, control matters. And yet, almost eight, nine, ten years after after the fact, we still have problems. It takes a long time to unpack these things, and you still have a lot of people, a lot of, of, of powerful uh, influential people behind the scenes who can still control things in a way that that isn't apparent. And also the discouragement of, of African-American votes where Obama, I mean, one of the reasons why he did so well is that he overperformed. Um, Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election got about what a, de- what a white Democrat gets in a presidential election from the black vote. She trended about 87, 86 percent. Barack Obama was trending, or rather, she trended about 80%, give or take. And Barack Obama was heading towards 90%, which is remarkable. It's astounding. I mean, they basically protected his presidency. So it has to be above average participation in order for the African-American vote to really, really matter when you're trying to turn things around. Yeah, yeah I would I even add to that. I agree with everything Joe just said. The historical, um, you know, or the today's... Um, you know, uh, remnants of the historical separation of people through redlining, through housing. And that's a lot of the case in St. Louis. The 
uh, effects of redlining in the early 20th century, early mid 20th century is very visible today. It's people are separated, not just through the more creative uh, packing and cracking and gerrymandering, but even just the history of it all. Right, right. I'm shocked by uh, Biden's success within the African-American community. I was convinced living in Manhattan in my bubble <laughs> that he was going to go down to South Carolina and, yeah, he didn't make it to the Pettus Bridge. But, you know, it's Bernie and and there are pictures of him being a, a arrested, you know, fighting for the rights of African-Americans in Chicago. And Joe Biden is, you know, a notorious racist. He was against busing. But then Clyburn, you know, put his thumb on the scale and said, vote for Joe. Or is that true? Were they going to vote for Joe with or without Clyburn endorsing him? How important was Clyburn's endorsement in South Carolina for, for Joe Biden? Oh, it was extremely important in South Carolina. Uh, I believe the exit poll that day said about 50%, maybe more, made their decision on who to vote for because of Clyburn's endorsement. Really? Um, you know, I organizing-wise, I was just there, uh, you know, the few days leading up to the primary and the day of the, the voting. Um, but, you know, I was in... Charleston and Columbia, Bernie's office was huge. It seemed like he had so many volunteers. Um, you know, at the time, too, Tom Steyer had a pretty big presence. You couldn't drive anywhere without seeing the Tom Steyer posters everywhere. Um, you know, Warren was still around. I didn't really see much of Buttigieg. And Biden was kind of in that camp where he had a small office. I didn't see too much of him. I don't think many people saw too much of him before the uh, actual primary day as well, but uh, Clyburn's endorsement was huge. Um, I think if you were judging by the metrics before of people on the ground and flyers and uh, people phone banking and knocking doors for you, you would think that Bernie had the advantage. And I think some polls even said he was close or might have won. Joe, could you, could you speak to this in terms of sure. the consultant class? What is the consultant class? Here you have Joe Biden winning South Carolina, no money. He had zero money. All he needed was Clyburn. So do you need to raise all this money to run for office if you have somebody who, like Trump, didn't need that much money to get the nomination in 2016? And Joe had no money, and he won South Carolina because Clyburn spoke up. Do we need this much money in politics? Um. I personally, as a philosophy, would say no, but in the modern era of Citizens United, the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, having no money is is a distinct disadvantage, and the one thing that, that Biden had going for him is name recognition, number one, or uh, I should say two things that he had going for him, is name recognition, number one, and number two, he's Barack Obama's wingman. Yeah. And say what you will about the African-American vote. They are stalwart and they are pragmatic, if nothing else. Uh, they probably had to hold their nose. Some of them had to hold their nose to vote for Joe Biden. But they also knew that this this man was somebody who had name recognition and could expand uh, his his popularity outside the country, as opposed to taking a chance on on uh Bernie taking a chance on Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg. Those were all candidates that kind of had outside, well, with possible exception of Bernie, possibly had outsider status, certainly in the black community. And as African-American voters, we know that sometimes half a loaf beats being hungry. And right. uh, in a lot of ways, I think that's what got Joe Biden over the top, is they wanted to guarantee a victory. The establishment uh, Democratic class, 
put its name out there and said, listen, go for this guy. And the people responded. All right. So, boy, I'm, I'm learning a lot right now. A lot of things that I accept as just received wisdom from the, the, the gods is I don't know what to believe anymore. Here's what I know as a Bernie supporter, that the African-American community in South Carolina was wrong. They shouldn't they shouldn't have listened to Clyburn. They should have listened to me and to Bernie, that Bernie is their friend and that Biden is a racist, inveterate racist, you know, uh, Past- See, here's, here's the problem. Here's the problem with 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 that scenario. I mean, yes, uh, Biden has a a bit of a troubled history. I mean, if you even set aside his his, his positions on busing, the whole Anita Hill imbroglio was kind of distasteful to a lot of people. But you also have to understand that when black voter where black voters are concerned, it is about pragmatism. It is about seeing somebody who you think will he may not set the world on fire, but he's going to come through for you. And as far as um, as far as um, Bernie uh, was concerned, you had a very distinct split between older black voters and younger black voters. And all the demographics show that if you're under 30 or under 40, in some cases, you are less likely to go to the polls than you are if you're 45 to maybe 60 or 65. Older people vote. Older black people vote a lot. And Bernie was not reaching those people. He reached the young people who were very uh, fickle about about their vote. I mean, and statistics bear that out. So I don't know if it's, if it was a matter of his politics, but certainly it was a matter of the people who voted carried Joe Biden over the top and the people who didn't didn't come through for Bernie. So here's something else that I know as as a as a Bernie supporter that uh, I've learned to dislike Barack Obama. I loved him. I loved Barack Obama. My mother has his Christmas cards on her bureau with the kids. And if you, you know, if you say anything bad about Barack, but I've come out of the four years of Trump thinking it's Barack Obama's fault. He's a neoliberal. He ended up with a $14 million home on Martha's Vineyard. And kind of like what Trump said, uh, that that African-Americans are taken for granted in the Democratic Party. It's like, where else are you going to go? So we have your vote. We don't have to do anything for you. And I'm convinced that under Barack Obama, things didn't get better for the African-American community. Income inequality got worse. And that he was a scold. He told young African-Americans to pull up their pants and, and blame yourself. Is that true? I mean, that's kind of, uh, I'm a Bernie bro. I'm a Bernie bro. And, you know, people, uh, my friends will say, yeah, that's true, that Barack Obama wasn't really good for the African-American community, other than being a pretty great role model. And there's a lot to be said for that. But is that is that true? Well, I, I, I mean, uh, Brittany may, may disagree with me on this, but I think that certainly he was a transformational figure, even if he wasn't a transformative figure. Um, a lot of the systems that keep African-Americans in check and don't allow for the advancement wholesale of, 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 of the community are baked into the United States. A lot of them are, are institutions and, and norms and, and laws that are difficult to move under the best of circumstances. Right. Uh, and I think that, that Barack Obama was walking a tightrope. Now, mind you, he was not a perfect president by any stretch of the imagination. None of them are. 
But when you look at what uh, the institutions that were, that he was pushing against. Uh, Ferguson, and, for, I hate to interrupt you, but I mean, I was shocked that the Justice Department did a, a, a report. I think there's a cons- there was a consent decree under Obama's Justice Department with the city of Ferguson. The, the, the Justice Department said that Ferguson was running a shakedown operation, that instead of raising taxes, they they did what goes on in too many communities they used african americans as a source of income get them into the because system they were because they were doing that and that's a part and parcel of what was happening in florida right. in florida the right to vote was contingent upon paying money right upon paying restitution to fines and so on and so forth which amounted to a poll tax which is one of the reasons why a lot of people decided that this a lot of voters decided that this was untenable and why one, at least one judge has decided yes this was legit to overturn it, and the governor does not have the power to reinstate this no matter what he says. And, and again, that points to what I'm talking about. The institution in Florida, the governor's office, wanted to ensure that felons did not vote. You know, he wanted yeah. to do that. In Congress, when Barack Obama was president, even when he had a Democratic Congress, a Democratic majority in the House and the Senate, and you had a lot of people pushing back against the Affordable Care Act, and many of them were Democrats. Um, you go back to to judges. You go back to you know when when Mitch McConnell historically blocked a judge. I mean, did something that was never done before when they assured him that he would be a one term president. Now, mind you, none of this is making excuses for his his performance, but certainly it's it's, it's try to explain that a lot of the institutions that are withholding. Uh, uh, advancement for the black community are baked into the country and it will take more than one president to move them and it will take more than one uh, democratic house or congress to move them it will take more than democrats to move them and so i think that if on balance you suggest you you say that barack obama did not do enough for african americans i would tend to agree with you but looking at the big picture i understand he couldn't but he i understand and he very famously also said I can't be president of, of, of black America, um, which is kind of the inverse of what Trump is, who is president of a very small segment of the Republican Party. Now, mind you, that party, that segment has a lot of power and it has a big microphone. But President Trump is kind of doing exactly what Obama could not do. In that is he's representing a very small but vocal minority that has very specific needs. And he's speaking to those needs in a way that Obama could not. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Oh, I would, go ahead. I'm sorry. I would agree with Joe, I think, on the uh, the big picture stuff. But what I will say about uh, his presidency and, you know, the impact he's had, maybe if you look now at policies, uh, you know, domestic and foreign, you know, African-American and for the country as a whole, not much has been able to escape, you know, Trump's determination to reverse a lot of those, any positives at all. Um, but, you know, what I really learned uh, on my reporting trip and continuing reporting on voter suppression is for, you know, black voters in the United States, especially older black voters, especially voters who have had uh, problems with, uh, you know, their voter ID, with suppression happening at the, like, the smallest levels of their local government. Uh, I spoke to, I think he was like maybe 70 or 80 year old African-American man in South Carolina when I was down there. And he was telling me about voter suppression in his city level election when he was in his like 20 or 30s in rural South Carolina. And, you know, having to organize and combat against that system and fight for his fair, you know, piece of our democracy, have his voice heard, you know, one person, one vote, which a lot of people take for granted. And he told me about you know, crying the night that Barack Obama won in 2008 and feeling like 
in that moment, there was hope and there was an equal playing field to some degree. Like, even if it wasn't entirely fair, entirely equal, you know, the highest office could be reached by anyone at that time. Right. Symbolically, it's beyond peril. I mean, and, exactly. and the other thing that I would that I would say to, to, to Brittany's point is um, fantastic. I don't know if you've read it, but it's by Carol Anderson called No One Person, No Vote. Voter suppression tactics have been happening in this country since its inception. I mean, since the beginning of this country, people and, and people in charge have, have tried to. Only 5% of Americans voted in the first presidential election. Only right, we're election. talking, we're talking about, we're talking about laws at the local level. We're talking about federal laws. We're talking about federal rulings. We're talking about court rulings in elections ranging from municipal elections all the way to the presidential election. There has been a tendency in this country by the powers, by the people who are in charge, who tend to be conservatives, to restrict the vote no matter what. And, and, and it does go from poll taxes all the way to polling stations being closed on election day in Wisconsin three months ago or two months ago. Right. Um, right. So voter suppression is nothing new. Fighting it has been constant and consistent and hasn't always achieved the results that we've wanted. But certainly it is something that probably is not going to go away no matter who is president. Right, right. My anger towards Barack Obama, I need to explore this. We have to wrap it up. Uh, this is, this. by the way, uh, Phil, spiritually for me, I made a mistake. I forgot to hit the record button. But I'm old enough to know that there, that spiritually there's a reason these things happen. And I just went I just went into the the skid and this turned out to be fantastic. We didn't get to discuss Joe's piece for US News and World Report about potable drinking water in the age of COVID-19. So I'm going to have to beg you to come back. But uh, I I was smart enough to just go with the mistake, and it turned out to to be very valuable. I have a I have to, you know, I with Bernie, I just am I just know what I know about Bernie, and I'm so uh, convinced that Joe Biden is a disaster, and that Barack Obama is to blame for Joe Biden, and that. Uh, but I do remember voting for Hillary in 2000. I voted for Bernie in the primaries, but I do remember thinking, you know, uh, Martin, Martin Luther King was against incrementalism, but Barack always said the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. I think he was quoting uh, Martin Luther King. I think had Hillary gotten elected, we would have seen a, a permanent end to private prisons and she is a, a politician and she would have moved further and further people are going to get pissed off for my saying this i think she could have been pushed to the left even though she was a neoliberal hawk i think there was enough you know like roosevelt said to uh to the left make me do it you know, she said that to A. Phil Randolph. Right. But, but see, here's, here's, here's a question for you, David. I mean, do you believe that Joe Biden can't be pushed to the left? Like, I, you, I, like Hillary might have been might have been able to. I'm re- See, this is the season of uh, reconciliation and peace, I hope. Uh, I hate Joe Biden. I hate him. But, uh, you know, uh, they're 
couple of months left to to the uh, general election. Right now, I guess I do think he's a political animal. Uh, Do you think he would resist being pushed to the left? I don't think he's going to give us Medicare for all. I don't think even if if he was pushed to do so. I think he's getting a lot of money from the health insurance companies. I, I don't think he's going to put the health insurance companies out of business. They've put him in the Oval Office. They're paying. They've paid. You know, for him, I don't think he's going to help the unions. I think he's in the pocket of union busting attorneys. Hmm. I would say one thing. I think on... he's going to put a, a sweet face to hmm. to it. Go ahead. Bring oh, on. sorry. Just one thing on you know in, uh, the impact if Joe Biden is president, uh, whether he's persuadable or not. There's no reason why Bernie's argument of you know send everyone to Mitch McConnell's backyard would not still be uh, a possibility for the left-wing part of the party that he's mobilized, and even Elizabeth Warren as well, um, you know, getting people to either run for office or just participate in a level they hadn't before. Um, you know, I don't know whether Joe Biden's persuadable or not, but because I, I don't know him, but you have to think that all the mobilization that happened during the primaries for all, all 30 candidates that ran, that won't just go away and you'll be left with the Biden supporters, you know? You'd have to think that all those people are they're still aware of what's going on. They still have opinions and they still are going to vote They're whether they they use their power down ballot or at the presidency. And they'll be writing Biden in a letter every day. I want, you know, X, Y, Z thing. Let me ask. Let's end on this. Thank you so much. I just said I hate Joe Biden and I start, you know, I hate Barack and, you know, I hate I hate if we had mandatory voting in this country, we're. You have to vote or you get a fine the way they do in Australia. Would we rise above hatred? It seems to me you have to animate the voter in America to get them. You got to hate somebody. Got to hate the gays. Got to hate the blacks. Got to hate the Mexicans, the Muslims. Got to hate the elite liberals. You got. I can't get the vote out until I find a scapegoat. But if everybody had a vote, you wouldn't hear so much hatred, right? Because hatred is what gets you up off the couch and gets you to the the voting booth. Is there any, what do you think? If we had mandatory, if we made everybody vote, we could maybe have a, a calmer election season without so much hostility. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I mean, for, for open. Well, years. then I hate you. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> and I hate myself. <laughs> So I, 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 I would look at Australia. I mean, as a case, as a, case, a textbook example, right? Mandatory voting. They still elected a populist who doesn't like immigrants. Uh, they still elected a populist who wanted to send all the refugees back to where they came from. They right. still have a populist who created an island for uh, displaced people because he didn't want them on Australian soil. So I don't think a mandatory voting would be a panacea so much. I think also that people have to be engaged. And it's not just getting off your couch to hate because you hate the other person, because that certainly didn't work in, in, in 2016, because there were plenty of people who hated Donald Trump who did not vote. I think people have to be in, I mean, this, this is hokey and this is me with my, you know, uh, I see an American flag in my mind fluttering in the background as I say this, but you know, people have to be inspired. They have to be, uh, energized and they have to understand this, that they're participating in. And I think this is one of the geniuses, say what you will about the president, but in his campaign, at least one of the geniuses in marketing of Barack Obama was that he, he made people feel like there was something 
they're participating in something larger than themselves. And I think that that is something that everybody relates to. And it's something that's really hard to combat with hate. Right. Yeah. I would agree with that too. And Italy is another example where it's mandatory to vote. Populist leaders, right-wing leaders are still elected and running the country today. Uh, similar kind of anti-immigrant or refugee rhetoric and things like that. Um, and so the, the hatred isn't necessarily going to go away in that way. Uh, and just to piggyback off of what uh, Joe has said, you know, Barack Obama inspired people a lot. I think in the current election, just as I'm following press releases from the campaigns and their own tweets and apps and things like that, um, even as Trump is being very hateful, he has a different kind of energy and inspiration that he's sending to obviously his very small percentage of or not very small, but his very specific percentage of supporters in the country. And there's always the call to action with what he's sending out to his supporters. Um, you know, obviously, there are different consequences to his different many different calls. Um, but, you know, as he's reaching out to people, whether he's doing his fundraising emails or just his press release anti-Biden emails, there's always a call to action to his supporters to energize them and make them feel like they're part of this bigger thing. Obviously, it's for Trump's cause, which is maybe completely antithetical to Obama's 08 Mm -hmm. campaign. Um, (laughs) There's probably different sides of the mirror there. But, um, you know, where Joe Biden uh, is much calmer, less, uh, you know, obviously in the primary, he wasn't campaigning in every state. He wasn't the, he wasn't the Bernie rallier with thousands of people in every location or even Elizabeth Warren with the thousands of selfies at the end of every event. And so, you know, when it comes to motivations, it can be a message of love and hope or it can be a message of hate and, you know, against certain demographics. But that call to action, that energy and inspiration is tends to, you know, be what makes a successful campaign. That is Brittany Gibson, she writes for the American Prospect. Her latest piece over there is Voting Rights Lawsuits Multiply Across the Country. And we've been talking with uh, Joe Williams, who is a Joseph P. Williams. He's senior editor. Of, I, I can call you Joe. <laughs> or just, okay. You are the uh, I just want you to know that you are the senior editor over at U.S. News and World Report. And your piece about the coronavirus and potable drinking water. I hope you'll come back so we can discuss that. Coming up, we have Dave Cyrus and Shahid Batar is running to unseat Nancy Pelosi. He's a Democratic Socialist, and he's coming up. Maybe I can convince Joseph and Brittany to stick around and help me grill Shahid Batar. (laughs) Stay with me. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Dave Cyrus. Dave Cyrus is here. (laughs) I'm sorry, we only have to the end of the theme song to do this. I hope you appreciate how good my mic is. I do. I am so sorry. Dave Cyrus, screenwriter Dave Cyrus. You are having the most amazing year. You just wrote a screenplay that was directed by Judd Apatow and 
You're just cleaning up in show business. And we're repeating the same crime that I committed last week. I had you on the show last week, and we... we this is classic recidivism. When yeah, there is no... When there is no penalty, when we get rid of three strikes, look what happens. Yeah. This is what happened, Dave Cyrus. You were scheduled, and uh, I had Brittany Gibson on from the American Prospect. Professor Harvey J. K., let me unmute you. And things were going really well. I was on schedule. I was just going, man, you, you just have it. You just figured it out. You're doing so well. And... Uh, I'm interviewing Brittany, and it's just going like clockwork. I feel like an air traffic controller who forgot to hit the record button. I did a 20-minute interview, and I forgot to hit the record button. You did? Yes. So we had a... Oh, Jesus. I know. I know. And I was mad at myself. The ri- when, when it's your fault, and, and, and it's in front of the listeners who are here, and... Like I had two choices. One is pretend I hit the record button and just tell Brittany. And yet you kept going. Yet you continued interviewing. Oh no 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 no! We started again. No 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 no! I there were two things I could have done. If I were smart, I would have, you know, if I were like Dave Cyrus, who's a creature of Hollywood, Professor Harvey J.K. What I would have done is I would have thanked Brittany. Not told anybody that I forgot to hit the record button and hope that Brittany doesn't listen to the show and wouldn't notice that she wasn't on. Or if she called me, I'd say, yeah, we had a time. We had a time issue. Let's just get to the point. What did you talk about? We talked about my forgetting to hit the record button. We talked about (laughs) voting rights. We mostly lectured them about how black people should feel. Essentially, that's what I got out of it. Okay. That's not what I I said. I'm a Bernie bro. I was asked to tell him the gist. That's not what I said, that I have certain preconceived notions about what is best for America. And listen, here's a quiz. How do you spell gist? G-I-S-T. Did you both say the same thing? No, no, G-I-S-T. G-I-S-T. Okay. The G is silent. Or no, it's soft. The G is soft. Okay. So, Dave, we're waiting for Shahid Buttar to come in. Hopefully, oh, is that what we're doing? I'm sorry? We're just, we're just killing time. I, you're like my younger brother, so I can abuse you. Dave, are you in L.A.? New York, Brooklyn. Oh, good. I'm Brooklyn. Great. Yes, South Brooklyn, the real Brooklyn, the kind no one wants to live in. So what is that area of cold that you're, at, you're in? Midwood. Yeah, Midwood, sure. Oh, yeah. I, once upon a time, I was going out with a girl from Midwood. Back. Like, Let me guess. Arranged? <laughs> no. This, we're is talking one of those? 19, this is 19. You shake hands before 70, the marriage? No, 60, 68, maybe something like that. I can't remember. Oh, so, yeah, right. So back then when there actually were some people who were not in arranged marriages. Okay. Hey, let's do this. Because we're going to gone over that way. Let's, what, we're going to, yeah, I'm going to. It's all orthodox. Okay. Let, let, no let, us, let us do this. Let us do this. Let me. We're talking about Jewish demographics, David. I'm waiting for Shahid Batar to come in. We Dave, know. Okay. So tell me how you're doing and. I'll make this up to you, I promise. How are you doing? I'm fantastic, David. I'm just great. How's your when does your movie how do, when does your movie come out? 
It comes out June 12th. That's like in two weeks. Now, you said something last week. You said that comedy is never coming back. No, Shane no, Gillis. Remember Shane Gillis? I do. He was on SNL or he was supposed to be on SNL. What happened to him? Uh, he was going to be on SNL and then people started uh, background checking his old uh, podcasts and decided that it was too uh, uh, culturally insensitive. Right. And if I if I have to be honest, I would say the reason that Shane Gillis got fired was not exactly because of the exact content of what was in that podcast, but it was more about the the lack of irony that people saw in it. Right. Well, he was stand up is coming back. Stand up is coming. I got a, a, a notification that Shane Gillis is performing in Missouri next month. That the, the comedy clubs are reopening, and, and we'll see how long that lasts. Because and we'll see how many people are going. Because yeah, a lot of people in Missouri might want to go to a show, but I uh, I'm not that confident that this is just going to reopen and everyone's just going to be going to clubs and movie theaters like it's nothing again. I think that a lot of people are trying to uh, have a, a protest show, and if people get sick because of it, then they're kind of responsible, aren't they? I don't know, even but you, not, you painted... Not, not, you I'm paint, not legally, necessarily, but it just seems, you know, dangerous. You painted such a, a horrible picture of the future for entertainment. And Well, I don't think that crowds can safely exist yet. But And I think the people who are trying to force them to exist are, are going to get people killed. Yeah, but it's Shane Gillis and his fans. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a problem with Shane, but I do think, I mean, I've, it's a very complicated thing where I think that, uh, I think that people saw Shane's, uh, what people called racism. I'm not going to say it was racism, but what people saw him say that was offensive, they didn't see it as like a guy, uh, flailing in a moment. They saw it as sort of a, a formula. And that's why people kind of condemned him for it. Yeah. Uh, because yeah, specifically, there was it seemed more formulaic than experimental. All right, let me ask you a question. Uh, you get an offer to to perform in Missouri for a lot of money. No, a lot of money. You mean now that there's a coronavirus? Yeah, but it's a lot of money. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't perform anywhere right now. I'd feel responsible if someone got killed. Suppose you had a fill-in for Shane Gillis, and the only people getting killed would be his fans. Yeah, no, I don't even want people I don't like to die from this. <laughs> and I don't think Shane's, I don't think Shane's fans are like Nazis necessarily. I don't know enough about them. Well, he's a victim now of the PC. It's not like we're talking about Infowars people, you know, where I have a much better idea of who they are. I think anybody who saw that video of him talking about the Asian community would think that he's a, a, a disgrace of a human being. I honestly just haven't listened to enough of his work. Oh, it's disgraceful. Oh, it's it's pretty. It's it's like, you know what it is. I I heard enough to say that what I meant, which which was that it seemed like it was more formulaic than experimental, and that was the sin. Yeah, he's almost as bad as that Cooper woman in in the in the Rambles. Call. Ah, yes, the Ramble. Uh, First of all, is it the Bramble, the Ramble, the Rambles? it is the Ramble, but it's it's often mispronounced as the Bramble because the because Bramble is an actual word that refers to what it is more often. But it specifically is called the Ramble, uh, without a B. Uh, 
And you know, the thing about that woman that was so screwed up, even compared to the other cases of how often this happens, was the acting. Like that this woman couldn't wait to put on uh, like uh, that, that fake uh, panic in her voice. I think that's what was so viscerally disturbing about that one. Yeah. And she and, said African-American. This is the thing that was yeah, so she's evil. she's not a racist. Yeah, she's not racist at all. She referred to him as the African-American man who, right. was, who wasn't actually threatening her. No, that actually is. That's, that's a whole, that is a central park racism right there. Right. That is Manhattan racism. Right. And, and, and the sense Please of... Please come kill this African-American. It, it's so easy to hate this woman because she has the sense of entitlement. She works for Franklin Templeton. She works portfolios so she picks stocks for people she works in the financial district and she just waved she used calling the police as a cudgel to 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 bend this guy if i you're, she's just say if i call the cops and say an african-american is bothering me you could end up dead and that's, that, that's so the smart about. that's the, that she was smart enough to call him an African-American, and she knew that the po- calling the police was enough to to scare a, a black man. That's just and evil. Wonder, it's evil. Was, that, was it just a matter of how out of touch she is? No, she's in touch. She knew exactly no, but, to say African-American. But, how, and but she, how could she not think she would lose everything in her life over this? She like, didn't know. She, she didn't know it was being recorded. No, he had a phone out. Yeah, I thought, but I thought she knew he was recording. I mean, yeah, no, but she didn't he's know. Recording me. He's like, he's recording me. Stop him. And it's like, lady, how do you not know how this movie ends? Like, you yeah, are now but... Cruella DeVille for like the next week and a half in America. Like, you're the you're the worst person alive until we're bored with the story. Like, how does she not? Like, it's like that. There was a story about that a few months ago where a guy was doing something similar because, you know, these happen every few days. And the guy's like nine year old kid was like, Dad, Dad, stop. You're going to be on the news. Like the kid knew the kid knew exactly what was going to happen. And it's like or like in in Minneapolis, uh, a few days later after the after the murder, uh, there was another case, a much less serious case, but still a case of racism using the police where a guy in a gym Called the police and said, there's a bunch of black men in my gym. I assume they shouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. And I was in Minnesota two days later. This is the day before all the protests. And right. once again, the guy sees himself getting recorded and he's, he's playing chicken. He's thinking, well, maybe I'll win this one. Maybe right. I'll get the cops to come here and they'll take the phone away because it's like, once the phone is on you, you're supposed to stop committing the crime. But you have rage issues, don't you? Yes. Well, don't you, don't you, when you're in a rage, don't you not think, don't you not think clearly and speak in double negatives? Perhaps, yeah. No, rage will definitely screw up your ability to put sentences together properly. It will uh, get that fight or flight going. I never thought of calling the police, but, you know, I'm not. But also, this guy wasn't even, he wasn't being provoked. He wasn't mad. He just started he just saw these guys in his gym and thought, I don't think you belong here. Yeah. Well, you know, she's a disgrace. So, so many people have said to me, this is a terrible thing to say, but so many people have said to me, how does she go on without, you know. Killing herself? Yeah. So many people have said that. How could you, how, 
It depends entirely on how much savings she has. If she's uh, if she doesn't need to get a new job for a long time, she probably is happy to just live in her Manhattan apartment and interact with a few people and, you know, just go on with their life. I mean, you know, the people who do this, chances are they don't have a lot of friends who are social justice people. Right. And they that dog, I guarantee you, they took the dog away. I guarantee you that yeah, they dog, the dog. I guarantee you the dog wants back in. I guarantee you the dog is racist, too. Well, that's what happens. The dog probably hates black people because they can read the minds of the owner and they start seeing, they start thinking that being black is the costume of being a criminal when they're being raised by owners who, who see, who feel the same way. I mean, the, the guy in, in Minnesota at that gym, this guy, you know, oh, they're like, oh, his, his life is ruined. This guy was already famous locally for starting a petition to rename a lake an Anglo name, not an American Indian name. They renamed this lake a native uh, word, you know, out of a modicum of respect for the people we took this land from. And he went door to door getting signatures saying, no one in this neighborhood is okay with an Indian name, his words. Uh so this guy was already like a racist activist. Yeah. Hey, I have a thing for the North to do. They're, they're, you know, we have to get rid of the Confederate statues down south. Oh. Right? See? Right? Yeah. Because I want, I drive, when I drive, I see like the Detective Bill Perry Bridge, the Officer Jack Patterson turnoff. I think we have to start renaming all these roads and rest stops that are named after police officers. I uh, want to know what they did. Yeah, I mean, renaming things in general is the... It's it's like using paper straws. It's really the least you can do. Yeah, but it's naming... Like, na- this idea of naming little, you know, off-ramps after police officers, I want to know their record before we... Uh, am I that. wrong in my assumption that that's usually because they died? Well, so did the Confederate generals. No, I know, but I'm just saying that. I'm oh, so you're saying this is a states' rights thing? These off no, ramps. Say, no, I'm saying like I when I see those like named after things, I assume it was someone who was like murdered or something. We I'm assume even, that, don't we? We we always I, assume I we yeah. always assume that we're going to name the uh, the Kelly off ramp after this detective because this is where his car drove off the road in pursuit of a criminal or he was shot. We don't know that. Well, we could look it up. I mean, it's not really the bravest thing to say. Hypothetical off-ramp doesn't have a good reason to name hypothetical cop after it. We always assume that, they, that, they, that they're naming it after a police officer who was killed in duty. Well, I mean, that's what you would assume right now. Yeah, but how, you know how many police officers are killed in duty? Not really. I, I don't know. But you you know, about two hundred a year, and most of them are traffic accidents or heart attacks. Okay, well, you know, I'm not happy about those either. I'm not I'm happy not, about it you're either. Not, but you're not going to push me into more dead cops, place, David. I'm not going. I'm not that kind of liberal. I'm just saying it's more dangerous <laughs> to be pulled over by a cop than to be a cop. I don't know if that's a one to one. Obviously, well, I, I more do. people are. I'd like to see some off ramps named after people who were killed by cops. Yeah, so would I. I'm saying I'm not. Obviously, it's more. It's there are more people killed by police officers than murdered police officers, as as far as I I know. But as a one to one, I don't think it's literally more dangerous to 
be pulled over once than to be a cop in general. Like, oh, you're saying it's more like, dangerous to be an electrician than it is. It, oh, yes, cop. that's actually true. Uh, a crabber, for example, also more dangerous. Fireman. I actually had a list of most dangerous jobs at one point. Um, but no, oh, you're saying like if, if a cop is pulling someone over who in that exact moment is more likely to get killed. Yes. The person being pulled over is more, more likely, likely to be killed. I yes. mean, that's probably true. Yeah, that it is true. Well, I'm waiting for Shahid Buttar to show Well, up. your whole plan of having to not give me time has, has fallen in your face. This is good. We're just vamping. Let me, let me ask, let me check in. I, I've sent a, uh, maybe he's, let me, uh, Professor Harvey JK, I sent an invitation to Shahid. Yeah. And, uh, Are you sure Shahid is not here trying to get in? Well, raise your hand if you're in the audience, Shahid. Hey, look All at right. This. Okay. That's okay. Well, okay. We anyway, can have him back this. Monday. We, we have to still talk to me and Professor J.K. No, we, 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 see, now you were so concerned that you were going to get bumped. But it turns out I needed you. I wasn't concerned. You were relieved. Yes. Uh, Harvey, your, your mic's off. Oh. Uh, I think he's trying to... What, so what, I think we'll off. reschedule Shahid, right? I mean... Uh, did you well, just, did yeah, you just but, say one of the seven dirty words, Professor? Hart? Yes, there's really only six. What's what's the seven that that's allowable? Well, no, everyone knows that one of them is just reusing one of the other words. Oh, because it for symmetry. Carlin okay. explained it. Well, even in, even in the Supreme Court, he was like, "I still have to say the MF word because uh, otherwise the bit doesn't work." Well, why don't you be Shahid? Well, actually, Dave, why don't I interview, why don't, why don't I interview you? Okay. Let's keep uh, David out of the equation. Absolutely. So so you're living in Brooklyn. Where are you from? Um, I'm from here. I, I grew up uh, in Brooklyn and Jersey. And, oh, yeah, where uh, in Jersey were you? East Brunswick by uh, oh, Rutgers. I know East Brunswick well. Right, so you know Rutgers. You know the grease trucks, probably. Uh, That's where I used to hang out a lot. A t- <laughs> there was a place... Where'd you go to school? Syracuse. Syracuse. See what up? There was a place over just off campus, uh, Greasy Tony's. Still there? Uh, not that I know of. There was a. Th- we had the grease trucks, which were like yeah. eight giant food trucks in a circle. Okay, so why don't we do this? That were awesome. <laughs> why don't we do this? We're talking about sandwiches, David. Why doesn't Professor Harvey J.K. interview Dave Cyrus? He was in the middle of it, as though he was Shahid Buttar. Okay, yeah, let's do that. That's fine. That would be more I fun. Sh- I don't know Shad's hair. You know, he's now, work. first of all, am I? Uh, what is my gender? You don't know who Shahid Buttar is? No, no, I know the name. I just never actually he, he's, saw. A he's running. Of he's running against Nancy Pelosi. I knew that. Yeah, I never actually saw his picture, so I didn't want to assume. So why don't we ask? Should we take? Should we take it personally that he hasn't shown up? I thought uh, we were friends. So. I just want to say, look, if you want to, you want to take Nancy Pelosi's job, you don't show up late to things like the David Feldman podcast. That is a bad foot to start. Oh, wait a on. second. Did, did, I think he raised his hand. Shahid, are you in the room? Raise your hand again. No, he didn't. Let me, let me see here if he's, maybe this is him. Is this Shahid? Shahid, I unmuted. Is this you? That is a random. Phone number. Well, maybe he's coming yeah, in I'm, on a phone. I am very nervous. 
Oh. I'm very, I'm very nervous as to where this is going. This is a random phone number that somehow has connected us, and it. Oh, yeah, I don't know about this. All right. Well, I, want, yeah. I just want to say, to be clear, I want so badly for it to just the the video to start is just a penis. I want, I want so badly for this to be a podcast ruining moment. All right. Well, what, what, here we'll we'll play again. Well, as long as I'm interviewing Dave Cyrus, how about telling me what's the name of the film? What's the title of the film coming out? Oh, it's called The King of Staten Island. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it was oh, shot yeah. in Staten Island. Yeah. It's about Staten Island, and it's uh, it's basically uh, about uh, – it's a fictionalized version of Pete Davidson's life uh, that Judd Apatow uh, and I and Pete wrote together. And uh, it was going to be in theaters, of course, but we don't want to kill anyone. So we're going to have it released uh, online as a video on demand, and yeah. hopefully someone – Actually, pays to see it. Okay. Why, why don't you have Why don't you have Shane Gill? Why don't you have Shane Gill? Uh, there's been a lot of ads for Darby. There's been a lot of uh, commercials. It's got all the you know. If you're on the if you're on the internet, I'm sure you're seeing a lot of that crap. Maybe that's it. Okay. And I guess since you're from you're from Jersey and Brooklyn, Staten Island was easy to sandwich right in the middle. So. Oh yeah, actually, I, got, I was the only one who got to just drive to work. Everyone else had to get on a bus. All right, cattle. All right. Why don't we do this? Getting upset, David? Yes, I'm upset. Getting a little antsy and not part of the conversation? I'm get. I just, I, yeah, I I was looking forward to attacking Nancy. You know, know David's from Jersey, right? Oh, yes. Okay. This is what we're going to do. We're going to play. You grew up up the hill from me. This is, we have people. uh, Look at David. He puts on that hat and suddenly thinks he's Eminem in eight mile, wants to start fighting everybody. I have listeners from all over the world. I I can't make small talk here. We can't do this. You look like Eminem just All right, all right. Let, let's solitary. do this. I got to keep, we have listeners here. We got to keep the show moving. Let's play Guess My Studio Audience, okay? We have a polling question. We have two polling questions. I, da- I Dave, really do well. Dave yeah. Cyrus versus Harvey JK. Are you ready to guess what my studio audience is thinking? Are you ready? Uh, fine. You ready? Should I not be looking at the chat right now? Why would you be looking at the chat? You should be focusing on this. I can do both. All right. Time. The chat. Okay. Time to play. <laughs> What's our studio audience thinking? Are you ready? One of you is going to go home it. with the other. Hang on. One of the winner gets to, to leave. No, one of you is going to get to go home with the sound effect. I'd rather just go home. <laughs> okay. First question. Uh, I asked our studio audience, are you finding it harder to get your prescription drugs since the pandemic started? What percentage no. said yes? What percentage said no? What percentage said I don't require prescription drugs? I'm perfect. Dave Cyrus, why don't you give me the numbers? And Harvey J.K., Professor Harvey J.K., you tell me. Higher or lower? What percentage of my Have listeners trouble say, getting their prescriptions? Yeah, what percentage? Forty. Forty say it's harder to get their prescriptions. Okay. Sure. Uh, what percentage said I don't require prescription drugs? I'm perfect. Forty. Professor Harvey J.K. Higher or lower? I go lower on the difficulty of getting the drugs, and and higher on the. Perfect. 
Oh, hang on. I thought that was a third option. I don't know. Six percent of the people in our studio audience said it's harder to get their prescription drugs since the pandemic. See, that seems odd to me because your audience seems heavily medicated. No, that's not nice. It's true, but it's not nice. Uh, both, I feel like they're both heavily medicated and not at all. No, but Dave, we are missing the fact that those those uh, heavily medicated are not prescription drugs. That's true. That's, That's right. true. All right. 46% say no, they're not finding it harder to get their prescription drugs. And 48% of the people in our studio audience say they don't require prescription drugs because they're perfect. Question number two. I don't traffic in conspiracy theories, but COVID-19 sure feels like it was invented by Big Pharma. Harvey J.K., what percentage of the people in our studio audience say that they believe or feel that COVID-19 was invented by Big Pharma? I'm going to go to 75%. Okay, 75%. Let me just see. Is Shahid here? Is this Shahid? Shahid, are you there? Shahid? Shahid. Hello? Hello, are you there? Is the caller there? With the prefix 216. Is that a Bay Area number? No, but I guess not. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, you, what did you say? You don't traffic in conspiracy? I said 70, did I say 70 or 75%? I thought. You said, said 75. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's 25 or whatever percentage. Well, well hang on. Let's start from the beginning because this is... What percentage of my listeners believe that it feels like COVID-19 was invented by Big Pharma? Professor J.K. 75%. 75% of the people attending this taping session or recording session. But I want to explain that I think it's also partly driven by the anger at Big Pharma, period. Okay. Higher or lower, Dave Cyrus. I guess I'll say lower because I don't want to believe that your audience is three-fourths insane. Well, the correct answer is 14%. So Dave Cyrus. Wow. Yeah, what, four- a serious, what a serious crowd you have on Thursdays. Yeah. 86%. Well, because it's just, it's so childish to have to believe that everything has a secret motive behind it. You know, it's... It's it just like something I like I was saying before, how like the arguments about the, you know, hidden reasons behind the coronavirus space. It's just boredom. It's just people don't want to live in the real world because it's boring and scary. You know, you want to live in the world where mommy makes you eat vegetables because she's evil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like eat your goddamn broccoli and stop trying to find motivations. Professor Harvey J.K., do you believe in any conspiracy theories that are kind of wacky, but you believe them? Well, I mean, it all depends on how you define the conspiracy theory. I actually do believe that there was a that there is something of a conspiracy that links Trump, Bannon and a whole host of white nationalists globally. Well, yeah, that's that's barely even counts as a conspiracy. It's essentially just, you know, basic police work will get you there. Yeah, no, but a conspiracy generally means... Oh, yeah. That is a conspiracy, because it's between a whole bunch of people to keep a secret to do something bad. So, yeah, that is a conspiracy. But, of course, David's talking about the, you know, the ones, the conspiracies coming out of those people. Ah, 
which, you know, I, as you know, I'm sure you're, you're referring to like all the many conspiracies they put out through InfoWars or their other surrogates. Yeah. Well, you've you've gone after these conspiracy theories. Yeah, it's it's been something that I've made a big part of my like comedy since way before they were so relevant. I mean, I was doing videos when the Boston bombing happened, attacking conspiracy people, interviewing them, because my whole thing was I wanted people to see how crazy the people creating these ideas were, because all these semi-normal people were buying these crazy conspiracies. And I knew if you got to see the person who made this up up close and, and ask him follow-up questions, you would immediately realize you've, you've been taken by a con man and or schizophrenic. Yeah, and that's, I, I, you know, not to get too sociological or historical about it, but I, I think the possibility of these, I think most of these are driven not simply by people's Inabilities to ration to, to think rationally. I, I think it's driven by the fact that we actually have had a series of very high-level conspiracies um, that have driven the drug companies going back all the way to the to the sixties. Remember thalidomide? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah the fl- the flipper I mean, babies. Yeah, I mean, basically speaking, I mean, there's a, over time these things build up, and then you get even closer to, you know, like the, what do they call them the weapons of mass WMDs in Iraq. And you even had uh, uh, Clayton Powell, not Clayton Powell, what's his name? Colin Powell. Colin Powell. Powell, Thank you. You're thinking of Adam Clayton Powell. I know, no, exactly right. My old congressman. Or from Upper Manhattan, something like that. Yeah. So, but I think it really does sort of, you know, when you've got him going before the UN saying those kinds of things, you can imagine, you know, governments coming to... uh, coming to you with these kinds of grand theories. And so everyone else lo- loses any kind of uh, sense of right, uh, not right and wrong, but truth and falsehood. I, I, that's, to me, the, the, the loss of truth, which I think Bill Moyers and his team have been making a big deal of of late, which is, is definitely got to be one of our greatest cultural crises right now. The Kennedy assassination. I've just accepted that there was a conspiracy, the CIA and the mafia working together, but there is incontrovertible evidence now that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. And by incontrovertible, but I mean, but I don't believe it, but they will present well, incontrovertible evidence that he could fire off those shots. Professor it, K, do you, do you believe that? I, I actually don't go into the theories around the Kennedy thing because I have a feeling one day it'll come out anyhow. So I don't begin to necessarily buy into them. Well, right the sad thing about that is that we've sort of just passed the window of when we were hoping all the deathbed confessions would be. Because it's been 50. Like, we, we just kind of the last 10 years is when we were hoping those yeah. would happen. And the right. lack of them. Because here's the thing. I used to be a huge Kennedy conspiracy fan. And the problem is, at the end of the day, I realized that the irreducible complexity is so huge. The number of people who would have to be in on it and still be quiet is just hard to believe because look at all, because all the real conspiracies that ended up being true, they fell apart, you know, like, like Watergate or, uh, you know, like, like Deep Throat. There was, like, there's always ends up being a Deep Throat kind of character. And it, it's the same thing. Ron Jeremy in on that one? Nice. Yeah. Terrible person, by the way. Not, not as bad as Deep Throat. Felt? Yeah. Mark, Felt Mark Felt was far worse. He was Deep Throat, and he was a disgrace to the FBI. Well, then you he haven't was, talked to the porn stars I've talked to. 
Yeah, Ron Jeremy wasn't kicking open the doors of the weathermen and violating. He was his... kicking open other things. So well, let's just not get into it. Right? He Mark Felt, deep throat, bad guy. Well, was, I don't know much about Felt. Well, he was going to take over the FBI, uh, and then he he had to plead out. He he was found guilty for violating the civil liberties of of the weathermen. And by the way, Bob Woodward, who wrote about Deep Throat, who knew Mark Felt. Yeah, by the way, Mark, the, excuse me for one second. Bob Woodward was CIA. By the way, is that was, a fact? He was in Navy intelligence. Yes, he was. Well, that would have been. Doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that his uh, his journalism was compromised. You know what? We can resolve all of this. Jennifer Verdlin's waiting to get in. Okay. I'm sure she can tell us. All right. Well, she's early. When we come back, we're going to come back. We will talk with Dr. Jennifer Verdlin. I want to thank screenwriter Dave Cyrus. Congratulations on your new movie. Thank yes. you. Congratulations. And, June and the 12th. June the 12th. Playing at a home near you. No, no theater. It's right? Watch it on your phone. Why not? Yeah. The trick is to make a movie with Shane Gillis. Then, then he's got fans. The man got, has got a fan base. Yeah. Okay. And that fan and that fan base is very eager to go out and in public and in movie theaters. Yes. Thank that's you, where, that's Dave. Where we should, have, we should have pandered to them. We'll be right back. Thank, Thank you, you, Professor Harvey J.K. And we'll we'll I rest- can't stick around for Jennifer. I just have to go. Yeah. We'll we'll have Professor. We'll have uh, Butar back. Okay. I don't get it. All right. Stay on the line for one second. Wrong. I'm hitting the wrong. That's not. That's not that. Hang on. I, I can find the right music here. We're trying to do this live to tape to save time and money on the editing. So hang on. Let me find the right. Here we go. Hang on. Here we go. There. Now it's professional. Much better. Dr. Jennifer Verdelin is here. She's on time. She didn't stand us up. She is an internationally recognized animal behavior expert writer. She is the author of Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships, and Raised by Animals, The Surprising New Science of Animal Family Dynamics with Tri-at-Home Lessons from the wild. Go to jenniferverdelin.com, sign up for her newsletter, and watch her latest YouTube videos. You can see her in the Sonora Desert on Wild Connection TV. How hot is it in the Sonora hey. Desert? Well, right now we're, we're, we're at our 100 mark, so we're going to gain 10 degrees, uh, you know, by next month. And then if we have a no soon monsoon like we did last year, which meant we really didn't get any rain. We won't get a reprieve until the end of August. Um, so, yeah, we're hitting 105 day after tomorrow, which is toasty, to say the least. Very toasty. Uh, and I yes. should mention, we have a live studio audience here. They are joining us uh, via Zoom and or phone. And if you have questions about your pets... Raise your hand, and Dr. Jennifer Verdelin will answer all your questions. She always does. 
It's always amazing. Before we get to our audience, and I do see some raised hands, let me ask you about emperor penguins. I understand <laughs> you told me before we started that uh, researchers are getting high off emperor penguins. Yeah. So, so, and, and this is because they fart so much. And so I just, I, I, I found this to be so amusing. Um, but, but you get high off a penguin fart? Well, ni- nitric oxide, right? It's basically like laughing gas. It makes them loopy. Um, that's, some, that's some good shit. That's some good shit. I mean, you don't want to be around. Uh, uh, so the other, the flip side, there's always a flip side, right? It's always a double-edged sword. So um, I happened to be a consultant on Spy in the Wild, which is releasing episodes, you know, uh, as we speak. And they did one on, on the penguins. And uh, the flea infestation is uh, out of this world. So maybe the trade-off is you ignore the fleas because you're you're high. And so, yeah, they they fart so much and they release so much uh, nitric oxide that they are um, that the researchers get loopy. But, and, but but hang on for one second. Human farts don't have nitrous oxide, do they? Uh, I think we mostly it's methane. I'm not sure what our composition of our our farts is, but it doesn't make you laugh. <laughs> well, no, that's not true. It might make you laugh, um, <laughs> but not for the same reason. Okay, so if you're out of whippets, go to the zoo, get an, uh, uh, an emperor penguin, and feed him radishes, and you're good to go. And he's good to go. Really, I mean, if I sat in a room with a flatulent emperor penguin, I would just start laughing? Well, I mean, you know, it makes them feel a little lightheaded and, and loopy, you know, um, so they're, they're poop, they poop out so much laughing gas, essentially. It's nitrous oxide. Wait, but their um, poop is nitrous oxide too? Yeah. I mean, it's, a, I mean, it, you know, maybe it's a, what do you call a wet fart? I don't know. I, a shart. Know, oh, there you go. Maybe they just shart out. Now the laughing. show is getting good. Now, now this is great. I have to tell my dentist. Well, I think they should label all their tanks now with just penguins because one, <laughs> everybody loves penguins, and two, you get it without the shark. Right? This is great. This is fantastic. Um, I am curious now, and I'll have to do a little research after we're done on the composition of human. Um, well, we know what the shark part is, but not the, the fart part. I don't know what the fart part is. But the, the laughing gas comes out of their feces, and, and the, um, the researchers get a little loopy. Right. Now, penguins are not, are not mammals. They are birds. They are right. heavy. What, what is their class? Well, heavy? they're – oh, gosh. I don't know their um, – Well, apparently they have no family. class if they're farting uh-huh. that way. But, so they're birds. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, well, they're, uh, they're basically, uh, a water, uh, a water bird. And there's this particular group, um, that they belong to. So they're flightless birds, right? They're aquatic flightless birds. They're like the, uh, well, not quite puffins. Puffins are a different group. Um, and they can actually fly a little bit. Um, but yeah, they are, uh, aquatic flightless birds. Okay, that I will never look at an emperor penguin again the same way. <laughs> I don't way. know if it's true for other penguins, right? This was just a report on um, on 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 king penguins, um, not emperor, sorry, king penguins, and 
And, and actually, it's just quite a polluted, pollutant. And somebody in the chat mentioned the methane from cows, which we know is actually quite a big pollutant. And so... Um, and it's belches. It's not uh, flatulence with cows. They actually belch methane. Right, right. It's, like, right. it's kind of like a, a cow belching methane. Now, that, I, that's like kissing Steve Bannon. It must smell... <laughs> I, I don't know. It I'd must rather smell. kiss a cow. Yeah. But um, it's the diet of the penguins that's full of nitrogen um, that creates, oh. you know, this this phenomenon, if you will. Well, can I and do that? Suppose well, if you eat a ton of krill and a ton of fish, um, you could potentially shart some laughing gas. Hmm. You know what? <laughs> Next time I'm doing stand up, I know how to get on a roll. That's krill, you say. Well, that, well, isn't it stand-up you're supposed to get a laugh every certain number of seconds? So you're going to just really have to, you know... Eat a lot of up. krill. You're going to have to bulk up on some krill, yeah. Hmm, for okay. Sure. Tell me about orangutans. You know, comics mimic each other. Orangutans, you say, are mimics? Yeah, well, so normally they're, they're not living in a group, right? Um, but, but we all know this, um, you know, what we call sort of mirroring. Like if someone yawns, you yawn, right? I mean, in general, unless you're kind of a sociopath. Um, and, and that's because I'm not, we have, I'm not yawning. <laughs> well, I'm not yawning either, so oh, we're good. Okay, so I'm not a sociopath. Okay. <laughs> but usually if you see somebody or even if you hear somebody yawn on the phone, you might yawn. And even just talking about yawning is kind of making me want to yawn. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so we have these neurons in our brain called mirror neurons, and we find these in other primates as well. And, and so that the mirror neurons are a sort of way of, of empathy in that you see yourself in another, right? Mm -hmm. And so it turns out that um, orangutans, uh, you know, will copy uh, someone, uh, another orangutan scratching. It's sort of contagious. If one starts to scratch, there's an actual good chance that another orangutan will uh, scratch. Yawning, uh, they couldn't really find the same result, not because they wouldn't do it necessarily, but because they just didn't yawn that much. Well, they weren't yeah. listening to my podcast. <laughs> yeah, and so, okay. <laughs> so, so yeah, so this sort of contagious behavior uh, is, uh, is that it's uh, a way to, like, we are susceptible to that kind of copying. And the more empathetic you are, the more likely that is to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And now it's interesting for orangutans because in the wild, they really just live alone. They're not really group living. I mean, sometimes you'll get groups of females in the same fruiting tree with their youngsters and their youngsters might be playing with each other. But they aren't group living like humans or, or bonobos or chimps or, you know, other primates that and other species. And so it's kind of interesting. That's why it makes it even more interesting that they still have this capacity to uh, copy and mirror uh, the behavior of others. And maybe it's going to be a parent offspring thing, right? right. I, I don't know. But it's sort of fascinating because we tend to think of it as really common in close-knit social groups um, where you know, having empathy and, and, and recognition and being able to comprehend the experience of another is pretty crucial. Right. Um, right. You know, and we can see the consequences, right? At least in some human situations of the inability of an individual to be able to do that. Great. 
Let us go to, I don't know if I'm pronouncing your first name properly. Is it Samuli? Yes, Samuli. Samuli. And where are you calling from? Nokia, Finland. You're in Finland? Yes. And your last name, may I give you your last name? Is that okay? You may, yes. You sure? Yes. It's Koala. Why wouldn't yeah. you be calling us from Australia? Well, because it's not really my last name. Oh, okay. <laughs> Are you really from Finland? Yes. Okay. Yes, I am. All right. Can't you tell by the accent? I'm sorry? Can't you tell by the accent? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, it, it's, uh, it, it really is amazing to have somebody from Finland calling my show. It really is. Thank you for doing this. What is your question for Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, Samuli? Well, uh, my question isn't about a pet, per se. My name is David, not per se. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. It's about a woodpecker. Ah, okay. Yeah, there's been a woodpecker that's... I heard it pecking my neighbor's black pole a few times earlier. Pecking his what? Yeah, I was going to say pecking his what? <laughs> flagpole, you know, the metal oh, the thing. Flagpole. Okay. Oh, the flagpole. Okay. Uh-huh. And now it started pecking my house. Uh-huh. So what's going on? Why is it acting like this? Because I don't think my house or my neighbor's flagpole are edible. That is very true. Um, and so... You know, one could, maybe it's just not, so there's a couple reasons. We could say maybe it's not that smart of a woodpecker, but the reality is it's probably a male. I'm going to guess that it's a male. Um, and, and that for males, the louder you, I don't know why I was hitting my hand here, the louder you peck at something, <laughs> the more noise you make. Um, you know, if you get something that resonates, um, you know, uh, it, it, it is quite, uh, it is a, lo- a large, louder signal, right? So they're not necessarily, in this case, he's probably looking for a female. So he wants to sound like the biggest pecker out there. And <laughs> Why doesn't he just lower his voice? I mean, put woodpecker, except he's not pecking against wood, right? So <laughs> I, I shortened, um, the, the name. So, so males generally in birds, they sing and the louder they sing and the more complicated they sing, the more likely that a female is going to say, Hey, you sound pretty awesome. And so for the woodpecker, my guess is that maybe he moved from the flagpole to your house because your house, uh, creates more noise than the flagpole. Um, the interesting thing I'm going to just add about woodpeckers is they've been, they have a similar, they have this spring action in their, in their head that acts like a helmet, but they do get the same kind of concussion uh, disorder that you see in football players, right? <clears throat> and so their, 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 their whole head has these special shock absorbers. Um, of course, it's not necessarily designed for metal. Uh, objects, but it's probably the sound. So that's what I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess. I always thought they were like looking for insects. When they peck, what are they doing? Just try to find a mate? Well, so you can peck for different reasons. We all know that. You can, and so, 
this is not a stupid woodpecker that's going to try to peck on a metal pole for insects. It's probably a male. I'm not sure, Samueli, if if what the season is there. Uh, It looks like it might be approaching the good summer period, which is pretty short, and there's not a lot of time. So I'm wondering if it's close to breeding season for birds there. So the woodpecker is using my house for breeding opportunities? To have sex, yes. Okay, fair enough. Mm. Yes. And who's the dog? Our listeners can't (laughs) see, but that is the most beautiful dog. What's the name? Sula. Sula. Oh, my God. What What kind of dog is that? Sorry, David. Oh, nice. How old? Eleven. What a face. Uh Uh-huh. And what a personality. Oh. Oh, man. (laughs) All right. You know what? This is a a podcast. People can't. (laughs) Thank you, Samoy. That is a beautiful dog. Thank you. That's uh, amazing. Just amazing. Uh, okay. That was a great question. You know, yeah. I love that question. Okay. And if I could figure out what I'm doing, we'll go to our next question. I believe it's Michael. Hello, Michael. Can you unmute yourself? Unmute myself. And <laughs> I don't know if you can see me or not. It doesn't matter. I have a quick question. Have you guys heard about this alligator named Saturn that was supposedly Hitler's alligator? It just recently died in the um, Moscow Zoo. Mm. And what I wanted to ask the uh, good doctor is the, 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 the statement that the Moscow Zoo put out, they said, well, even if pure, purely theoretically this alligator belonged to Hitler, uh, Animals are not involved in war and politics, and is it is absurd to blame them for human sins. So my question is: Do you think uh, a pet alligator could model itself after its owner and become a Nazi? Um. So I'm gonna. This is gonna be brief. No. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, there's a whole host of reasons. Uh-huh. Um, you know, but uh, primarily alligators are not social creatures, so there's no basis for which they would engage in any kind of societal or um, oppression or uh, uh, you know uh, of that nature. So um, yeah. So. No, short answers. Well, um, I disagree that animals don't have politics, right? And that animals don't engage in conflict. Um, you know, we, we know this is not true from a behavioral standpoint when we look at competition between groups within the same species. Um, you know, chimpanzee society and many other uh, societies and animals are quite political, shifting alliances, um, you know, uh, but but we don't see the systematic, um, you know, genocide that you see in in humans uh, happening. I was I was species. actually alluding to David's earlier point when he talked about the woman in Central Park, and is her dog in fact a racist? If the owner of a dog displays racist tendencies <clears throat> um, towards you know any sort of person that they see in the park will the dog follow those tendencies ah. and will the dog become like a racist 
Okay, so so here's the thing. I'm gonna from the dog. I'm gonna remove the label racist. What the dog will do is react to the emotional response and stress, fear, whatever that the owner is exhibiting. The dog won't make this broad sweeping statement uh, of its perception of different groups of people. If an owner consistently so so it has it will have to be in the presence of its owner meaning you take the dog you give it to another owner it's not going to just be this racist dog right uh it's it's going to reflect um so this is also why dog fights happen a lot of people misunderstand uh like when two people are walking their dogs and 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 one owner is super tense because maybe their dog got in a in a conflict with another dog and now forevermore they are anxious uh every time their dog encounters another dog now their dog just says i don't know what the problem is but apparently i'm supposed to be worried here and so the, the probability that that dog's going to get into another conflict with a dog again is way higher but not because of the dog but because of the owner and and so the same thing here i didn't hear that com- part of the the show so i didn't know that was what you were alluding to but what i can say is that our animals will respond with stress fear anxiety aggression in response to whatever they're picking up from us so this is why uh you know in in just any situation uh like if you're walking your dog and let's say your dog had a, a dog attack before the dog might be traumatized but you further increase the chance of an of an incident the more anxious and stressed and uh, you are and so you know our dogs are going to pay attention to what our feelings are so no the dog itself is not uh like oh i'm this racist dog uh it, it's just <laughs> it's it's going to respond if that owner if she consistently displays um and not only that the dog wasn't even on a leash which was the actual problem in the first place um, you know, they, we have leash laws for a reason. Well, let me let me ask you a question because Michael raises an interesting point. I've had a, uh, a a doctor who he wrote a book called "Do Animal Does Your Dog Really Love You?" He's out of Georgia. I can't remember his name, but he's written countless books on dogs, and they've put dogs. You know, they've done MRIs mm-hmm. of dogs' brains, and he insists that dogs really love you. And I asked him, are dogs racist? And he said, yeah. And I said, why? He says, I don't know. But we, and he said, we, you know, we find that when we're trying to put a dog under an MRI, if I have a research assistant who's African American, I have a problem. You know, the dog doesn't. And I said, were they, I mean, what, what excuse, can you breed racism into a dog? He said, no. No, but he has found, he can't explain it, but dogs are racist. I, I've told this story countless times. I won't, I had a, I had a, uh, I've had racist dogs, you know? Uh, I, 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 I mean, I had a, I, I, I did. Well, you're, you think that's funny? <laughs> I had an African American neighbor and we had a poodle. I've told this story a million times. Let me thank you, Michael. It's a great question. Well, so, but I just want to add that I think that we're missing this really important connection um, historically between the purpose that dogs, different breeds of dogs were used 
to uh, attack and and hunt down slaves. And that's not to say that that breed then is racist, but what I'm saying is that for many people of uh, in oppressed groups, people of color, there's a anxiety and a uh, a fear that comes about with uh, the proximity of a dog that is large or not on a leash or, uh, you know, any of those things. And so I still submit that, that our, what we call racism is not something racism is a systematic institutionalized oppression of a group of people and dogs are not involved in that now. Right now, dogs can have reactions to different types or groups of people for a variety of reasons. But I really don't want to confuse language um, of prejudice versus racism versus bigotry. Those actually have very different meanings and they have very different manifestations. So I am just uh, going to stick with my answer that no, uh, dogs are not racist. Right. I, I agree with you. Thank C- you. Cats are. But not. <laughs> By the way, and, and and there are articles. We talked about this last week, Doctor Jennifer Verdelin. We talked about this about okay. cats having abandonment issues, and you know, I insisted only dogs can have abandonment issues. If you look at the media right now, all week after our conversation, they're they're warning that your dog, once you go back to work. Is going to have serious abandonment issues. There isn't mm-hmm. a, there isn't a single shred of science out there, except for Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, that suggests cats will have abandonment issues once everybody finally goes back to work and leaves their cats behind. Because cats, they don't want you in the house with them. But you you know more about this than I do. I will defer to your expertise. I, I still disagree with you. It's an individual thing. There are some dogs who were like, yay, you're home all the time for three weeks. And then they're like, oh, my gosh, please, I need some alone time. The and, only, the only, re- okay. The only- and abandonment issues in dogs are most often related to boredom, not the fact that you aren't there. And there was this a paper that came out recently looking at the root causes of of abandonment and anxiety in dogs and 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 you as much as they as you want to put yourself as the most important thing uh not you personally but you an owner um as the thing that your your pet's life revolves around while it may be true to some extent um abandonment anxiety uh uh in dogs has been you know suggested that it's really boredom in their okay. environment they're bored Okay, we have one more question, but I I just—you're the expert, okay? Okay. (laughs) I don't know anything. Yep. (laughs) But it seems to me I once told you that if you die, your cat will eat you. Yeah. And and and, no, you said that's not true. You said I did not say that. We can pull the recording. You said send your buttons would not eat you. I did not. I said if he's smart, he absolutely would eat me. What I got wrong was where he would start. And if he was super smart, he'd start with the kidneys and the liver because it's got the most nutrients. Um, and again, science backs up. Your, your dog will eat you too. And your hamster will. And your yeah, pet the, rat. But the, your dog would feel bad about it. Dogs don't feel guilt. They've evolved facial muscles to make their face look droopy as a way to manipulate humans. Wolves don't have those muscles in their face. It's a, it's just like the cat meowing. Cats don't meow at each other. They meow at people. 
And so cats evolved a way to communicate, to manipulate people, and dogs uh, manipulate people by having these special facial muscles that don't that evolved specifically in their relationship with humans and make us think that they look sad or feel bad. They're really, again, they respond to your voice, not to the action. They don't know whatever it is you're upset about. They just know you're upset. And they know if they make a face because they read facial expressions, um, it changes your your behavior. You know, here's the thing, Dr. Jennifer Verlin. I don't have the expertise that you have. If only there were an immunobiologist (laughs) here who could settle this one. Oh, my God, there is. We have an immunobiologist here. Henry, settle this for us. Yes, Henry, please. Cats or dogs? (laughs) Well, personal preference aside, I I would have to... uh, defer to Dr. Jen's expertise on the subject. But if we put personal preference in it, I, I am a dog person. See, I win. Personally. I won. <laughs> <laughs> but but thank you. Thank you, though. I love how you managed to satisfy both of us. I know. This is what I mean, happens when you have three skill. siblings. <laughs> Are you in the middle? No, I'm the oldest, okay. but I still play mediator a lot. <laughs> well, okay. Yes, well, and I would defer to your expertise on all things uh, immunology. So let me uh, just tell you. Let me just tell you something. I've had, I, I've had twenty six cats in my life. At the very least, twenty six cats. Had I not had twenty six cats, maybe thirty, had I invested the money I spent on those cats in a you know a mutual fund, I would have. Two dollars, Henry. What? Uh, I look back. No joy for my cats. No joy whatsoever, <laughs> Henry. Yeah. First, David, can you say my last name so that Samuli can laugh at uh, your pronunciation of it? Hakamaki, Maki, Hakamaki, Hakamaki. Now Samuli can see what I have to put up with. It, it's you know what? Here's the problem, Henry. I'm a reader. Okay, I don't watch television. So I, I don't know how to pronounce things properly. Mm-hmm. I don't pronounce words properly. Yeah, well, I, I, unless you're watching a lot of Finnish television, it wouldn't help you anyway. Okay, David. what is your question for Dr. Jennifer <laughs> Vertolin? How do I pronounce uh, your last name? We'll, we'll wait until Friday. We'll discuss oh, it Oh, a cliffhanger. M- Maggie oh, yeah, or exactly. Mackie? We, we have Mackie. to wrap it up. We, we're keeping it's Mackie. <laughs> Mackie, Haka Mackie. You're getting closer. Okay, Dr. Jen. Yes. So last time I asked about infection dynamics in a population. So this time I'm going to ask about something a little bit more fun for everybody else. Um, I was thinking about how the horned lizard shoots blood out of its eyes as a defense mechanism. And I was wondering if you had any other examples of really weird but interesting defense mechanisms in other species just quickly since we're out of time yes uh, the vinegaroon okay now i only learned about this last night because i also found saw for the first time a sun spider which looks very scary um and a lot of people confuse it with the vinegaroon and basically it sprays acid um, in response. So I'm going to go blood is like, okay, that, you know, and in fact, the, the, the horned lizard can spray so much blood if you stress it out too much that it dies, essentially. Um, but the vinegar rune, people may not have heard of it. I'm going to type it in so we spell it. 
um, and it basically sprays acid as a defense mechanism. So, is that similar to the bombardier beetle? Uh, I mean, in terms of the mechanism. Oh uh, well, so I'm not sure. Uh, well, there's a lot of uh, volatile chemicals that some beetles can, you know, like tenebrionids. Mm-hmm. They they send out a puff of of chemicals, um, and so the actual underlying mechanism. I would have to do a little bit of research. Sadly, that is not just a piece of information um, I can't I just, that I'm holding around in this snogger. Well, there's a cliffhanger for next time. Too. There you go. That, that must be so great to, to shoot stuff out of your eyes. I mean, that. Well, that's the blood, but most of them shoot it out of their ass. So. Well, I can do that. <laughs> well, I'm we doing that right now as we speak. Starting, and you cannot. Get the laughing gas, but whether it's acid or laughing gas, we are definitely, you know, on the low talent end of the spectrum here. Um, but I'm kind of grateful that I don't have to shoot out blood from my eyes or acid out of my bum to defend myself. So it feels like it would burn. Right. How are your eyes feeling? <laughs> do, are you, do you have your camera on, Dr. Jennifer Verlin? I can see you, yeah. Okay. I just have mine hidden. <laughs> you want to see what I'm doing right now? I do see what you're doing. It looks really uncomfortable if it were real. Yeah. Doctor, <laughs> this is, I'm playing to the studio audience using special effects. Dr. Jennifer Verdelin is an internationally recognized animal behavior expert. She is the author of several books, Raised by Animals. You should pick that up. The Surprising New Science of Animal Family Dynamics with Try-at-Home Experiments and Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships. Follow her over Twitter, at RealDrJen. Go to JenniferVerlin.com, sign up for her newsletter, and you should also sign up for her YouTube channel. It's called Wild Connection TV, and you can see her in the Sonora Desert. And you're also a professor at the University of Arizona. Are you done for the semester? I was, and now I'm prepping a conservation of natural resources to start in 10 days. Uh, So I'm teaching a a class over the summer online and uh, getting that together. And I'm going to make sure that, Henry, uh, I'm going to try and say it, Hakamaki? How'd I do? No? I no, didn't do well. Huckamacky. Okay. It, it's, Huckamacky. Know, I, it doesn't bother me. <laughs> okay. Well, so I'm going to come prepared with a question for you next time if you follow me next time. So uh, we can leave that cl- cliffhanger because your, your questions are awesome. And now the overachiever in me feels like I need to, I need to step up my, my game here. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so thanks for having me. And thank and, you. Maybe we'll yeah. see you tonight for office hours. Dr. Jennifer Verlin, I- stay on the line for one quick second. <laughs> I hit the record button. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Elon Musk regularly flouts the law with little fear of punishment. Uh, 
So writes Elizabeth Spears in GQ magazine in her piece, The Provocations of Elon Musk. And she joins us today in Brooklyn. Thank you, Elizabeth, for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's actually uh, Spires, just FYI. Oh, I'm, I'm, I misprint Spires. Yes. And I said Spears. Everyone says Spears. Totally okay. fine. All right. <laughs> I, uh, Spires. Let's start again. Nah, we won't start again. The way this day is, why not? Spires. Okay. You are a, a, an amazing writer, and you have an incredible a, a, an incredible resume. You were the founding editor of Gawker. You are a, a contributing writer and editor over at New York Magazine. You've written for the New York Times, Salon, Fortune, Fast Company, the New York Post. And you were hired to be the editor of the New York Observer, in February of 2011, and then you quit in August of 2012. So you were you were the editor of the New York Observer from February of 2011 to August of 2012. Uh, what happened at the New York Observer that, that you quit? What, what uh, well, technically, at the time, that made me the second longest running editor of the Observer. <laughs> um, management, management problems over there? Yes, uh, my my then boss Jared Kushner had turned over a few editors before me. Who? 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 Uh, Jared Kushner, who was the owner of the New York Observer. Uh, don't, name doesn't ring a bell. Uh, Jared <laughs> Kushner, you say, owned the the New York Observer. So, what was it like working for uh, the first son-in-law? I think, well, one thing to sort of understand is that when he bought the paper, he didn't do it because he had an interest in journalism or anything that a a journalist kind of set out to do there or at any other news organization. Um, He he bought it because he thought it would buy him influence in New York, and and it did to a certain extent. Uh, But when you start from the assumption that the owner doesn't really care about the journalism, it, it makes for an odd working relationship if you were on the editorial side of the business. So I would say, you know, Jared and I got along most days about most things, but when it came to things that would be maybe contentious in any normal media organization, but extremely important, I think we were working off of different operating principles. Is he an um, opportunistic infection? I heard that he was best friends with Michael Moore, that he, I, I don't know if he invested in one of Michael Moore's movies, but he held. That something. would be, that would be news to me. I'm sure that there, they might be acquaintances because I, I feel like, a, you know, Jared had friends in high places. Um, well, I, you know what they I say about, friend. what they say about Ivanka and Jared is their, their politics is very liberal. They're just going along because of the dad and the, you know. Yeah, I don't think they have any politics. Um, I I think they they are generally, or they don't have any core political values that dictate anything they do, you know. Um, I understood when I was working for Jared that Jared and Ivanka were um, social climbers, but now I believe that they're uh, nihilists. I I don't believe that they, they have sort of guiding principles that would, put them squarely in the camp of Democrats or Republicans. And I don't think that that was a motivation for their 
um, journey to the White House in the first place. And what, what do you mean by nihilist? Are you just being sarcastic, or do you believe? No, that? I, I think that they don't have core principles about these things. You know, they they care about status and power, um, but there's kind of no set of values that they wouldn't sacrifice if it meant giving up power or right. status. How smart is Jared? I know we, we have a guest on this show. I'm not allowed mm-hmm. to tell you who he is, but he did the uh, the interview at Harvard for Jared. said he was one of the dumbest kids he ever met and was surprised that Jared got in. And $2 million later, in, in a donation, he got in. What, what Did you get a sense that he was intelligent or non-threatening? No, he's 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 aggressively mediocre. Yeah, I think uh, he he was a C student. You know, there there's no reason he should have been admitted to Harvard, and the only reason why he was is because his father made a big donation, was well connected there, um, and and you know some of it is, I guess, you know, native to who he is. Some of it's willful ignorance. You know, he has. He's deeply incurious, so is Ivanka. And I think when you have no curiosity about the rest of the world or other people, um, it lends itself to you know, ignorance about things in general, but it, it doesn't correlate well with intelligence, certainly. Um, so I sort of, when, you know, when people ask me that, I say, well, he's not smart. You know, is he, is he dumber than average? I, I don't know that that's true. Um, but he's, he's unremarkable. You know, well, so what does nothing- he want? What, what does he want? Uh, status primarily, you know, I think the value of being in the White House for him is that it puts him in rooms with powerful people that he wants to be rubbing shoulders with that without, uh, the White House position, he, he wouldn't be able to. But wouldn't you be ashamed to be as ineffective and hollow as he is? Isn't there any shame? Well, yeah, I mean, because I'm a normal person, and so are you, and so are most people. Right. Uh, right. The, the reason why there's no shame is that Jared's always been surrounded by people who are, you know, in, in many cases, paid to tell him that he's doing a good job, and he's mm-hmm. never had any form of accountability. Um, he's always worked for the family business. He's never been in a job that he could really get fired from. Um, you know, I'm going to say something that I'm going to regret. He's never been punched. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I, I, that's a terrible. You know, I mean, it's a terrible thing to say. Or otherwise, I'm, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I'm all for peace, love, and understanding. But he, somebody needed to punch him. Well, I don't know that that would have helped. I think would have helped me. He it would have helped me if somebody punched him. Well, I, I, you're not the first person I've met who said that. Does sentiment. he have a temper? Yeah, um, and when it comes out, it's it's a little bit like dealing with a petulant child because it's usually kind of rooted in a sense of entitlement he has. Does he, he raise his well voice? Does he raise his? I mean, I can't imagine him raising his voice and pounding the table and screaming. Right? That that you're not. Yeah, gonna- he raises his voice. He doesn't. Uh, I mean, it, it's in in terms of what it's like. It's it's you know he accelerates emotionally and and then it's you can't have a conversation with him you have to de-escalate and just try to talk to him later right um Does when he he gets the most, i'm sorry go ahead when he gets the most angry it's because he's in a situation where somebody's pushing back <laughs> and he thinks they don't have the right to do that you know he's very 
um, why can't, you know, why can't you just do what I want kind of person? Is he willing um, to admit he doesn't know something? He'll do it performatively if he's around people who he, he views as being, you know, some higher ranked than he is in terms of status and power. If he's around a Fortune 500 CEO, he'll make some noise to the effect of, well, I don't know what I don't know, but he, he doesn't believe that. And he absolutely doesn't behave that way around people with expertise who don't also have money and power, which is why you see him sort of being disdainful of people with foreign policy expertise or epidemiologists or the entire class of people who don't live their lives in order to simply amass wealth, but who have, uh, you know, important knowledge base that's relevant to what he's doing now. So he doesn't um, respect people who know things. How is that possible? How, I, again, you said he's a nihilist and, he, you know, either a sociopath. Well, part of it, he, he, has a, he shares some things in common with his father-in-law. Uh, and one thing is that he, he doesn't like it when people he perceives as being kind of nobodies are telling him things that he doesn't understand. Uh, you know, it, it, it activates his inferiority complex and makes him really angry. But does he know? Uh, that, that would he be the entire class of experts in this case. So. so does he know he has an inferiority complex, or is it just a defense mechanism that's internal and he lashes out? Well, I don't know how introspective he is about that specifically or not, because the, the inferiority complex, I think, is rooted in uh, – the stuff that happened with his dad. His dad went to prison for on you know white collar fraud charges, and I think part of the reason why Jared sailed into New York and bought the Observer was that it was a little bit of a rehabilitation ploy for their family. Um, so some of the inferiority complex is is rooted in that you know the sort of fear that he's not taken as seriously as people in New York are, or that you know because of his dad's. Um, time in prison that it affects the family negatively. So his dad, there's reason yeah, for it. Yeah. His, his dad hired a prostitute to go visit his uncle and they videotaped it to frame the uncle. Right. I mean, this is, yeah. he, it's garbage. Yeah. He's a slumlord. Yeah. Well, that comes from that. You know, when I say that he, his, you know, he, he doesn't really have values. There's, I think, you know, correlatively, he, he just doesn't have empathy for other people, which which is a problem with a lot of insanely wealthy people who haven't really been exposed to, you know, people in the world who have always been cloistered. Um, and he just he has this kind of disdain for people who are less wealthy than he is all the way all the way down. You know, it's not just um, people who are very poor. It's, it's everyone. He doesn't understand why. Um, you know, anyone would make life decisions or career decisions that don't lead directly to accumulating giant piles of money. But it's also this sort of blinkered and, you know, classist and to some extent, um, you know, bigoted notion that people who are poor must deserve it on some level. Right. Let's talk about yeah, systemic in this country. But, you know, let's talk about Elon Musk. You wrote about him. Sure. Over at GQ, your piece, The Provocations of Elon Musk. Is Elon Musk a genius? Uh, I would say, I mean, Elon Musk is very smart. You know, I don't know if he rises to the level of genius, but he doesn't have the Jared problem of being incurious 
or having no expertise. Um, how did he? I, I, how did he rise to where he is? What What is Elon Musk's background? Well, the way a lot of Silicon Valley success stories begin is, you know, you bet on the right thing at the right time. You manage to get some level of funding for it, which if you're white and male and you have a certain pedigree, it's easier for you to do. What is his pedigree? And then you have one what, exit. Is, what is his pedigree? Um, I mean, you know, he went to, he has, he has a good education. Uh, he develops connections that were important to his early successes. You know, that, that original founding team at PayPal uh, was, you know, full of people who went on to do other things, and partly because they were bolstered by the money they made doing PayPal. So and was Elon Musk at the beginning, was he one of the founders of PayPal? Yeah, he was an early, I don't remember if his title exactly was co-founder, um, but, you know, he, the, the like many people in the, in the Valley, he had one success that basically gave him the, the capital to try other things. And, you know, frankly, if, if you, that that's the biggest hurdle for entrepreneurs, you know, Elon Musk has also had failed businesses, but if you can afford to particularly self fund your company, you know, you're, the, the sort of market tolerance for your, your failures are, is a little bit higher. Right. So I don't you've covered Silicon Valley. My understanding, uh, and I guess Peter Thiel was one of the founders of PayPal. Yeah. Who put your company Gawker out of business. We'll get mm-hmm. to that in a second. My theory about these people is that they're not that smart. They're kind of like Jared Kushner in that yeah. they know how to play angel investors. And it's the angel investors who give them what is called good money. And they own a piece of you, like Mark Zuckerberg, for example, isn't a genius. He's got investors who keep presenting him with their other investments. And they say, uh, you know, you should buy Oculus because we're invest, you know, we invested in Oculus. So it's good, quote unquote, good money following more good money. And it's kind of like a mafia of, Investments that almost oh, is a sure. it's I mean, a Ponzi that's, that's, scheme. It's kind of like a Ponzi scheme. Early stage venture capital works. Explain um, that to us, please. It doesn't. So the early stage venture capital industry is not, first of all, enormous. You know, there there are a few major players, um, and some of them, especially around the periphery, the sort of mid tier firms, behave a little bit like. Uh, lemmings. So they'll, they'll look to see what the bigger investors are doing and then they, you know, try to latch onto it. And that's not really making, you know, a concerted decision with any strategy behind it about, you know, what this economic cycle is going to look like or whether a product is going to work. And I'm not saying no strategy goes into it, but um, if all you wanted to do was make money and have good returns as a venture capitalist, you could do that simply by latching yourself onto somebody at one of the larger firms and you would probably have a pretty good return on your portfolio because a lot of this stuff is also just, you know, it's, it's very, um, use industry jargon, high touch. It's about relationships because those relationships also facilitate exits for these companies ultimately. Um, and that's the, the end goal for most of these entrepreneurs is you want to sell the company or have an IPO. 
Right. I mean, I watched the Huffington Post. I watched Barry Diller and Arianna Huffington, and I've just watched all the different investors who bought the Huffington Post and proceeded Mm -hmm. to sell it to Barry Diller and then to Yahoo and as as the Huffington Post is you know slowly going down the drain, all the investors are getting hundreds of millions of dollars. It's a it's like an incestuous brotherhood of hey, would you buy you know we own a lot of Yahoo, uh, could you buy the Huffington Post, please? And then, yeah, you know. I mean, this is also why you know the the VC model doesn't work particularly well for media which is less scalable than software. And when you see stuff like that, where a media company gets funded at a crazy valuation in the beginning, that's part of what's happening. It's, it's the investor treating a media company, which doesn't have the same growth dynamics as a software company, as if it were a software company, simply based on the fact that it's online and your distribution cost is lower. And, and it just doesn't net out for anybody. Right. And so that's particularly when the economy is, not at a, you know an all-time high. Um, investors in, in media companies like that are going to try to exit within a very narrow period of time, and uh, the ins- the bad incentives there are are just um, you know myriad. Well, let's so, talk about let's talk about flouting the law the way they do in sure. Silicon Valley. San Francisco outlawed self-driving cars, and somebody I don't know who it was started saying, that's okay, we're still going to test self-driving cars in San Francisco. There's an expression, what is it, commit the crime that asks for forgiveness later? It's like no permit. What's the term? There's an actual term for it. Uh, I'm not sure I know what you're thinking about. It's don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Break the law. There are no laws, and if you broke it, just say, I'm sorry, and hire lawyers. And that seems to be how Silicon Valley works. So when COVID-19 started killing factory workers, the the Alameda County health inspector said, stay at home. And the Tesla factory in Fremont, which is part of Alameda County, had a shutdown. What did uh, Elon Musk do? I mean, you know, Musk violated the shutdown order and then threatened to move the company out of California. Um, I I think one important thing to understand about this is that, you know, corporations tend to view things in terms of uh, corporate liability, but so do entrepreneurs like Musk. So his only consideration is, you know, what can we do? You know, how can we walk right up to the line of legality and maybe even step over it? in the way that's still going to render everything profitable for us and not introduce too much liability, which is one of the structural problems we have. There, there's not a lot of, uh, there aren't enough accountability mechanisms when you have those kinds of incentives built in that can kind of constrain somebody like Elon Musk. You yeah. know, the SEC fines are slaps on the wrist to him. He views them as just the cost of doing business. And they're also, it's very difficult story to tell narratively in a lot of cases whenever he violates these laws because they seem like to a lot of people victimless crimes on some level if he manipulates the stock well who gets hurt um 
And it's why it's more difficult for people to kind of be outraged about it, um, especially if they think what we're talking about is a legal technicality and that what Musk is doing overall is um, is needed or it's innovated, innovative or, you know, or as, as you put it, it's, it's uh, you know, the work of a genius. Right. Is he pro-union? No. <laughs> no, he uh, he got in trouble as well for making statements that looked like he was, uh, you know, threatening people who were organizing. Um, and he was, he was, you know, he was held accountable by a court for retaliating against some people who, who had been organizing, but the penalties are just, you know, nothing. And he knows that. So he sort of builds it into his decision-making. Um, and then there's, no reason for him to behave otherwise. So he was like manipulating the Tesla stock price by tweeting out stuff, right? And yeah. then the SEC fined him what? Like how much? Uh, he ended up paying twenty million, and they they gave him warning. But he, he's still tweeting crazy things that, um, you know, he does it in such a way that he can a little bit come up with some excuse that offers a little bit of plausible deniability that that was his intent. Right. And um, he has a deal with Tesla. If it goes the way he wants it to go, he will end up being richer than Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates combined, right? Well, if his, his holdings continue to appreciate, he could be. And before we get to Peter Thiel, Musk cooperating, working with NASA to go to the moon. How can one man have his fingers in so many different pies without somebody? And I have to think it's more than just an angel investor. How does he get to do so much? Is is there somebody behind him? Some Do we know? No, I think he made... Two very risky bets early on after the PayPal exit that I think were formative for him. He, he said he he very early on decided that he wanted to go into uh, space. That was that was uh, important. And you know Tesla was an early big bet. Um, and then he he didn't spread himself very thin beyond that. You know he wasn't uh, a lot of people who have those kinds of exits run off and start like twenty companies. Um, and it sounds like he's doing so much because these these are both behemoths now. They, you know, they've both been successful in their own ways. Um, but I think part of his success was that you know, first of all, he he capitalized both of those businesses pretty extensively in the beginning. I think he put, and I have to check this, but something like seventy million into SpaceX initially, and that's a very capital intensive business with you know not a huge commercial market uh, right now. Mm-hmm. And um, and a lot of companies have failed at it. So uh, there, you, you know, you could applaud him for risk taking, uh, particularly in an environment where, frankly, you know, the government has been scaling back our space exploration program for decades, and, and you know, NASA is severely under resourced. Um, so yeah, it, it sometimes it seems like he's he's doing more than he is. I, I think just because the profile of those two companies is so nice. enormous. And he's so outsized as a personality, you know, he's people latch on to him because he's, you know, outrageous and opinionated. And he represents a kind of uh, machismo that some people find 
admirable. Is he a misogynist? Um, Does he have a history of saying things about women that are not particularly appropriate? Yeah, I, I would say I'm not as well versed on that as, as people who've covered him more extensively and really been his, uh, you know, biographers. But yeah, and then there, in one of his ex-wives, uh, Justine Musk has written extensively about their marriage and some of the stuff that she's written. She talks about it. Before you go, you were the founding editor of Gawker, Nick Denton's empire, and one lawsuit that was funded by Peter Thiel, who is a uh, supporter of, <coughs> excuse me, a supporter of uh, Trump. After Trump got elected, Peter Thiel decided to move to New Zealand. I think he's come back. Explain what happened to Gawker. There was a very expensive lawsuit that involved. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. So, well, first of all, there were multiple um, lawsuits about the same thing. So, I think people, who, if you got like a five-minute top-level version of the case, your understanding of what happened is very different than if you actually followed it, uh, which very few people did. I mean, it's an inside baseball media story. Um, but uh, yeah, two things. One is it was Bubba the Love Sponge and Jesse Ventura, and then uh, okay. yeah, and Peter Thiel trying to keep his sexuality under wraps, right? And he wanted no. There was uh, so Thiel was angry primarily about um, from what I understand from people who who know him and. Uh, Yawker had done some reporting about, um, there, there was a story that a guy named, um, actually I'm blanking on the reporter. There was a story years ago that, that was titled, you know, the most powerful venture capitalist in, in Silicon Valley is gay. And it was about Peter Thiel. Um, Thiel later said that the story outed him, although that, that doesn't jive with my understanding happened at the time. Um, and that was his public justification for funding the Hulkless lawsuit against Gawker. Right. What had also happened is that Gawker had done a series of stories on Teal's failed hedge fund, noting that uh, the losses were catastrophic. And, and it was straightforward business reporting, but it was snarky, as you know most Gawker content was. And that, he thought, really damaged him because in the, you know, when they broke that story, um, or reported it, they, you know, there are consequences to that. Your limited partners start asking for redemptions, um, and he was angry about that, mm-hmm. which, you know, we we're accustomed to having angry subjects sometimes whenever you cover powerful people, but he and Nick also had a personal dynamic that was Nick Denton, a, a little bit the, the publisher of Locker. They, yeah. they knew each other. I think initially they kind of admired each other because they have a lot in common, um, they're, they have similar sort of ideologies, similar backgrounds. Uh, and I think they were very curious about each other. But when, uh, Gawker did the, the reporting on Teal's hedge fund, I think it sent Teal over the edge. Um, so the Hogan case initially, it was a case about privacy. Like there's another like top line thing. People will be like, oh, they get sued for defamation. It's like, no, that's, that's not even what the case was about. But they, it had already, Hulk had tried to sue Gawker in two different jurisdictions before the case went to the court in Florida. 
and two judges have rolled in Gawker's favor. But the reality is, if you really want to keep something like that going, you find a new charge and jurisdiction shop and take it somewhere else. But this was a civil um, lawsuit that was funded. Yeah. That was funded by Peter Thiel. I, I, we have to wrap it up. I, hopefully you'll come back. I mean, the takeaway from all this that I find so disturbing is that Peter Thiel, a billionaire, wanted to get Nick Denton, wanted to put Gawker out of business, and because he has the money, he funded, as I understand it, the the Hulk Hogan lawsuit against Gawker. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, and he wanted to put Gawker out of business. He didn't want, like, a, a reasonable remedy for what, for a variety of reasons, seems like it, it you know, it wasn't, it, you know, the outcome wasn't. Um, but it was very personal. You know, yeah. he wanted to attack Nick in, in a way that was... So a billionaire can sue you into oblivion. And now, you know, hedge funds are investing in lawsuits as investments. Class action lawyers now go to hedge funds and say, give me some seed money to sue this company or this person, and I'll give you a piece of the settlement. That is what end-stage capitalism looks like because they're running out of places to put their money. Hedge fund managers are actually investing now in class action suits. That's well, that's, that's actually been the case for a while. I mean, that, that's not a new business. I, I think what makes the TL situation unique is that normally when people go into court, what they want is, is a justice-based outcome that's where the remedy is reasonable for whatever the, the offense is. And that's not what Teal wanted. Teal wanted total annihilation, like in, in the in the most extreme way. And the justice system really isn't set up to deal with that. It's not set up to deal with a billionaire who can just drag people in and out of the courts until they're bankrupt. Even even somebody like Nick, who was who was you know wealthy but not anywhere near Teal's wealth. Um, and we're just not. Like, there's nothing about the system that's designed to remedy that. Right. Well, Elizabeth Spires is a brilliant writer. Her latest piece over GQ is called The Provocations of Elon Musk. She is the founder of The Insurrection, a digital strategy messaging and polling firm that works with progressive Democrats. And she is the former editor-in-chief of Jared Kushner's New York Observer. She joined us today in Brooklyn. How do people follow you on Twitter? Uh, my Twitter handle is just espires, E-S-P-I-E-R-S. Fantastic. I hope you come back. Can you stay on the line for one second, Elizabeth? Sure. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. I know what to do, Laura House. Laura House, I just figured it out. Yeah? All right. I figured it out. Help me. Huh? Bump me like Chris Rock just showed up at the improv. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. 
You sad, pathetic hump. Let us now go to Los Angeles, where Laura House is standing by. She is the head writer of the BBC's Secret Life of Boys. Her comedy CD is Mouth Punch. She has a podcast called Will You Med With Me? Hello, Laura House. Hi, David Feldman. I just and the world. I just figured out our segment from now on. I How exciting. just I just I just figured it out. All right. I'm so happy. All right. What what pray tell? Well, when uh, when we figured out how how to do Zoom, I was doing this with Liam McEnany, who's no longer talking to me, and oh we had this idea to do a Zoom party, and Liam would trash the listeners because we had, over the course of a year, answered listener questions, and it was a very uh, cantankerous relationship between Liam and my audience, and I loved it because it. It, I, it was the first sign that there was a community out there. Mm. And then Liam stopped talking to me. That seems to happen a lot. People stop talking to me. I know that's our future. Do you ever think about that? No. Are you no. going to say to me that breaks us up? I'm going to say something that's going to break us up? I'm just saying. Maybe it's that. Maybe it just happened. No, you've got to be looking for, you know, we talked about conspiracy theories today, you know, and people need a an explanation for their troubles. And I find that a lot of troubled individuals decide that me or somebody is the source of all their their problems. I'm a bit of a lightning rod. That was my that was my poor name as well. So that's not bad. Yeah, lightning rod. And uh because the only place I could put it was in a in a wall socket. So um hmm. no woman would so, But I figured out how we can do our segment cuz I don't want to talk politics with you. Yeah, I'm I'm a real bad sounding board. No, <laughs> so you're fantastic, but I, I'm just like, God, that sounds terrible. <laughs> but I, I figured out what our segment is going to be. All right. What is it? It's the chat room. Yeah. Chat room. Although you have to be talking about something for the chat room to have something to comment on. Yes. Here's the thing. I, I don't mean to lead with a criticism, but I just did. Sorry. Okay. So we have a, 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 a virtual studio audience here. Let me mm-hmm. let me say hello to them. It's a hot crowd. And yeah. so I don't look at the chat room until the next day. It's distracting. I'm in the moment. I've got a lot on my mind. I, I, mm-hmm. I want to be in a relationship with my guest and my listeners. So the chat room to me, is myopic. If I, if I focus on the chat room, I'm not thinking of the larger picture, which is my guest and the people who are listening to this podcast mm-hmm. at home. And the chat room is very distracting, but it's valuable. And I read it the next day, and it's very funny. It's very funny. It's very funny. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculously funny. Intimidatingly funny. It's also, and sometimes the timing is so perfect. Because people are so smart and funny that we're like when we tune in on Friday nights, it's like this is going, this is going over here. It just it's yes, yes, the whole thing. yeah, 
So the only rule I have for the chat room is, you, you know, you have to be polite, not to me, but to my guests. Uh, I welcome the jokes about the dent in my head. I mean, I love Nick Denton, by the way. I'm sure there's going to be we, we talked about Gawker earlier and mm. the, the publisher of Gawker was named Nick Denton. And I immediately thought, oh, I wish my listeners could scream, you know, because um, they make jokes about the dent in my head. Apparently, I have a dent oh. in my head. Now I, I see it. it. Yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so I figured out our 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 uh, our segment. All right. It's What's chat room? I I don't approve of the chat room. I ask my guests uh, not to read the chat room when I'm doing the show. It's distracting. I don't mm-hmm. mind the the studio audience chatting. I object to my guests reading the chat room while they're supposed to be focusing on my show. And I have found that some of my guests, Laura House, are chatting, are chatting (laughs) while chatting with me. Oh, yeah. And I don't, I don't approve of that. And I don't want any note passing during my show. But apparently there's been some chat. So why don't you chat to Laura how should we do this? They're <laughs> what? They're already chatting at me. Okay. Um, so Stephen o- o- Overall or Overall says it's like Mystery Science Podcast Theater, the oh. chat room, as the comments are going on, and it is. Um, Lars Medley um, regrets not seeing Oingo Boingo former members. As you know, my fiancé blows horn for them. What? Huh? Uh, I, I hope thought you did that. Better. <laughs> um, how dare you? The uh, his dog was sick. Hope, I hope your dog is better. Uh, um, I, I was just. Yeah. I, I wasn't listening to a word you were saying. I was emailing. All right. I was emailing, but I wasn't chatting. Wait, did I did I say something sexist to you about? Did I say something sexist to you? By the way. Just now? Yeah, yeah. You threw it out in a in a gentle lob um, because you heard the word blow. And you just had like an old guy joke writer reaction. <laughs> Muscle memory. It was I like, that's what, you did, what did I say? Because I was sending Ben Burgess a note. Can we start a little late? And I just heard blow. And I just yeah. did a that's no, what did, she said joke, did, right? You just did comic writer's room reaction. But I thought that was what you bumped up to. Yeah, yeah. Nobody, nobody really was listening. But then... Uh, <laughs> But then John Hayes already called out, Laura's not listening to David now because I was reading the chat. <laughs> All right. This is great. This is a, this is, I, now I'm like, I can't wait. I'm team, I'm team chat. You're but team chat. We, we do have to be talking about something. So they have something to comment on just so you know. Well, just read me the, read me the next chat. I'll go to, I, I can read Q and A. Let's see if there are any questions. Well, this, people are very excited about my, Meditation podcast. Not really. It's just Nancy Siegel, but maybe that'll catch on. Yeah, well, you do meditation with us on Friday nights at our uh, office hours party. And it's always great because the Reverend Barry W. Lynn delivers a uh, invocation or some kind of prayer. And then uh, I don't know if Jonathan Conrad is here yet. We have a relief pastor who sometimes shows up. Uh, and then we have you do 
a meditation, then you're... Can you hear my dog? Sorry. Still blaming it on the dog, are you? Yeah. And then, uh, and then Master Connor breaks things with his head. The, uh, oh, yeah. That's, the, the karate um, kid. It's a pretty amazing setup. You don't need to bring the dog into the shot. So I'm trying to show everyone my dog's butt. Uh, there, the camera came up on me. There, this is pretty much what the dog's butt looks like <laughs> if it needs a shave. So, what are they saying in the chat room, Laura? I mean, is there uh, a question that anybody wants to ask Laura, or perhaps me? And and well, Laura will answer it. And one question is about the what? What's the last joke you wrote or jokes? Um. I don't write jokes, so yes, I don't. Yes, you do. I mean, I write, I don't like formally write them, so I never remember. You're I the head like, writer of the Secret Life of Boys. But I don't write like standalone jokes. I write like, oh, when Ethan <laughs> comes in, he says this or. Th-. I mean, I had that obviously in my stand-up days, and I make jokes, and then I just forget them, and I don't. I don't really log them anywhere. Yeah, but jokes don't mean anything. I'm just hilarious all the time, so I don't really... What? Jokes don't mean anything unless they have context. That's why you're a great writer. Just to write a joke yeah, doesn't mean Yeah, context is a bigger deal. So it might have been a question for you. When's the, what's the last joke you wrote? And do you even sit and write write them? Or you do the podcast all the time, they just kind of flow out of you. Uh, I'd be so lucky to have a joke flow out of me. Uh <laughs> Of the other stuff that's I don't know I I can't write a stand up joke I have to perform oh for an audience in order for a joke for a stand up joke to occur to me like I'll have a rough idea but until I'm on stage working it out but then they're different type, like but if you're writing for a TV show or you know a comedian who's going to be on stage you can it's different for TV. You can just write for TV. But a club or, you know, stand-up, it's so personal, you, you know. I still remember your weird joke about your kid, like your kid made like some kind of macaroni art or like something that's like not good art because they're a child because mm-hmm. this was 15 years ago when they were little. And then you were like, but if when if I make a tie out of human hair, I'm the weirdo. It was. Oh, right. That was the arena of the joke. Right. My daughter brought home. She was like six years old. She made art out of macaroni. And, and I was supposed oh. to say, this is really beautiful. I'm going <laughs> to, you know, I, and I, I, and I got pissed off that, you know, people are starving and they're, they're making art out of food when people are starving to death. But I'm the bad guy if I make a necktie out of human hair. I'm the bad guy. It's I I love hearing the joke and the impression. I have my impression of what it left me with, which was the macaroni art, which I never would have dreamed I got that detail correct. I don't remember, like, sometimes I remember the verbiage, but it's so visual. Like, I just remember the scene of, like, a little girl and her shitty macaroni art. Yeah. And then you holding up a 
a necktie out of human hair. Yeah, but I mean, well, and maybe it has. I picture it with it has a little design on. It, it still has polka dots and whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you really went for it. Yeah. That time. I, you know what? I got to be honest with you. I didn't make a necktie. I actually made a necktie out of uh, Ed Asner's skin. Oh. And people think I made it out of human hair. But it's actually <laughs> Ed Asner's skin. That's that's the most recent joke you've written. I, th- I think so. But you would have to know that Ed, has, Ed Asner is a hairy man. John Hayes said it was a noose. Um, Reverend Barry Lynn is in the chat. <laughs> Wait a second. He's coming up next, and he's, ch- the re- he's that's- chomping at the bit. He's not interested in waiting for you. Like, how dare you send out a schedule and then run behind? That's what a schedule's for, David. Well, let me do. Oh, uh... but we do. We do have. Uh, I have. A, I have to. I have a Sophie's Choice moment here. Oh, uh, let me do this. You can move on. I have. I have stuff to do. No, 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 no. I uh, and I also had a joke. Um, oh, oh. Wait a second. Uh, let me think here. I had a joke. What, where were we just talking about? Jokes. Hair. Ed Asner's skin. Yeah, I forgot. I, I had a really great joke that I was going to be proud of. Uh, let me ask the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Can we, can you swap with Ben Burgess? <laughs> let me, uh, let me. Do you think he memorized your schedule? I know, but. And he's I, like, oh, Ben Burgess, sure, at four? Yeah, got do, it. Do, no you, do you mind if, uh. Do you think we don't exist until we log into your Zoom? It's all. <laughs> could could we could we, Reverend Barry W. Lynn? Can, can we go at five, or could, could you just want to? Can we do this? Hang on. Why don't hang on? Why don't we do this? Why don't we bring the Reverend Barry W. Lynn in, Lennon, and play till four thirty. I'll bring. Ben Burgess in at 4.30. Is that possible, or would you be mad at me? The Reverend Barry W. Lynn. I'm not going to be mad at you. And you like Laura House. You settled that big dispute with her, didn't you? (laughs) It was was huge. What were you fighting about? uh, We were having a a lawsuit (laughs) um, because of the BBC and, and that boys thing. Because I don't think girls know what boys think. Yeah, he accused me of not understanding um, the secret life of boys. And it was very litigious. Well, but I, I didn't say this. <laughs> he said he has all kinds of secrets. And then I was supposed to guess what those secrets were in court. It's very yeah. difficult to overcome. I didn't say this. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn accused you of gender appropriation. That, that it's yeah. not your story to tell. Yeah, I get it. it. It does. It does depend how you spell boys. Yes. Yes. You mean whether it's with a Z or not? Yeah. And a B O I Z. That's oh. boys. That's very hip. 
Yeah, we didn't hip it up like that. Can, yeah, well, can the, um, so tell us what's going on in the chat room. And is Barry W. Lynn, is he participating in the chat? I feel like that's a betrayal. No. He, it was off your, do you want to say it? Do you want me to say it? I don't want oh, to start go. another fight with you. I just, David, I think that you don't understand why teachers give assignments to students like making macaroni art. They're supposed to take it home, and then you're supposed to eat it. So it's not an either or. With glue? You're You're supposed to eat Elmer's glue? What's wrong with Elmer's glue? Look, the president of the United States wants you to eat Bisol. Yeah. Why is it why is it bad that I want you to eat Elmer's glue? I stand corrected because I'm wearing orthopedic shoes. <laughs> is that a joke? <laughs> That's a good joke. <laughs> Slag whistle. Ooh boy. Look at that. So uh, what what are they saying in the chat room? Um Many things. Someone's asking about the secret life of boys. Yeah, tell us about the secret life of boys. Um, I like this. I like that this is great. Tom Tom Buck has some organizing information for you of um, maybe schedule some gaps in your – put some gaps in your schedule. Let's see. Play some music in between. Tom, you have a complaint? Whoa! It's not a complaint at all. Embarrassing. Oh, it's. I'm sorry. I'm. I'm surprised to be unmuted. I'm doing yard work. Um, No. (laughs) Wait a second. Wait. 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 First, I find out. Wait a second. First, I find out that people are chatting. That there's this thing called a chat room while they're supposed to be paying attention to my show, and now they're doing other. You're doing yard work. Next, I'm going to find out that my listeners are driving in their car, going for walks while they're listening to me. I thought everybody just sits and listens and doesn't do anything. What do you mean you're doing yard work? Hey, David, I have restless leg syndrome. I couldn't possibly sit for six hours, but I will be listening to the whole thing. Do you really have Um, restless leg syndrome? No, I'm just listening for six hours. That was the shocking part. Hey, I'm sheltering in place alone, and I just sold my house yesterday. So I'm uh, doing things are going great. So, but I need to clean up some things before I get out of here. By the way, I have Um, restless penis syndrome. (laughs) Oh. And is it out there doing some yard work? Yes, it is. <laughs> and it wants to mow somebody's lawn. So, David, I, I was just suggesting. <laughs> this is now my. Hey, I, excuse me for one second. Tom, hang on for one second. I sure. think this is going to be our best segment. Having a reverend watching over us while we try to make jokes, and he just encourages it. Go ahead. Yes. Yes, Tom. I'm just going to say, suggest, you're like me. You're going to talk longer than you think you're going to. So why not schedule that? Um, you know. Uh, oh, so you're criticizing the way I'm producing the show. Is that what you're saying? No. He's it's, giving helpful it's, input, David. No, it's it's your strength. It's your strength. So just oh. everybody knows it. I don't think you really need to apologize. You spent 15 minutes apologizing about a 20-minute delay, but everybody knows <laughs> you always have a 20-minute delay. Yes. So just go, just no apologies, never right. apologize. Right. 
This show should have a 20 minute delay. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, you worked in radio. They used to have a seven second delay. I think they, but my show needs a, a 20 minute delay because people just yes, don't curse. They go off on a, on a rant of, uh, of hatred towards me. Uh, but I, you know, I'm sorry. Keep up the good work. I'm sorry. Keep up the good work. What? I'm just saying, keep up the good work, David. I got to run. No, I cut you off. You don't cut me off. I cut you off. <laughs> Tom, you, you're doing the right thing. End it. Well, 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 how come, how come, I'm the host. I'm, I'm David, Tom. David, I insist on muting me right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, no, you mute yourself. You no, unmute you. Yeah. I think there's, there's, how do I mute Tom? Oh, he went. Tom's, Tom's done with you. He's done with me. Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Yes. There's a there's a charm to the sloppiness, isn't there? Just you know, finding out how this thing plays out. I mean, do you feel? Of course, there's a yes, there's a charm to it. Not entertaining, but there's a charm to it. Laura, do you feel disappointed that you're kind? Does the sloppiness piss you off, or do you find it yeah. interesting? No, it's. I don't listen to your show, so I don't. I don't care either way. No, I'm talking about like right now. No, when, no, I'm fine. I'm I'm bad with things that are well organized. Um, you got a six point five on the orthopedic joke, by the way. And I don't know if you were ranked for um, mowing down the bush. Oh. <laughs> Why don't we bring in the Reverend Barry W. Lynn? Okay. Are you there, Reverend? Of course I'm here. You can see me. I can see you. But <laughs> what do you think? I'm invisible. What are you trying to gaslight his existence? I don't know, but I love this. I, I love this 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 slow motion car wreck. Is is? Oh, hang on. Let's bring the Reverend in, but let's go to LG Stylo Five first. Oh. Unmute yourself, LG. What is your question? For the Reverend Barry W. Lynn or Laura House. Okay. LG Stylo 5. Hello? Yes. Hello, LG. Hi, David. I was just um, on my third dog that I groomed while, I was, while you were talking, so we can't get things done. <laughs> wait, 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 wait a second. Well, I don't understand. I love all the fixing up that's happening while Feldman can't just sit there. You're you're grooming dogs? My dogs. I've got three little Yorkies, and they needed to be groomed this year. And I figured, why not do it during a podcast? So hang on, you're not you're not listening to every single word and every. I got you in my ears, but you're not focused completely (laughs) on the show. You're doing dogs, yes. Tom from Alabama is playing video games. <laughs> yeah, I'm being productive. I'm Are, do you take notes? I want to know if people take notes about this yeah, show. That no, would be good. Would be and also, good. I don't know how the LG thing came up. Sorry. You what? I said I don't know how the LG thing came up. I guess uh, the way it logged in, right? Yeah. And and where are you grooming your dog? What What state? In the sink. In the oh, sink. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's ninety-five here today, David. So it's perfect day to let them go outside after I, after I groom them and and dry off in the sun. But but what state are you in? 
California. California. So I'm in a state of insanity. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, LG, LG Style Carl. Five. Thank, thank I, you, David. That's an accidental name, but I love that. Uh, what are they saying in the chat room? Let's go. Let's go to Laura. We've got people walking their dogs. James Tingey. Um, Joe Britton's on a bike ride. Kathleen Ash is doing a jigsaw puzzle. I, I we feel- all have we all have to put you third place in our activities. <laughs> the Reverend Barry W. Lynn yeah. joins us. Yes, it's an honor. And I'm, should I apologize to you? Of course. I'm sorry. Just in general principles. I, I, Why I, would you apologize? I what do I, you think I would be doing if I wasn't sitting here watching Laura attempt to teach you a few things? Go what would I do? <laughs> Three-day, five-state killing spree, the way you normally do? <laughs> yeah. That's an amazing plan B. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, I'm going to tell a story here. I'm just going to tell an anecdote. Do, you know, Bill Buckley used to do Firing Line, those yes. specials. and um, Kind of like this show. Kind of like this show. And uh, he had a producer named Warren Steibel who died a few years ago, but he Stivel was as far to the left as Buckley was to the right, but they got along very, very well. And Warren called me, first time I, I ever talked to him, he called me and said he had gotten a fundraising letter from the organization I used to run, Americans United for Separation of Church and State. He said they were going to do a show about the religious right. Would I be interested in coming on it? And I, of course I would. And he said, I, he said, I didn't always work in television. I used to direct movies. I said, what's one of your movies? And he said, The Honeymoon Killers. Ooh, that's, I've I said, seen the that. Honeymoon, that's a black a, and white I, film, right? It is. And I said, Warren, I've seen that movie in two places. The only two places you should see it. At the American Film Institute and at a drive-in movie theater. And he was very impressed, and it formed a lifelong bond. Oh. I knew I, w- I was on Buckley's show many times because of that. The Reverend I Barry W. Lynn, let me do your introduction. Do you mind? Okay, go ahead. The Reverend go Barry ahead. W. Lynn was the executive director of Americans mm-hmm. United for Separation of Church and State from 1992 to 2017. Besides being an attorney, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of, I hope I'm pronouncing this properly, Christ? Yes. I got that right. You welcome, did. welcome, the Reverend. Well, Barry. thank you. It's nice to be back. And, and you know Laura House. And yes, because we've been chatting. In the chat room. Hi. Plus from the courtroom. Courtroom to the chat room. From the courtroom <laughs> to the chat room. Boardroom to the bedroom to the courtroom to the chat room. <laughs> this is part <laughs> works everywhere. <laughs> so what is pissing you off today in the world of religion? In the world of religion? Do you have a religious nut for I us? do, but it, but it doesn't irritate me quite as much as what the women in Donald Trump's life have been saying over the last 24 hours. 
Uh, Kellyanne Fitzpatrick is how I first knew her, Kellyanne Conway, said that if you can stand in line to go get cupcakes, you should be able to stand in line to vote. And that's stupid. Yeah. There's no analogy there. You don't have a constitutional right to have cupcakes. Well, no, I mean, cupcakes, should. at least you get something. You, you get a cupcake, and you know it's going to be good. And <laughs> you, you know, that, was, that was delicious. You stand in line to vote, nothing. You get nothing, and you get a headache. Right. And if you stand around for a long time in this COVID-19 environment, you can get more than a headache. How bad is this? Yeah. This is terrible. Yeah, it's 100,000. When, when we started talking about this, and before you even chatted with my wife, the doctor, yes. I said this is going to be very you, she, serious. Hang on. She told you? <laughs> Your wife, wow, what a, what a great what? marriage that you, <laughs> you have that she would <laughs> Can I just say something? A friend of mine. You, you have the, sure. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn has the greatest wife ever. And Laura, uh, we have a mutual friend who uh, was finally in a relationship. And he said uh, they broke up because she was greedy. I'm not making this up. He wanted an open relationship. And she wasn't into an open relationship. And I said to him, Calling it an open relationship is such a sleazy framing device. Like open, re- basically, you said to your girlfriend, "Do you mind if I go f other women and not, you know?" And I'll tell you, so we'll be open. And she said no. And just the the idea of calling it an open relationship. Yes. Yeah, so your wife came on, your brilliant wife came on right about a month ago. Maybe long. That's right. Yes. And how bad was the COVID-19 back then? It was about 60,000 deaths. I think it was fewer than that, quite frankly. Right. Look, every time I go out, you know, I have that fancy uh, skull mask that I wore last time. Yes. I go out. But people are not wearing masks here, which is why the District of Columbia is now becoming a hot spot. Right. Right. You know, but, it's it's wishful thinking. I have found myself. I have to go outside. I just have to get out of the apartment. And I sure. wear my mask and I wear my gloves and I go out and I, and I you know, we're we're all optimists, and I just start to think, well, it can't be that bad. It's like, you know, but it's really bad, isn't it? Of course it's bad. I mean, it's it's terrible, and it's going... Yeah. This yeah. is not going to go away for a very long time. Right. This is going to be with us until we get so many people who have been infected who have antibodies, and with any luck, and it's going to take a little luck, you're going to have to have those antibodies keep you from getting it again, something that has not yet been established. I I sound like a doctor because I'm living with a doctor for 49 and a half years. Right. 
So, yeah, so it's every bit as serious as I think I told you when you were chatting with the gentleman from the China News Agency who said it's not so bad. It is bad. And it's going to get worse because if you saw all the photographs and the videos from this past weekend, you know that everybody's out on the beach. They're all talking about how if the president's not wearing a mask, why should I wear a mask? This is very dangerous stuff. And are we seeing are we seeing a connection between these pool parties and hotspots? Are they able to prove it? Well, I won't see it for another week because people don't they don't become symptomatic right right away. So a week from now. Yeah. yeah, there's going to be. And there's, there's little evidence that places in the South where they have decided to party on, um, things aren't going well. Right. But you, you don't, you're not going to see that big blip for another week. Right. Right. <sighs> well, we, so, we, we, we well, soldier on. And the best thing we can do is just pray and open up the... Uh, the economy and here at the day. Yeah, well, I'm joking. I don't. How about the new? Well, you know, uh, Kaylee McEnany, who uh, I, I don't. I, I was on. I used to be on with her when Fugelsang and I used to do the Ed Schultz show. But what, what's her background? She's the press secretary, right? She's a press secretary. What, what, what did she do before? Who did she lie for before that? Well, she briefly worked for CNN as the conservative commentator. Ah. But today, she's now back talking, and she actually is back once again promoting hydroxychloroquine and Mm. saying that she has heard from doctors about how good it is. So she's doing the same thing her predecessors have done. She's doing the same thing Kellyanne does. She's doing the same thing on all of the Fox News people do, which is just take this useless and indeed dangerous drug and acting like what's the harm in taking it? Maybe it'll prevent you from getting the disease, which it clearly won't. I should say there's no evidence that it does. Has Twitter made up its mind as to whether or not it should apply the same standards to Donald Trump when it comes to fake medical advice that it applies to everybody else? Who's the subject of this? Did who? What are you saying? Well, you know, the stuff that, the beginning. Well, you know, like Donald Trump is recommending cures for the COVID-19 on Twitter. That violates Twitter's right. conduct. And uh, he's accusing Joe Scarborough of murder. Yep. That violates Twitter's code. But you see, David, he says, and his supporters say, he didn't say Joe Scarborough murdered that woman. He just put it out. He put out the information so that people would be able to make decisions on their own Mm -hmm. about whether Joe Scarborough is merely a horrible person or whether he's also a murderer. And even Rush Limbaugh the other day said people make, they, they don't understand this. He's not pushing a conspiracy theory. He's not pushing this information. 
He's just reflecting that it's out there, which means nothing to me. Of course, of course, he's pushing it out. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, let's go to our callers and see what's on their mind. We have the Reverend uh, Barry W. Lynn here and Laura House. Let's go to the chat room. Laura, what's 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 happening in the chat room? (laughs) Um, David, just so you know, I have to. I have to run. No, no, you can't um, do I, that to me. I, I have, have to, to get on with my to, day. I have, and to. I have to eat lunch, but I do want you to know. <laughs> sorry, chat room. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull the covers back on the chat room. Chloe had to go, and then about five or six people said bye, Chloe, which was very sweet. I don't know Chloe, but she seems very well. Very sweet, yeah. In the chat room, and then people are like. Hey, where are you from? Oh, Canada. Oh, and then where in Canada? Toronto, you? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. What does that have to do with this conversation? <laughs> they, people are just getting to know. <laughs> <laughs> wait a second. And, and your excuse for having... It, it couldn't be a more serious, like the actual underpinnings of our very democracy Free speech, the president accused someone of murder, and people are like, Toronto, you? I'm from that area, but I live over here. Now, so, uh, you said, you, you, you said, I'm really sorry, I have to go, and I thought, oh, she's got some pressing, and you said, I have to make lunch. I do have to make lunch. This is my one thirty, <laughs> and then also, I have to put in like some office hours today. Oh. I've got it. Like, I think we're going to actually film this show and they want me to rewrite all the scripts. <laughs> no big deal. No big deal. And and again, before you go, uh, any chance I could be in the secret life of boys? Oh, <laughs> we would like to feature the dent in your head. That's a callback. <laughs> Laura House's comedy CD is Mouth Punch. Her podcast is Will You Med With Me? And she is the head writer for the BBC series Secret Life of Boys, starring David Feldman. Yep. Right? Yep. I, I love and you. At the end, we get to the one who keeps all the secrets, and it's you. You're yes. like, it was me the whole time. All right. All right, bye, everybody. Enjoy uh, lunch, Laura House. <laughs> Reverend, good seeing you. Yeah. Thank you. Reverend, uh, thank you, Lord. Have that, have the macaroni that was too good for David to eat. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh look, it's it's art. I can't eat art. What a what an excuse. Eat the damn macaroni. Yeah. What good is art if you can't eat it? Exactly. <laughs> Bye. Just, just disappearing. The show started off really good. It went off the rails. Uh, Why? I, I'll tell you what happened. Just to bring up the sure. here, sure. I had a really good interview with a reporter from the American Prospect about voting rights, and it was really good. And then I looked down, and I realized I hadn't hit the record button, and uh, then it went uh, completely off the rails. It just went completely off the rails. Hello, Professor Ben Burgess. Hello, comedian David Feldman. Uh, you know the Reverend Barry W. Lynn? Hello I'm just uh, summing up how today went. It, it, it's uh, the show went off the rails. I, I had a, a reporter from the American Prospect on, and we were talking about voting rights, and it was really scintillating. 
one little problem. I forgot to hit the record button. So uh, that was the first thing. But then uh, Shahid Buttar, who's running against Nancy Pelosi, was booked. So uh, he didn't show up. And now I understand why. And that kind of threw me because I worked really hard on questions for him. And I took it personally. And uh, it just the show went off. It's, it's officially off the rails. But we're and, and I've got uh, some people mad at me. I think the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is mad at me now. Are you mad at me, Reverend? Uh, of course I'm not mad at you. Okay. Well, uh, we didn't get to do your segment. I did notice that uh, Pastor Jonathan is in the chat room. Oh, let me let me just bring him up so we can do this bit. Hang on. This is for you, Professor Ben Burgess. Okay? Well, why don't we do this? We'll take a break, and when we come uh, back, uh, we'll do know. the bit that I have planned. <laughs> gonna, let me just put it this I'm going to add to the bit. Whatever you think you're doing, I have an add-on. Okay. I'm going to do that, too. All right. We'll be right back with our bit, and then Professor Ben Burgess. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized humps. Welcome back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. I don't know why at this point. It's gone completely <laughs> off the rails, and we don't have the bit. Professor Ben Burgess joins us. He is a philosophy professor. His latest book is Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. He's a he's a, a columnist for Jacobin, and you can hear him on the Michael Brooks Show every Tuesday night doing the debunk. You've read his masterpiece, Give Them an Argument Logic for the Left. Welcome, Professor Thank you, comedian. And we have the Reverend Barry W. Lynn here, who uh, we were going to do a bit for you that I was all excited about because I don't know if you know this, but the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is the winner of David Feldman Presents America's Next Top Pastor. Did you ever see that show on NBC where pastors from all over this country compete <laughs> to be David Feldman's next Top pastor and Barry W. Lynn, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, won the last rites competition. We we had five finalists rushing to the hospital to deliver the last rites to a, a dying patient, and he got through the elevator challenge. We 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 made all the elevators, we slowed them all down, and the Reverend Barry W. Lynn was able to crawl through the the the, the roof of the elevator and. He got to deliver the last rites with only five seconds remaining. It was just miraculous. And so he's our top pastor. And we have Pastor Jonathan Conrad. This is the bit. He's a, Jonathan Conrad is a real pastor in North Carolina. And uh, during office hours, he comes on, and, I, and I'll say, don't need you tonight. We've got the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. And he'll say, well, I prepared a sermon. No, you're bumped. Bye, and I hang up on him because he's our relief pastor. He's a backup pastor. That's, <laughs> we should have done David. the bit. I know. I, I'm 
Like right. he did it, but look, he's going to call back, take his call, and then we'll extend the bit. Are you going to stick around? Yes, if I can extend the bit. We'll expend it. The only thing that... That's the only point. Okay. He should have a chance to redeem himself yes. and perhaps become America's next great pastor or no, whatever. David Feldman presents America's next top pastor. Okay. I'm right. going to mute you, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Better mute me. I'm going to mute you. Because I, I don't. On when he calls in. I'll put you back on. Well, I think we've hit rock bottom, uh, Professor Ben Burgess. This has <laughs> completely gone off the rails. But it's good to see you, sir. Who are you debating tonight? Uh, not debating anybody tonight. I'm, we're uh, recording a uh, an episode of uh, the Dead Pundit Society right after this, and I've got like a Skype I need to do right after that. Right. Well, the so, uh, the well, thank you for fitting me in. I, I know um, you know. I, I know that the uh, my schedule is pretty rigid today. So, are you teaching? Uh, I'm not teaching this second. I've got. I am teaching a couple of summer classes, but those haven't started yet. They we're right now. We're in between the spring semester and the summer session. And are you doing it all on Zoom? Is that how it goes? Yeah, uh, they're yeah they're online classes. Uh, certainly over the summer, I have no idea what's going on in the fall. I think that there's. Um, some uh, some pressure uh, politically for Georgia State to uh, reopen in person in the fall. We'll see what happens. I just saw the uh, governor, uh, Brian Kemp, made some sort of statement about how you can't fight the coronavirus at home. I'm not quite sure what that means. <laughs> Lure it out to the town square to have a shootout or something. Yeah, he but, loves his guns, doesn't he? He does. <laughs> and that is bullshit. Oh, come on, Reverend. That's the Reverend Barry W. Lind. I cannot... Now that is bullshit. Gee, I, I cannot believe that a Reverend talks that way. Oh, dear. Okay. If you have any questions... Oh, uh, hang on. <laughs> this is... Oh, you could already give the call. Hang on. <laughs> hang on. Hang on. Is this Pastor Jonathan Conrad? It might be. Hello, Pastor Jonathan Conrad. How are you? I'm fine, David. How are you, sir? I, I should mention that Jonathan Conrad is uh, a very, very great pastor. And uh, not as great as you. Keep going. Well, you, you are Pastor Jonathan P. Conrad from St. Paul's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. And... I'm a big fan of yours, and I, I know I asked you to write up a, a a prayer and a sermon for us today. Did you do that? I did, sir. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I just finished it. Yeah, I don't need you. Uh, uh, it turns out uh, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn could make it, so you've been bumped. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, wait. This this is the, you're not being fair to Jonathan Conrad. I think he should have an opportunity to redeem himself, and I have created the way to do that. Wait, 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 wait one second. He's a backup pastor. He's the backup. It doesn't matter. He has a chance to redeem himself if he can just answer a couple of questions about the Christian faith. And I carefully came up with some questions, 
And if Jonathan, if you don't mind, I'd like you to answer these questions. I wanted to hang you, up on him. I get a, a lot of joy hanging up on my relief it doesn't pastor. Doesn't matter what you want. It matters how do we extend this bit. Well, hang on. He's, all right, all right. Barry W. Trust Lynn. Me. All right. This is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, the winner of David Feldman Presents America's Next Top Pastor. Go ahead. But we're keeping right, philosophy so professor pastor. Ben Burgess. I've pissed everybody off today. Go ahead. Uh, pastor Jonathan, it's nice yes, to be able to ask. I think you deserve a chance to answer these questions. These are questions that I, I learned about in seminary at Boston University. You know about the Apocrypha, yes. right? Yes. What about the Pseudepigrapha? What can you tell us about the Pseudepigrapha? Uh, specifically, can you name three books that are generally considered a part of the Pseudepigrapha? Yes. Okay. What are they? Oh, you want me to name them? <laughs> yeah. Uh, collection, uh, Harry Potter writings, uh, Harry Potter. Um, that's yeah. right. Okay. 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 He, 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 you failed. He said, because that though, that's insulting to his intelligence. Wait. He knew the answer. All right. Let, <laughs> Pastor, wait, wait a second. I got another question. The if he can get this answer, if he can get this question right, then he, he can take my job. Okay, there's a very famous Christian hymn. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. used to quote it, uh, Once to Every Man and Nation, written by the famous uh, poet James Russell Lowell. What was the historical event that prompted him to write Once to Every Man and Nation? This is an easy one. Uh, the, the debut of the iPhone. <laughs> yep, not right again. Two questions, two failures. I'm sorry. You pastors are so competitive. We are competitive. Of course we are. All right. Pastor well, he didn't know either one. Well, maybe he knew it, but he maybe he was too scared to give the crop. You know, uh, I don't know. Okay. What do I know? What do you know? Okay. Pastor Jonathan Conrad. What? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you've been bumped, but we'll do it yeah, next week. Yeah, thanks a lot. Okay, bye, bye, Pastor. Up uh, yours. <laughs> he really is a pastor. <laughs> I got a pastor mad at me. Uh, okay, all right. Uh, well, I'm not mad at you anymore. Well, because you, you you've got the taste you. of blood. You, you're an angry, angry. I would like you to go to Ben. Okay, philosophize with Ben. I'm going to take my walk in the woods okay. now. Okay, they're so lovely, dark, and deep. Those dark words. and deep. They, those, the, the woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have... Uh, miles to go before you sleep. Yeah, I think Gary yeah. Condit. I think Gary Condit, the former yeah. congressman, said that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he did. Uh, <laughs> he was innocent. So right, just say goodbye to me. Goodbye. Just say goodbye to me. Goodbye, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Thank you. No, that's not how you're supposed to say it. Goodbye, the. Oh, 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 yes, thank you. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Oh. Reverend, stay yes. out of trouble. Stay <laughs> out of trouble. That's okay. <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. I am so sorry. This show has just gone completely off. Are you mad at me, uh, Professor Ben Burgess? I'm furious. I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I'm having, this did not go as uh, as planned. All right. Yeah. Uh, you can tell how mad I am. Yes, I, uh, I'm very mad. Uh, if you have a question, we have people uh, listening from all over the world who are attending. And if you have any questions for Professor Ben Burgess, author of Give Them an Argument, Logic from the Left, have you offered to debate Jordan Peterson? Uh, well, I can make that offer now. Professor uh, Peterson, if uh, if you listen to the David Feldman show, and I assume that you do, um, then um, I'd be up for it. Or, you know, if, if you're still recovering from... Uh, Whatever was going on in Russia, then, then you know, next year or something, just, uh, um, you know, have your people call my people, except for I don't actually have any people, so just send me an email. <laughs> Who have you been debating? Every time I check, you're, you're on Twitter announcing a debate, uh, and... What- yeah, uh, so, uh, so there was... Um, Stephen Molyneux a little bit ago. Right. It was uh, Gavin McGinnis. You debated Gavin McGinnis? I did. When? Uh, it, was, it, was, it was brief, but it was like, I don't know. It was like a month and a half ago. He, or is, the, he is the founder of the Proud Boys, but he disavows any claims. Yeah. yeah. Is he, he back? Yeah. Is he back with the Proud Boys? Uh, no, no. I, I think he, uh, I think... I think his attempt to distance themselves himself from them is still ongoing, but I, uh, it was, it was relatively short, you know, he, uh, you know, he was talking to a few different people, but I, I, you know, I had a conversation with him where I said, well, you, I've seen you say you're a libertarian. I mean, I should say that I think Gavin McGinnis is a libertarian, like general Franco is a libertarian, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, you say you're a libertarian. So, you know, explain to me how a libertarian society would handle COVID-19. Uh, and he sort of tried to say that uh, we, uh, that there would be, um, that the way this, uh, that like people would just self-quarantine since, uh, you know, if there were no shelter in place orders or anything, uh, because they would see how dangerous it was. Although it was amazing because like you would think, right, the guy found advice, uh, he used to be a regular Fox News contributor. You would think he would be much better on his feet than this, but he uh, he sort of wanders from talking point to talking point, and so literally within 30 seconds of saying everybody would still self-quarantine, he was saying dog-whistly things about how nobody was quarantining on the south side of Chicago. Um, so, you know, it, it, was, it was pretty bad. And then uh, at the... Uh, at the end, um, you know, he, he said that uh, that if, you know, if we just had a completely, you know, free market response to the crisis, that, you know, you could sell a vaccine for whatever the market would bear or whatever, uh, no, no, no checks, no anything, then um, there would be no more deaths than there are right now. And at that point, you know, I, I'm usually good about this. I usually don't do this, but... I couldn't help myself. I just started laughing, and then he started yelling at me, and the conversation was over. Really? Yeah. Wow. Do they believe that, or are they just propping up Trump? I mean, if Trump uh, announced, I mean, yeah. it is conceivable with the authoritarianism that Trump yeah. could say, stay in your home, don't leave. 
wouldn't they just do a 180? Wouldn't Gavin McGinnis say, of course you have to stay Maybe, home. yeah. I mean, I don't know that he necessarily has a super coherent, um, you know, worldview. I mean, I think he probably, you know, he's probably mostly interested in, you know, triggering the libs or whatever. But, um, but anyway, as far as what should be more interesting discussions, next week on Wednesday at 2 Eastern uh, on the Surf's uh, Twitch channel, I'm debating um, Anthony Samaroff, who's a uh, Scottish libertarian. Uh, we're going to be talking about capitalism and exploitation. You can watch. Uh, he did kind of a similar debate with Richard Wolff last year. You can still see that on YouTube. Are there any legitimate libertarians out there who can make a reasonable argument? Uh, I mean, it depends what you mean by reasonable argument. If it mean persuasive argument, I obviously don't think that. Um, I mean, what are the roots? If, I, I, if, if, if like if like a better argument than Gavin McGinnis or Stephen Molyneux, then yeah, sure. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, I think like Gene Epstein uh, is is a libertarian. He does the uh, uh, this uh, the Soho Forum uh, in New York, and he's um, yeah. I, I mean, I debated him, and I mean, obviously, I think he's wrong. But you know, I mean, I think he, you know, he he's certainly he's certainly much more serious and consistent than these other people are. You know, so that would be an example. Well, you're a and philosophy you know, professor, yeah. so libertarianism. You, it, does it draw from whom? Locke, the idea of freedom and that the government yeah, is yeah, dangerous? Yeah, yep. So, um, so it so sounds what, reasonable, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so would Jefferson have been a libertarian? Well, presumably a more consistent libertarian wouldn't have had slaves. Uh, but, but Jefferson, you know, certainly partaking of the, uh, that sort of, tradition of classical enlightenment liberalism, some threads of which are predecessors to libertarianism, because like you mentioned Locke, and so Locke has a theory of property rights where he says that like if you uh, if you mix your labor with something, then uh, then then it becomes it becomes yours, and like people who sort of developed this theory from him think that well, okay, we all agree that everybody has a right to own their own body, and so, like, if you then, like, then you have a right to your labor, and then if you use your, you know, you mix your labor with objects of the external world by, like, making things, you know, that, like, those things become sort of an extension of yourself, uh, which, you know, I guess real real quickly, because I know we want to take a couple of questions before I have to turn into a pumpkin, you know, and, yeah. uh, at five, but, uh, but real quickly, I just say that my, you know, Okay, well, one one more substantive point and one crass one. More substantive point about that is um, is is if you actually take this seriously, then hold on. Um, why are why don't workers deserve the full product of, of what they make? Right, because they're, they're mixing their labor with objects to you know to make this case. Uh, and and of course, what the libertarian will say is, well, they're voluntarily agreeing to this employment contract where they're giving it some bit to the owner uh, as as profits. But you know, of course, I would push back against how voluntary it is because under the current system, most people have no realistic choice except for to enter into those contracts. And then the more crass thing is that like the whole thing about labor mixing, I think, is kind of silly anyway. It always it always reminds me of like little boys who are, like, arguing about who something belongs to, and one of them will, like, spit on it and say, all right, it's mine now, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, like that, just, that just doesn't seem like a, a very interesting view about, um, 
about what makes a distribution of goods goods just. You know, I mean, I think they're more plausible alternatives. Right. Well, before you go, and I don't blame you, let's go. <laughs> let's go. <laughs> let's go to Mexico, where Alicia is standing by. Hello, Alicia. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Um, I had a question about communitarianism, and yeah. I don't necessarily mean the reiteration of it in the 1980s and 1990s, but the long history of these kind of utopian societies within the United States and this um, you know, when we talk about Marxism, oftentimes it gets reduced to materialism and the collective. We talk about libertarians. We are talking about this reductionism to uh, the individual, you know. And this is, I think, the last couple times ago I was talking about the Emersonian vision of the individual, but not as the individual against the world, but as the individual as the world, this kind of e plurimus unum, uh, you know, vision. And the reason I'm bringing up about communitarianism is that, you know, when you ground indigenous peoples, a lot of them are not only suspicious of the right, but they are very suspicious of the left. Mm. And partly because, you know, they want to preserve their, their traditions, their customs, their, their ethnic, um, expressions and their religious beliefs. And it seems that oftentimes, Communitarianism, um, not necessarily from a right perspective, but I think it's an interesting thing to look at from the left, because I think it helps to incorporate or at least make people feel uh, more at ease that they're not going to be swallowed up by the collective. And so I'm kind of just wondering if you have any comments about that or what you think of that. Thanks. Yeah, good. Thank you. Thank you. Finally. Uh- <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, I maybe have a little bit of a different perspective on this, right? So I think there, there are two issues there. One is about um, preserving culture, uh, and the other is is about uh, whether, like, what sometimes, like, what people sometimes think of is like you'll hear people on the right, like especially people from that kind of. Ayn Randy kind of libertarian perspective saying, oh, you know, leftists are like collectivists by which, by which what they mean is that they, is that they think leftists don't care morally about individuals and the rights of individuals. You know, they only care about some larger mass, you know, that the individuals are part of. Uh, and I think that's wrong, right? So, so to start with the thing about, uh, the thing about preserving culture, uh, I think that it, I think it makes all the difference in the world what you're preserving culture from, right? So if if you're preserved, like so, like my my kind of like simplistic example would be uh, if you're preserving culture from like book burning Nazis, then you know that of course that that's good, right? You know that like you should preserve culture in the sense of like not having it be like um, aggressively destroyed by somebody who's trampling on your rights like that. But on the other hand, there are people who talk about preserving culture who, like, you know, what they mean is, like, you know, think about, like, you know, your your aunt who would be outraged if you married a non-Jewish girl or something, right? That's That, that strikes me as reactionary, bigoted nonsense. And there's plenty of reactionary, bigoted nonsense about preserving culture that happens even within wow. very oppressed communities, right? Like, just because you're oppressed uh, doesn't mean you're right, right? So, um, and, of course... Different people within those communities have totally different views on this stuff. And, of course, like Native Americans, in your example, have been subjected to lots of things that are in the first category that absolutely do deserve to be, you know, like like notorious historical examples or, like, 
uh, forcing Native children to, to go to, you know, boarding schools where they were indoctrinated with Christianity, etc. That's all obviously awful. But on the other hand, if you're worried about preserving your culture, your religious tradition is just that, like, there's a normal cosmopolitan process of mixing between different cultures as people live together. And some people might not want to pursue, you know, to carry on those traditions. I think they should have a right to, to not do that too. Right. So, and this gets to the point about individualism and so-called collectivism about morality. Uh, and actually it also ties into what I was talking about with David just before uh, when we were talking about libertarianism, because I said at the end that I think there are more, there are views about justice and distribution that are more plausible than, um, than the Lockean kind of libertarian one. And so, so one view that I find a lot more plausible is like, uh, John Rawls, uh, who, who says, has this famous thought experiment about how, uh, the veil of ignorance said, all right, you want to know what a just society would, would be like. Uh, don't, um, imagine, that people are designing it from behind this veil of ignorance. They don't know who they're going to be in this society. Um, so they, so, um, so they don't, they wouldn't want like white people to have privileges that native Americans didn't, for example, because they wouldn't know whether they were to be white or native American. And I would add, you, you can get all the economic collectivism you want out of this because, um, also presumably you wouldn't want, to have a society where CEOs were paid 500 times the wages of the average worker because you wouldn't know whether you were going to be a CEO or a line worker. Um, so, and, and But I think the crucial thing to notice about this is that even though this is a view about justice that's very uh, egalitarian, it would call for lots of distribution, uh, somebody like me and, and, and not just me um, would, would, you know, lots of people made this argument, think that it, it really entails, you know, socialism, but it's still a view that's ultimately rooted in the rights of, of individual human beings as such, right? That like, you know, because we don't want whatever individuals would be on the bottom end of an unjust society to experience those, um, to experience those conditions. Great, great. Thank you for uh, saving this segment. And the show. <laughs> Is that what happened there? By the way, Alicia's questions have consistently been really interesting. This has been good. Uh, do we have, maybe we can sneak in one more question before I sit down? I'm going to let you go because it's, it's okay. time All for right. you to, uh, All uh right. to go. I like Professor, I, you're the, I'm going to let you go, uh, because Professor Ben Burgess has, has to get to a, uh, a shoelace that needs to be tied. Like, <laughs> Laura has it. I got to go make lunch. That's, <laughs> but no, you have another thing uh, in two minutes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the pro- Society yes, podcast. yes. Yeah. Professor Ben Burgess is a columnist for Jacobin. You can see him every Tuesday night on the Michael Brooks show doing the debunk. And his latest book is Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. Thank you. Uh, so, oh, hang on, uh, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. And that is bullshit. Oh, come on, Reverend. And that is bullshit. Come on. Thank you. When we come back, I am going to take your calls. We have comedy writing legend Alan Zweibel coming up in a half hour. But it's going to get interesting. I'm going to take your calls. We have a live studio audience, and I'm going to take your calls. So if you want to talk to me, I will talk to you. And first, we are going to thank Professor Ben Burgess, and we're going to listen to a song by one of our listeners. 
Jim Mahood wrote this. It's really quite beautiful. Thank you, Ben Burgess. And this is a song written and performed by Jim Mahood, who does all our jingles. This is an original piece. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Welcome back. I'm David Feldman. We have a live studio audience here. Still, for some reason, we have people sitting in on this. And I'm about to take your questions. Uh, If you would like to sit in on The David Feldman Show, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the office hours menu and sign up. I'll send you a link and you can... Sit in and ask our guests questions, and you can uh, speak up when I open the floor, which I'm about to do right now. I'm going to open the floor for questions. Coming up, Alan Zweibel, comedy writing legend, helped start Saturday Night Live, knows all the the beginnings of SNL and Gilda Radner and created the Gary Shandling Show, and he has a new book about comedy writing that I should have read before I did today's show. Dan, uh, I'm going to open up the floor, but uh, how bad is this? Uh, I think we're doing well. It could it could be a lot worse. It could be a lot worse. It, it's all going to be a memory by tomorrow. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's going to come together well. Anyway, uh, we have a, a studio audience, and whatever is on your mind, whatever is on your mind, I will take these questions or statements in the order in which they have been received. Let us go to Toronto, where Steve has something to say. Hello, Steve. Yep, I'm good. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing good. Doing great. Doing great. Doing good. Doing great. Show's going great. (laughs) 
<laughs> Pissed I, off I all my guests. <laughs> um, I actually happened to catch that moment where where you realized you didn't press the record button, like I, you know, and then I had to get away. And so yeah, I saw that you handled it pretty well, actually. Yeah, it was very embarrassing because I'm at that age now where when you know you pay attention to those kind of things and you go, mm, maybe it's time mm. to go on the ice flow and go away. Paul sent me a text that said it's being recorded by Zoom. The problem is mm. if I run that and the interview that we did, it, it won't work. Mm. I just have to. It's up there. Anyway, go ahead. What what what, what can I do for you? Well, you could separate them. Like you could keep the resume recording as a backup. But but my question is um, it's a really really simple one. Uh, I've heard your show a lot. I know that you, I don't know what the proper terminology is for this, but you have little snippets of sound between each guest in each segment and that kind of thing. And there's one segment that when you play it, I go, "What the hell is that from?" It's like a it's a recording of like it sounds like a happening on a mission control yes kind of thing, and it and it's um. And it's well, called in your backup becomes now. See if we can get some more brain power in this. We got yeah. one. That. But is yeah. What is that? Um, is, what is that? Yeah. It gives me the chills every time I listen to it. It's okay. a mission control during Apollo 13, when just as they're leaking oxygen, and when when Apollo 13 looked like it was not going to make it back home, there, there was when they first when he says, "Houston, we have a problem." Uh-huh. They pretty much knew that it was over. They made it home, and wow. I think his name is Kranz. I think that was the, the this guy. Uh, he's director of mission control, and he just keeps cool and just works the problem. You know, one step after another, just fix what's in front of you. Don't think of the two million parts that have to come together to get these guys mm-hmm. home safely. I always use that as an inspiration. Because whenever things are going horrible, like today, I uh, I think of Apollo 13 and just work each individual problem. And uh, so to me, it's, uh, you know, take it one day at a time kind of yeah. philosophy, which, uh, you know, doesn't seem to be working today. But no, I'm. <laughs> It's working. It's working for yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, I'm not like uh, I'm pissed. I, you know, I'm I'm pissed off that Shahid Buttar, who I was really looking forward to talking mm. to, because he's taking mm-hmm. on Nancy Pelosi. And I I I, mm. I talked to Harvey J K last night, and we were going to really talk about challenging Pelosi and the D Triple C, and Shahid didn't show up. And I, in my defense, we sent three confirmation. Letters. I mean, it normally runs very smoothly. Uh, it, it, then you forget to hit the record button. But and Shahid Batar doesn't show up. But other than that, what are you going to do? I I do feel that mistakes are an opportunity because, like Paul sent me a note. He said, "Why don't you just run the Zoom interview that you, you know, I forgot to record it, but it was recorded by Zoom." Well, the sound quality isn't as good when Zoom delivers the the audio. And secondly, I always think when you make a mistake, when there's an opportunity within that mistake, and you should just go deeper into it, and you'll find something richer. And I thought the interview with Ms. Gibson turned into something richer and better. Mm -hmm. So I hope, but uh, 
Is that uh, your question, Steve? Yeah, that's it. Thanks for answering my question. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let us now go to Tom. Hello, Tom. Coming up, Alan Zweibel. Alan's a real comedy writer. Unless he cancels. Have you finished mowing the lawn? What are you doing now? Trimming the hedges? Hmm? No, I'm making dinner. Oh, you're making dinner. dinner. Okay, good. What are you making? Uh, You don't want to know if you're a vegan. Sorry. Okay. Um, What do you mean you're making dinner? You put something in the microwave. No, that was a timer. That was a timer. Hey, real quick, great show today. Thank you. Thank you very much. The interview that went, the interview that quote unquote went wrong with um, Brittany, I'm sorry, I can't remember her last name. Brittany Gibson from the American Prospect. It was terrific. The thing is, I I wanted to kind of expand on it. Democracy, small d democracy is my favorite subject. And this voter suppression stuff, a lot of the issues that were coming up are reminding me that we're, anytime we battle to try to get, gain access to the polls, it seems to me that the Democratic Party ends up arguing about, well, who would this increased access help? So the whole argument about will mail-in voting be good for Democrats or good for Republicans, in my mind, it, it should be irrelevant. We should be promoting access to democracy. Right. And it reminds me of just growing up in Washington, D.C. Right. We, we didn't have the vote. We still don't. Um, and we were always told it's unreasonable to expect D.C. residents to ever gain statehood unless simultaneously a Republican state could be created somewhere to completely offset the change in the power structure. But that's the story of America, so, but, you know, slave right. states versus free states. I mean, that, that's... Right, and I want to... I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm such a nerd on this subject. I mean, in the 20s, they froze the size of the House of Representatives for the same reason, to prevent the new Americans from ever having any political power great enough to actually affect legislation. You know, I wonder that. Let me hang on for one second. Hang on for one second. I was reading somewhere, and I and I posed this as a polling question a couple of weeks ago. Didn't I? To increase, we have 435 Congress right. people. I think but, you did. I'm. I would like to see um, it expanded by 100 people as soon as possible. I'd love it if if uh, progressives would promote this idea. But what? But give me the history on that because I read somewhere that our founding fathers believed that as the nation expanded, there should be more men yes. in the House of Representatives, and theoretically, right. it should be a ratio of 15,000 citizens to one representative in Congress, that there would be, that George Washington would have wanted like 1,000, well, 2,000 people serving in Congress right now, right? Fundamentally, David, just go back to, I called the other day and talked about my experience being a precinct committee person for the right. Democratic just, Party. Yeah, but no, no personal stories. No, 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 it's not a personal story. The point is, you're supposed to, it's supposed to be within the realm of possibility that you have a personal relationship with your U.S. congressperson. And so the size of the districts matter, and the size of the districts are crazy out of whack, and it's intentional. And uh, if we actually had Americans have the ability to have a personal relationship with their representative, there may be a stronger commitment to democracy. Right. Um, 
So anyway, do we know? I mean, I I have to get Corey uh, Brett Schneider to come back on the show. Do we know if it's for? Do we know the number? Is it in the Constitution? It was. I don't know what precisely, but it was like. I want to say it was that it was about twenty five thousand people per district way back, but for a, a while they tried to keep it in balance. And it literally in the twenties with Wilson and a lot of expansion and just the Klan, uh, you know, becoming powerful again, they made sure that all the Italian immigrants, all of the particularly socialist thinking, was right. not going to infect the U.S. House of Representatives in any real fashion. It's interesting. Let, 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 let's. I want to discuss this because this was something I asked. Oh, I asked of Alan Grayson. That's right. Let, let's move on. That, it's, let's to be continued. Let, let's. I, I like this topic. Thank you. Uh, okay. Let us now go to Kevin. Where are you, Kevin? You have to unmute yourself. I'm unmuted. Yes. Where are you, sir? I'm in Toronto, sir. Toronto. Two yes, calls from Toronto today. Yeah. What can you I do? We're going to move here, actually, David. I'm sorry. We're going to move here at one point. <laughs> I want to move to Canada before yeah. they make me. Yeah. I think it's... A- okay. Uh, I was just going to request a couple guests, David, that you used to have on your show. This will show how long I've been listening. You used to have Jody Armour on your show. Yes. Yes. I've reached out to him. He's a great oh, law professor from USC. And, you know, we, we had these great conversations about whether or not you can just walk up to a cop and say, go F yourself. And yeah, he was on a, a several times. Fantastic every time. I, yeah. I hope to see him again on your yeah. show. And somebody you've never had on, I don't know if you can get him, but David Graber, the anthropologist. He who, writes about bullshit jobs, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, no, <laughs> yes, I, I would love to have him on. Would he do it? I think he would. Uh, he doesn't have a book to promote right now, but I just read a fantastic interview with him. I mean, in terms of your thoughts over the last few years, he, I think you'd find him extremely interesting. He's a very original thinker. Reminds me a lot of Noam Chomsky in terms of his perspective on a lot of things. And, and right. I think you would, it would be a fantastic conversation. I, I would like to. Lost. You know what? I, I, it's a great idea. He, he, I think he has a book called Bullshit Jobs. Is that what it's called? That is his most recent book, yes. And that is bullshit. And Reverend, I, I sent him home. Uh, here's what's interesting about that. Thank you, Kevin. Anything else? Because I, I want to talk about bullshit jobs in a second. Uh, no, that's it. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you so much. I started, I, I read the sample, you know, if you download it on Amazon, I read the first chapter of Bullshit Jobs. And basically what he's saying is most jobs are bullshit. Most jobs are bullshit. And every job I've had, for the most part, is bullshit. And everybody I was working for was bullshit, that the jobs were really simple. But there was layer upon layer bureaucracy and just waste. You know, they always talk about the federal government wasting money. Anybody who's ever had a real job knows about the bullshit, the waste that goes into corporate America. And I'm obsessed with the bullshit of show business, not the bullshitting, you know, hey, great job. I'm talking about the jobs are bullshit that, you know, a, a writing room is 
bullshit. You sit around and talk about food and scatological humor, and you waste a lot of money. And I was told by an agent I once had, uh, you know, you're supposed to waste money. It's it's like money's like fertilizer. You spread it around and just hire a lot of people and waste money. It's good for the economy. And, you know, yes, but it's bullshit. Most jobs are bullshit. And we're discovering that, I believe, Kevin, with this economy shut down, that uh, the stock market is going up for whatever reasons. But it does suggest that a, a lot of what fuels uh, the profits, uh, you don't need all the bullshit. You don't need the CEOs and the mid-level management. Most jobs are bullshit. And I think Zoom, you sit in on these Zoom meetings and you really realize, like, going to an office is bullshit. The people in charge are full of shit. Your coworkers are full of shit. It's most of it is just people jockeying for power and dominance over one another. And whatever product you're producing is just an accidental byproduct of one human trying to get on top of another human being. And I, I like to think that maybe one of the good things that comes out of this pandemic is most of us will realize that it's bullshit. These jobs are bullshit. Uh, this podcast, for me, has been the challenge of getting rid of all the bullshit in my life. I, I've been studying. I'm obsessed. Most of you who are longtime listeners can tell that the show has changed because I've become obsessed with uh, the logistics of making a product because the economy has been shut down. There's very little work for comedy writers right now. So I'm able to focus on streamlining this operation and trying to figure out how do you do something without any bullshit? And, uh, you know, it's just interesting to, to try to make something without any bullshit. And today, there was a lot of bullshit. But, uh, yeah, I, I want to get him on the show. Speaking of bullshit, let's go to Los Angeles, where John is. Do you agree with me, John? Most of the jobs... Our- uh, well, uh, actually, I read David Graeber's book, Bullshit Jobs. Uh, he, he had a, like a conversation about it at a book signing kind of event, and he's a he's also one of the um, catalysts for the Occupy movement. So I think he would be a great guest as well. Is he Canadian? Um, no, he lives in England, but okay. he's American, as far as I know. Okay. Uh, uh, but yeah, most so jobs be, you were. I, I don't want to get. Well, we, I haven't given your last name, but you've worked. You work in Hollywood, right? Yep, I work in the industry. Yep. Most of the um, jobs in Hollywood are bullshit. I, I, I have a feeling that applies more so to above the line, which I guess most people don't know what we're talking about when we say that. The people who are getting like uh, residuals and we're the creative end, you know, like writers, directors, producers, and actors are above the line. And maybe in those arenas, there might be more bullshit. But below the line, which is the working stiffs like me, the crew people, the technicians, and drivers. Um, our jobs are essential to actually getting the work done that you create, but the products we turn out are highly variable as with any creative endeavor. So it just depends. I think it's in the eye and ear of the beholder as in the audience or the customers. For well, what I we think, put out. I, I think 
not that I've ever really understood Marx, but he talks about the alienation of labor, that there used to be the guy who made the shoe, and then they start figuring out how to mass-produce shoes, and the shoemaker now goes to a factory, and he's, you know, there was a time when he could point to a shoe and say, I made that. And one of the things I've noticed, certainly in Hollywood, is that it's important to have alienation from the final product. So if you write a movie, the producers will say, this is a fantastic movie. It's so good. We've hired 10 other guys to punch it up and rewrite it. And your name will still be on the script, sort of. But it's so. And the reason behind that is not to make a better product. It's to alienate the writer from the final product so he can't lay claim to it financially. Well, there is another aspect to this, though. I originally wanted to be a screenwriter, so I I do know about that side of the business, but I just don't make a living at it. And I think there's also the bullshit aspect of people just justifying their existence. These development executives and producers, they have to do something to justify having their high salary jobs. And that would be one way of justifying themselves and say, well, we need to change this and that. Let's hire another person. It's it's their own bullshit for their own sake in that case. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not necessarily alienating the writers as so much as just justifying their own existence. You know, there, there's a satisfaction case. to real work. If it's gardening, if it's digging a hole, you know, physical work or actually writing for yourself and that the you can go, I made something. Look at that. I created something that brings you close to your creator. I mean, it's spiritual. And what a capitalist system does is it says... No, you cannot have a sense of satisfaction with your product because then you're going to own it. You can't own it financially and you can't own it spiritually because then you'll lay claim to it. So the the, the system is set up for you to be alienated from your work and work. You know, Freud talks about it's, you know, it's work and sex. That's how we define ourselves. Well, if you're alienated from your work which we all are, we're miserable. That's what a capitalist system does by design. It makes sure that nobody can point to anything and say, I did that. Because if you can, then you, uh, you'll make money. You, you, you'll yeah. be, you can't. And, the, and then the people who, who can lay claim to owning the final product had nothing to do with the making of that product. They just put up the money. They put up the capital. You just look at the copyright at the end of a movie or TV show. It's not copyrighted to a person. It's copyrighted to a corporation. That tells you that that's basically right. what you're saying. Right. Uh, and, it's and, a, it's and a the, person and, <laughs> right. as and, a corporation. And, and, you know, I've gone off of this with Dr. Harriet Fraud, who is this Marxist psychotherapist who's been coming on the show. And she's been teaching me and the listeners to filter everything through the prism of this oppressive economic system that we're forced uh, to to work in that uh, it, it's just you know being creative we are manipulated because they stroke our ego they flatter us they tell us we're a genius and we believe that but that's in lieu of a piece of the action in, in Hollywood yes. they, they say you know what you're creative. 
I don't want to pay you, so I'll tell you you're a genius. And, and because we're human and frail, we take that instead of money and say things like, I don't care about money. I just love the thrill of being part of the action and being told I'm a genius. And the people who are in charge, the capitalists with the money, are thinking, what a sucker. What a sucker. Uh, <laughs> let me go. We, I, I got Alan Zweibel in the room. And so uh, let me take one more call. Let's go to Dean, Pilot Dean. Dean, Dean, how are you? Uh, you have to unmute. Hey, Dean. I'm trying to unmute. I unmuted Hello. you, sir. Hey, you know what? You're a pilot, right? Yes. And yes. today we have to wrap it up. But, you know, I think about you all the time because ever since we started doing the Zoom show, I feel like an air traffic controller. I'm bringing people in. I'm bringing people out. Everything. I'm on a schedule and guests. I'm like, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to land each guest. And today, uh, we bought the farm on a couple of guests. I, I realize it's not, it, but anyway, you're a pilot. I shouldn't be that macabre. What, uh, what, well, what, what, how are you today? What can I do for you, sir? I don't know. Did I raise my hand or something? <laughs> <laughs> I, I Okay, I'm gonna. It's always great when a pilot can't figure out uh, how to work Zoom. When we come back, when we come back, the brilliant Alan Zweibel will join us. Please, please, please. It's well worth the wait. Please, we will be right back. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Alan Zweibel joins us. His new book is Laugh Lines, My Life, Helping Funny People Be Funnier. Welcome back, the great Alan Zweibel. Hey, David, how you doing? It's, I'm much better now that you're here. You have a, a storied career writing for Saturday Night Live. You were there at the beginning yeah. You created the Gary Shandling show. You've worked on Curb Your Enthusiasm. You've written movies. And you've spent a life helping other people be funny. Yeah. You know, um, I started right out of college um, writing jokes for Catskill comedians. $7 a joke they paid me. And that was the going rate in 1972. $7 a joke. Are they still hiring? I, <laughs> I <could use> that. <laughs> well, <laughs> the ones who are still alive, they may be, or maybe if you get in, you can be in their wills. <laughs> they, um, but most of them were really pains in the ass because they would only pay me if the joke got a laugh. Mm. So yes. I would travel up to the Catskill Mountains, sit in the back of a uh, nightclub, hear them do my material, and they'd come off and invariably say, gee, Alan, that uh, joke about this paving the driveway really went into the toilet and I went, gee, I heard laughs and we would bargain and I go home with $4. So I made a really handsome living. What sounds was, like what, I'm bragging, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I know the feeling. I mean, I wanted to be a comedy writer and uh, one day I hope my wish comes true. Was it, <laughs> what was the thrill of going up to the Borscht Belt and seeing these guys? What did, what did you think 
show business was. How old were you? I was 21, 22, right out of college. So what did you think show business was when you were up there? That's a great question. When I had gone there 10 years earlier with my parents, when they used to take us for holiday weekends, any of the big hotels, I would sneak into the uh, nightclubs and I'd see Alan King or Buddy Hackett or Tony. You're you're breaking. Lewis, you know, and I go, wow. Wow, that's really cool. So, so that was the that was the breeding ground for comedy back in the sixties and in the fifties. And those people started there and then they would move on and get their own shows or Las Vegas acts or both. But when I got there ten years later, anybody who was going to be a big star had already moved on. And I was left with the guys who uh, weren't going to make it. Every Morty, Dickie, Freddie, and Lee that ever lived, (laughs) I wrote jokes for for $7 a joke. So the thought was, okay, let me see if I can write jokes. Let me see if I can make an audience laugh um, with my stuff. And it started to work. And I was 21, 22. They were 45 and 50. So it was like writing for my parents' uh, generation. So and I knew that ultimately that this was not going to be where I was wanted to be. So what did so, you uh, what, what did you decide to do? Did you you know some people decide well I'm going to be a stand up comic I don't want to help somebody else be funny I'm going to be funny all by myself why why didn't you choose to become a stand up? I you know something I'll tell you what I did I took the jokes they wouldn't buy from me. And I made it into a stand-up act for myself. And there were two clubs in, in New York in the uh, mid-'70s, uh, Catch a Rising Star and The Improvisation. I always liked writing so, too much. I didn't want to be a comic. I, I liked the, the craft of sitting down with your words and figuring out what order to put them in. But what I did was I went on stage, and I delivered the jokes these old guys wouldn't buy, buy from me with the hopes that an agent or a manager would come in and like the material and want to represent me to be a TV writer, which is what I wanted to be. And I did that for, boy, you know, it seemed like a real long time at the time. I did it for about seven months, okay? Mm -hmm. And then one night a guy named Lorne Michaels saw me. He was roaming and scouring all the clubs in New York uh, looking for actors and writers for this new show that would be premiering in the fall called Saturday Night Live. And he liked my material. I met with him two days later, and I brought in a book of 1,100 jokes that I typed up of mine. And I gave him the book, and he opened it in front of me. He read the first joke, and he went, "Uh uh-huh, good. Then he closed the book. And to this, you know, I had to leave the book with him. Obviously, he read all the jokes and had to give it to the NBC executives to sign off on it. But um, he was smart enough. You know, he'd look at one joke. and Do you remember what the joke was? Oh, yeah. Yeah. To show you how long ago this was from the reference points in it, I had written a joke saying that the post office was about to issue a stamp commemorating prostitution in the United States. Ten cent stamp. You want to lick it? It's a quarter. Okay. That's great. <laughs> yeah, and that, that was the best joke I'd ever written. I made it the first joke on uh-huh. the first page, and I just prayed they wouldn't look at the second page. You know? All right. All right. 
right? I just put my best jokes on the first page and my second best jokes, if you will, on the last page, just thinking maybe some executive would read the first page. All right, I'll go to the last page and not read the stuff in the middle. But he used to do that. I know that he uh, hired Franklin Davis based on uh, one or two jokes he had seen them do in their act. So it was a matter of sensibility and uh, where you came from as a uh, as a writer, as a writer and your reputation, as opposed to what you're looking at on paper, because you have to be in a room with other people. You have to be easy to get along with and quick witted. Sometimes it doesn't show up on paper if you're only working by yourself. Right. You're absolutely right. You know, David, you know, as well as I do that. You know, whether I partnered with Gilda or uh, when I was uh, co-created at Gary Shandling's show or did 700 Sundays for my friend Billy Crystal, those those partnerships, when you're writing with somebody for them, at best you're vice president because they have to save the words. Right. If they don't believe it and they can't say with conviction, it doesn't matter. So I, I I knew early on that, okay, they don't feel comfortable saying it, but I know this is the kind of thing they should be saying. So I'd say, okay, how about this? So it is a degree of, you know, it's social. is the mm-hmm. degree of diplomacy there. Right. Comedy is better when it's written by a team. Two, Absolutely. And I think it's two. It's you, you have kids. There's a rule of three. When there's a play date that involves three kids playing together, one of them is going to go crying to you and feeling (laughs) left out. But when it's two people playing together, it's quiet. They get along. And the same applies to comedy writing. Two people writing together, perfect. Put another writer in the room, three people, somebody is going, why is that funny? I don't think, what is it, right? Right? It's and it's like a marriage. You you know well, you, you can only have two right. people in a marriage. You can't have three people in a well, marriage. Well, I think you're a thousand percent right because if there are three people or more, like a writer's room or something, you look around and you, you know eye rolling and you know all sorts of hand gestures, right? And, and whatever. But when it's two people, it's a dialogue. And there's a synergy there, as you know, that um, you have the same sensibility, but enough difference where the alchemy is such that one and one equals three. Right. That you create something that neither of you could have done alone, you know. Right. And it's, it's really fun. And there's a built-in editing process. And um, it's, it's, you know, I write uh, books with Dave Barry, you know, uh, Martin Short, uh, who I know that you've written for. These people who have... Um, who are good writers. It's so much fun doing it. It's a it's an afternoon with a, with another guy. Right. Let's have fun, you know? Yeah. But enough about the ramble. <laughs> I was gonna I was you know what that woman and that horrible but she but I, I wanted to tweet, you know, not only is she a horrible human being, but now she's erased all my fond memories of the ramble. But now, <laughs> when I was growing up, it was the Bramble. Like I, nobody have they decided whether or not it's the Rambler or the Bramble. I, I think they lost the B. I figured, especially with this uh, COVID nineteen, we all look at our mortality. We only have X amount of time on the earth, and we go, okay, let's start getting rid of some constants. <laughs> 
For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, there was this horrible racist woman who got caught on tape calling the police on an African-American bird watcher. And, uh, you know, I, I said to my sister, Twitter is a force of evil. You know, it gave us Trump. But if, I, you know, if you said to me, you're going to get, there's this thing called Twitter. It's going to give you Donald Trump, but it's also going to destroy this Cooper woman's life. Is it worth it? And I said, yeah, I, yeah. If I, if I, yeah, give me Trump if that woman goes down. Yes. No, no, no. There's a there's a trade off there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> One yeah. hand washes the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, the I do it as the bramble, which is you. Everybody who lives in New York would accidentally walk into the ramble and go, boy, only in New York, an Indian chief. Uh, I had no idea that an Indian chief and uh, a uh, uh, California Highway Patrol officer would be talking to one another. Yeah, there you go. It's the the combo platter. Yeah. Uh So Saturday Night Live, Lauren Michaels hires you, and you're excited because is it your first writing job? It's my first writing job, you know, other than those comics up in the Catskills, yeah. So you were thrilled. You were thrilled. I was to this very day, you know, that started 1975. So what's this, 45 years later, and there have been a lot of fun things. Uh, to this day, walking into the uh, RCA, what was then called the RCA building, my first day as a comedy writer, a TV comedy writer, biggest thrill in the world. It was great. And when I went up to the 17th floor where the offices were, and um, we had our first meeting, and that's when I met everybody. The smell of an office, coffee, copying machines, people who are, you know, sh- coming to, to play. They, they, they've bathed, uh, as opposed to how we work during the pandemic, which is, you know, yeah, oh, un- I, could, I could turn the underwear inside out. It's good for another week. Are you yeah, funnier? No. <laughs> you know, I can save a lot of toothpaste. <laughs> you know, because I don't know when these next checks are coming in. So, uh, honey, you know, I can floss, use this maybe. Yeah, this week I'll use this strand of, of floss. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, you do get dressed up and it's, but at that age, you know what it is? It's like, um, you're playing. You're dressed as kids. You have sneakers. You have jeans on. You have flannel shirts. And, um, yeah, and you're right. There's carpeting. Uh, there's phones. There's, remember, um, what was it called? Um, before Xerox, mimeograph. Remember with the, with the blue ink and things. I'll, I'll pretend so I don't. Like know. We all went to our father's office and, then, and we were working there. Right. And things are getting done. You, you know, you, I, you walk into an office. And things are getting done. Before you came on, we were talking about this guy Graber who has this book called Bullshit Jobs, that all all jobs basically are bullshit. And nobody knows that better than a comedy writer, that most <laughs> jobs are. I mean, I can't tell you the number of shows I've worked on where, uh, you know, I'm going, Did I, are they going to pay me? Have they, have they read? Have they read what I've been handing in and. But most jobs are bullshit. But we're of the same generation where a man goes to an office, right? That's that, absolutely right. You know, and, and you mm-hmm. talk about Dick Van Dyke and and the Dick Van Dyke show and 
you know, uh, Rob Petrie. That you watch that show and you go, oh, I get it. You can have that life where you can go off and be a comedy writer and come home to Mary Tyler Moore and Richie and have it like your parents' suburban life and be have the dignity of you know a briefcase and an office that you're going to. And every I'm being honest with you, every job I've ever had where I had a briefcase. I, I walk into, you know, I'm walking to into an office. I'm a responsible adult, and I feel good about myself until I get inside and have to do the work. And do the work, I, and then I feel like a fraud and just miserable. And uh, I, you know, but that's me. Not I understand. You. No, no, no. I mean, I get it. I mean, look, you, you, all of a sudden, you're a kid. But you're in a grown-up world, and yeah. you got to understand the RCA building, you know, Thirty Rock. Um, there are offices there. There are people in suits. There are people in ties. There are people with attaché cases. And here we are, these hooligans. They've never right? seen anything like that before. They've never seen it, and we've never seen it. So it was like aliens, okay? Right. And they were like grown-ups. Oh, okay, they're grown-ups. We're here at a playground. We're here in a frat house. And, you know, and they are proper. And um, there was something about it. And if you remember the beginning of SNL, I think one of the first logos for the show was spray paint of Saturday Night Live on the marble walls mm-hmm. of 30 Rock. And that said it all. Here you had this big, big, glorious Art Deco uh, building. And these guys come along and they spray paint almost as if graffiti Saturday Night Live. Now, you take that as a symbol of us being in those offices of what we put on television. Television was a thing that grownups did. Right. Now, if you looked at TV comedy at that time, Mary Tyler Moore, which was the standard, okay, was the gold standard before us in terms of television variety. She wore a Bob Mackie gown. They all wore tuxedos. Steve, Steve Lawrence when they when they came on, right, right, and and I'm on now. Are you on screen? I'm on screen right now. This what? is good. This is see, this is this comedy. Is this Robin, is you real. want to tell them what's wrong with the hi hi. This is this is real. She wants me to face the window so you would see me better. Okay, oh, well that's that's she's right. Don't you can't argue. You can't. So now, are we looking at your home in Jersey? This is Jersey. This is the kitchen. And if I had turned it around more, we've got this glorious view of of the Statue of Liberty. And then you go this way is the New York skyline. You're living in Ellis Island. Who are you kidding? George Washington Bridge. You're, that's fantastic. So your book. Yes, sir. What is the name of your book? The book is Laugh Lines. My life helping funny people be funnier. Okay, and you're promoting it during during a pandemic. During a pandemic, what is it yeah, like? My friend Billy Crystal wrote the forward, and um, it's basically a journey through uh, well, my history of comedy, my my dealings with comedy from let's say 1972 to 
to today. So it's the Borscht Belt through Curb Your Enthusiasm. I just shot a movie that I wrote with Billy Chris, that Billy uh, directed and he starred in with Tiffany Haddish. That's going to come out whenever movies are going to come out again. And so it's just like I've been really lucky to be a part of different, uh, oh, different, let's say, frontiers as they were about to, um, you know, come about. And, so and what, it, what is your discipline? You, you're, you're the winner of a Thurber Right. The Thurber Prize, yeah, that's what they give to the top, um, what they believe is the top comic novel of the year. So I'd written um, a novel a few years ago called The Other Showman, and that won the Thurber Prize, yeah. And you write. You write. There's, yeah. a great, there's a great story about Caesar's writers. For people, I, I, I have to explain that Sid Caesar, it's amazing that people don't know this, but this is just a function of getting older, Sid Caesar's <laughs> writing room was the gold standard of writers. Woody Allen, Mel Brooks, Mel Tolkien, Shelley Keller, Larry Gelbart, Neil Simon, his brother. I'm leaving out uh, Carl Reiner. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Gary Mel Brooks, Belkin. there was Lucille Callan. Yeah, there was a ton of people. Gary Belkin. And Gary Belkin, I knew, and he said to me, you know, they all moved to Los Angeles. We all moved to Los Angeles, and we'd go to Nate and Al's and sit and and brood about the business. And somebody would always say, yeah, Neil Simon isn't here. Neil isn't here. He's writing. <laughs> He's writing. And I, I never forgot that story, that, you know, the group of writers would go and complain that they there was no action. But Neil Simon was, and Woody Allen, they were bit off writing. You have never stopped writing you write what is your discipline i wake up at 5 30 every morning and uh, i start writing i um i go as long as i can sometimes it takes me to noon if i'm really on a roll because if i'm working on a script and i know what i'm doing i, I do it until i run out of air but okay? you but you do you you wake up and you say i'm gonna write from 5 30 till i run out of steam and it doesn't matter what I write, but I'm going to write something. Well, yeah, you know, if I have a um, if I have a specific task, like I'm working on a movie right now that I'm writing with uh, Barry Levinson, I know the scenes that I have to write before I send them the pages. So I have an assignment, okay. But let's say I wake up and I go, oh, God, I'm shooting blanks with this. I still feel that, okay, uh, let me put this aside and let me work on, uh, oh, this idea for a uh, – Oh, a magazine piece for the New Yorker. So it's like going to the gym every day, but it's different muscles. When did you come up with this? When did you decide to be this disciplined? When I left doing a regular TV show, because when you do a TV show, when you do a Gary Shandling show, you do Curb, you do anything that we've both done, the hours are set for you. You've got to be on the set. You've got to have a script. There's a read-through. The wardrobe has to, the sets have to be built. So there's a discipline. There's a schedule that you have to meet. If you're by yourself, we know that the most creative thing we all do is, you know, any the most creative thing a writer does is come up with reasons not to write. <laughs> so, and yeah, it's like, a lot of fun. Yeah. You come up with, wow, these great excuses. Oh, I'm going to go work in television. That's a good excuse not to write. 
Yeah, that's a great excuse. And then sometimes I'll watch Anderson Cooper live, and then three hours later, <laughs> repeat it. You know what I mean? You know, so I'll go, wait a second. I know that I'm doing okay. Maybe sure. tomorrow I'll write, but at least show up, you know? Right, and, right. Um, so you show up heard, every day. You have to, I, I show up every day. Whether I'm productive or not is a different thing. That's in the hands of a different God, wherever the muses are that day, uh, whatever the focus is or is. Do you have a writing space? Yeah, I have an office in this very place, and um, I, uh, I have my spot. I have what I look at, and the TV is over there, right in front of me, and I usually have white noise. It's a... Uh, uh, Law and Order SVU, because I've seen all the episodes already. Seriously? So I, oh, God, yeah. Really? God, yeah. You have, you have, but, I'm sorry, David. You have, you have the TV playing while you're trying to write? Yeah, but I keep the, the, the sound is pretty much muted, but just a little bit of volume, just so it seems like the, that I'm not in the cave that there's other human beings in the world. So just like ambiance, background stuff. That's Some people play music, you know. That's interesting. So writing for other people, you're at the mercy of their taste. But writing your own novel has to be, I would think, the most satisfying, right? Well, yeah, because writing your own novel or writing your own play, something that's a personal vision, uh, it sometimes doesn't lead to a warrant collaboration because there's something internal about it. You're getting in touch with something that's so internal that you access it and write it from there. Mm-hmm. And it's different than, okay, let's figure out, oh, Gary moves into his apartment this week. Let's do that together, you know? Right. So it's, it's, so it depends on what the, sometimes the idea tells you what it wants to be and how it wants to come into life. You know, there are books that I've written alone, but now I've been, uh, the last few books, I, um, this book obviously I wrote alone because it's my story, but I've written a few books with Dave Barry where we alternated chapters. Right. There's, you know, so, um, you know, it depends on what the, uh, and I always try to do something collaborative because it gets you away from just being by yourself. Right. You're going to blow your brains out, you know, right. it's like at least something's going to come in the email. Oh, his chapter so I can read it and react to it. And, you know, that game of ping pong back and forth. It's like a dialogue. Happiest day as a writer that you thought it was just going to last forever. It's never going to wear off. This is I'm going to be happy forever because of this moment. I'm not talking about the birth of your kids or your marriage. I'm talking about as a in, in show business. What was your happiest day where you thought, well, that's it. I mean, it's an, after this, I will I will always be happy. Uh, when we won the Emmys for the first time at SNL. Nine months earlier, not only did I not have a job in television ever, and forget about writing for those comics up in the Catskills, I was slicing meat in a delicatessen, okay, to supplement this great living. I was making $7 a joke for up in the, in the Borscht Is Belt. Is that job still available? Yeah. You know something? I have the number. Um, yeah, I could use yeah. For a friend. We'll talk. <laughs> now I, I want, so, okay, so you win the Emmy. Yeah, and so I said, wow, Lauren had created a playground for us, which was removed from what was 
the uh, assembly line of the normal situation comedies and television that was in Hollywood. We had our own space. We had our own landscape where we were able to write anything we want. And the only rule we had that he gave us was let's make let's make each other laugh. And if we do that, we'll put it on television. He assured us that there was an audience out there that wasn't being spoken to comedically. The baby boomers who would then tell their friends about. So we did this. And I went from slicing head cheese in a goy deli. (laughs) You can bleep that if you need. (laughs) Head cheese. I'm going to bleep head cheese. Head cheese. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In a German deli on Hillside Avenue in Queens, nine months later, I'm up there getting an Emmy Award because I was writing stuff that made these other people laugh. And there was a validation to it. And there was a sense of, okay, I get it. This is all we have to do. And they give you a trophy and you get to do it again and again and again. Now, mind you, I was 26. I hadn't done anything before, but I thought this would last forever. I thought that this high would... um, yeah, I get it. This is what you do. This is the secret. All right, let me just uh, stay the course. I'm blessed. So, I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm in the pantheon. Yeah. Nothing can go wrong. Every door is going to be open to me. Everybody's happy that I won the Emmy. They can't wait to meet me because, uh, and yeah. how long did it last? It lasted a couple of weeks. Really? <laughs> no, it lasted for a few years. What? Really? I, I would years. think. I would think it would wear off by the time you walked off the stage. Well, you want to know something? It did have half-lives, okay? It did have half-lives because when that night is over, okay, and you're still in your tuxedo and you go back to the hotel and you're the bell of the ball at the governor's uh, party or whatever it is, and then we're on a plane back to New York and we had two more shows to do, Um. Oh God! I got to go back to writing again. Yeah, you you've got to show up. You've got to. So yeah, you, there was an afterglow to it, but at the same time, you go back into the trenches. So it is a brief. It is it is a brief moment, right? And you savor it. No, but you, you don't walk on that air for uh, for a very long time. Would Saturday Night Live have been as funny if it were done in Los Angeles? Obviously not, right? You can't get that kind. It just you couldn't have that energy if it were taped in Los Angeles. I think that you know, I think at the time, especially this was the mid seventies. Baby boomers were out of college. New York became very uh, provincial. It was Studio Fifty Four. This was pre AIDS. There was a, you know Plato's Retreat. There was a, a that's hippie. where I know you from. Yeah, you, I, I, I knew I, I, I. I'm sorry I teased you this whole talk. Yeah. <laughs> you, you used to be much nicer. Go ahead. Go ahead. And um, there was something about the rawness of it. There was something about the, uh, you know, the Yankees were winning. There was Reggie Jackson. There was the city was on the brink of default. There was something 
a little bit gritty about it. Now, I'm not saying that it could have could not have been as successful if it was done in L.A., but it sure felt like we should be here in New York. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a pandemic. The economy has been shut down, and it is conceivable that New York may not come back in our lifetime. And by that, I mean in the next two weeks. Yeah, <laughs> just we're old yeah. is what I'm yeah. saying. Uh, we're come back by yeah, June 15th. Yeah. Uh, when they say New York isn't coming back, that Zoom is going to replace the RCA building or the GE building or whatever they're calling whatever it. Whatever it's called, uh, Comcast or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think, well, that's the New York I remember. Cockroaches, angry rats, people as squatters. I mean, you, you know, you get rid of all the real estate moguls, the Jared Kushners and the Trumps of the world. Sure. And, and New York returns to that Hobbesian nightmare. That's where the energy is. Don't you think New York as, as, isn't New York dead before the, the pandemic? Moment. What, isn't it been dead for the past 20 well, years? Well, okay. I knew you were upset that Giuliani had cleaned up Times Square. I know that always bothered yes, you. Yes, it did. It did. <laughs> my sister, um, my sister, no longer could find work. <laughs> yeah, I think we all have a few more dependents than we wanted. Yeah. The um, I think. You know, look, it did make a change. It did become um, a little bit more even corporate than it was. Uh, there, there was, you know, I remember um, NBC when we were there, it was a mom and pop store. Now, I'm going back 45 years, so I'm showing my age, okay? But I think that things are so uh, fragmented and uh, compartmentalized that um, you don't have. Look, by virtue of the fact, David, that you can do your job by staying in your kitchen on your laptop and not having to go across this river over here, all right, to go to a building where a bunch of people are together creating something, doing whatever it is they do. It doesn't have to be comedy. doesn't have to. It could be insurance, okay? The fact that you can do it by yourself and don't need another human being around you or to collaborate with, maybe just to check in with or to get an assignment from, yeah, but that's true for the whole world, isn't it? I mean, isn't it true for everywhere? I, I have a, um, I have relatives, younger relatives, nieces and nephews who work at NBC. They haven't seen NBC in six months. They've been home and they report to work every day. Right. Now, if there's the only way we can do this with relationships, personal, like, kid, like you know, zooming with your your wife, your loved ones, yeah. your kids, be more efficient, <laughs> wouldn't it? Well. You know, the absence makes the heart grow fonder thing would really kick in. <laughs> you know, it's just little glimpses here and there. And you can, yeah, you can access the other person when you want. And the other time you go, I'll take that other call. <laughs> yeah, before you go, it must sure. drive you crazy that, you know, you come up with ideas for SNL sketches now. You know, I'm best friends with Robert Smigel, so I play this game where I call him. And I'll say, this must have been done, because he was there for 30 years. And, you know, he has seen every episode, you know. And so I run ideas past him. So I had an idea like a, an Amish version of Zoom. 
So it's in the bar. Right. And you, you know, you're asking the people to sit in like that. <laughs> That's funny. And I go, has that been done? He goes, yeah, sort of. You know, to, but does it drive you nuts? Uh, you wake up and you come up with a great idea for a sketch, and it can only work on SNL. Uh, you know something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, so at this point, you know, I don't want to call Lorne and pitch an idea, you know, but uh, I watched the show. I love the show. Um, we were actually at the last show that they did live. Daniel Craig was the host. And uh, then they shut down and they started doing. Wait a second. um, Are you friendly with Daniel? Because you were both up for James Bond. I thought there was a little jealousy. uh, You want to know something? We're in the process of burying the hatchet. You know, we were. It's not back completely, but if there's a circle, (laughs) we're almost there. <laughs> so and, you still um, love show business, right? I mean, you go to I, I, I love it. Yeah, it's been good to me, and um, uh, yeah, I, I, I do. I love writing, and the show business part of it, I think, is the thing we have to deal with. What are the rules now? If I'm going to write, okay, and if I'm going to want to see this published or staged or filmed. All right, what do I do? What? How do you do it now as opposed to five years ago, ten years ago? Are you able so, to watch TV or do you watch the new young shows and the new young comics? And and do you enjoy David, watching? David, two years ago, um, I was nominated uh, for an Emmy that... Uh, uh, for, for I executive produced a, a documentary about Gilda Radner called Love Gilda. Right. And it was nominated for an Emmy. My wife, Robin, and I were executive producers on it. Went out to L.A., and now I'm sitting in the Emmy Awards. And people are going up, receiving awards. I don't never heard who they are. They got it for shows I never heard of. Mm-hmm. Shows that were now in their sixth season, and they were on networks I never heard of. So we're sitting there writing down the names. Oh, we should, it sounds good. We should watch that. We should watch that. <laughs> so if you're asking if there's a disconnect, yeah, but, you know, there are agents, there are managers, and there are people who will go, oh, this is good for the, uh, you know, the... Um, the porcelain network. Okay, fine. Try to sell the porcelain <laughs> network. <laughs> you know, do what you have to do with it. You know? Right. So that's what I've been doing. So last question. I could keep going, but this is my sure. last question. You are a, a, a my. Is it? It's called a Jew. You're you. What they call a Jew. You can call me that. I'll answer to that. Um, not with the pride that a lot of my brethren do, but yeah, I okay. won't deny it. <laughs> I, I'm gonna to put it nicely. You're a Jew, so uh, you you have done uh, you've written about the Jewish experience, mm-hmm. and and the Jews think they're funny, but other cultures also think they're funny. Early television, and, and maybe I'm wrong. Early television in the '50s was written primarily by Jews. Is that Correct. I would think so. When you come to your show of shows, all those writers you named, and if you go Jack Benny, 
Goldman and, you know, all those kinds of uh, names. I would think primarily you're right, the Burns and Allen writers. Yeah. And so now it's opening up and it's other ethnicities, other people who have chips on their shoulders, other people who feel (laughs) alienated and downtrodden are getting a shot at this. And is it different or is comedy universal? Is it still the same angst and anger and depression and worrying that goes on? It doesn't really matter what the ethnicity is. I think, look, I think anybody who's funny is a dented can, okay? It doesn't matter what color the dented can is, what ethnicity, what sex, or whatever. I think that the ingredient that makes us look at the world a little bit off-center, a little bit askew, I think that that is universal and it goes across all ethnicities, all everything. So, do I think that we, the Jews, have cornered the market on it? No way. There are a lot of people, like you said, who uh, don't feel so great about stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Have you ever seen anybody who's funny who isn't a dented can? Can you be funny and not be a dented can? I think it, it, you know, I've seen people with smaller dents than other people. (laughs) I've seen some people with a dent with, was actually a punctured can (laughs) to the other side. But it's, this is not an intact can. Right, (laughs) right. Doesn't everybody have a dented can? I think so. We had a mother, we had a father, and uh, it was okay to so start there. And right. now it depends on how you dealt with it and uh, where you, you know, if you can uh, handle it or not. Right. I know some altar boys who have some dented cans. And, oh, yeah. Well, that's and, all. and they're not funny. But I'll tell you who is funny, and that is Alan Zweibel. I hope you come back. I, you know, I don't know how long it's been since we saw each other. and uh, We saw each other somewhere here in New York. It was, I want to say... Oh, for Stephanie Miller. What is that? It was for the Stephanie Miller. Yeah, and they called me on stage because Louis Black was stuck in traffic. That's right. The old Louis Black is stuck in traffic excuse. I wish I had a nickel for every time (laughs) I heard Louis Black is stuck in traffic. Can you fill in for him? (laughs) I wish I... How's your dad, if you don't mind my asking? He's okay. Thank you very much. He's all right. He's 94 and um, uh, took a little spill, but um, he's okay. Thank you. Well, can you do my show next week? He's here now. You want me to? (laughs) (laughs) The book is Laugh Lines. Buy it wherever great comedy books are sold. Thank you so much, Alan. Can you stay on the line? This was a pleasure. Ask me back, and I'll be happy to do this again. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Stay on the line for one second. Before we go, Dan, who's to blame for everything, you've been going through our archives. Yes, so I wanted to bring to uh, our attention, my fellow listeners, uh, a podcast on DavidFeldmanShow.com from February 8th, 2013. It's titled Beyonce's Legs, 
Oh, I don't think we want to talk about that. I know. I hated that. Oh, I'm not going to let you play that. Is that my? Did I do a monologue about Beyonce at the Super Bowl? I'm not sure if it was the Super Bowl, but uh, a subtopic was Jennifer Aniston's booty as well. But what I wanted to talk about was your your rant about never throw out your underwear. Yeah, you know what? I I remember doing that. And is it just me talking? I do believe so. Ooh, I, I I think that would be uncomfortable. If it was like me and Jimmy Dore fighting, and that would be funny. But uh, just me rambling. And I do remember seeing Beyonce at the Super Bowl and not understanding what was going on and trying to figure, just rambling on and on about her legs, right? Her powerful legs. Yeah, you did go on quite quite a while about that. As a matter of fact, when I remembered what I wanted to bring up, which was never throw out your underwear, I, there was a lot of sifting to get to that three-minute part. Well, why don't you send it to me? I mean, here's the thing. I'm splayed wide open. If people want to go through the archives, they can find stuff. There's a lot of stuff there. But I, I think I, I think it, most of it would be cringeworthy, at least the, what, what I'm talking. But what, just tell me, what was I saying about not throwing out your underwear? Well, yeah, let me just do that part. Don't, 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 don't play it. Don't just, just tell no, me. No, 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 no. Nope, it's, it's, it's verbal. So the idea was that women complain about your underwear and buy you new underwear. And if there isn't a woman to complain about your terrible underwear, then you have more important things to worry about. And you will become a full man when she comes in and hands you a pair of Calvin Klein's. And your goal is to be standing in front of a woman and have her complain about your ratty underwear. I, I, there's a logic to this. I just don't understand it. Well, it's, it's from you. And the idea is that your underwear, you should not be worrying about them until someone tells you you should be worrying about them. If you're worrying about that, you're not worrying about something else more important. Oh, so so men who buy underwear, men should never have to buy underwear. Correct. That's my that was my theory. No man should ever have to buy underwear because nobody's going to see it except you. And then when somebody else is seeing your underwear, they go, oh, my God. And then they go and buy you underwear. In, in addition to that, part of that process is you should never throw them out. Because your, your partner should be throwing them out because they're sick of looking at them. Oh right, right. I don't think I've ever thrown it. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's why that's why it struck me. I was like, well, Jesus Christ! I don't think I've ever thrown away or it's like my mom and then girlfriends. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> underwear just shows up in the drawer. It just does. I, I, I yeah. don't buy underwear. I. Uh, just it's the, it's the seven. It's the seven dollar Christmas present. That's two or three gifts is your socks and your underwear. If yeah. you want eight or nine gifts under the tree for the old man, two or three of them is socks and underwear and undershirts. Yeah, I just noticed. I'd open up the drawer and there'd be underwear. Oh, are these mine? Well, I guess they I, are. I guess I put these. I, I, I guess I put that on. And thanks, dear. Yeah, I guess so. I guess somebody bought the underwear fairy came and deposited new <laughs> underwear. Yeah, I'm in love. Yeah, I guess that. Yeah, I guess I, I said that. Today was interesting. 
I was, re- you know what? I was really looking forward to today. It re- this reminds me of stand-up comedy. I was really looking forward to today. I thought I had it figured out. This is why it reminds me of stand-up comedy, because I thought I got it down. I got it down. This is going to run like, like a finely tuned watch, and it just went completely off the rails. That always happens with stand-up. You know, you think you you have an agenda, and you're going to tell the audience what the agenda is, and then the audience says, "No, we we have we want something else." And I think uh, the podcast gods today decided this was going to go a little differently, but. Uh, I may have jinxed you because last night on Reddit I posted a link of one of your old stand-up shows. I'm not sure if you saw it this morning, but where you got uh, flustered a little bit because there was oh, two yeah. women kissing in the front row. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, "Whoa, that's a cool one." Yeah, I, I don't. It's it. Yeah, yeah. I can't. Anyway, all right, uh, Dean. Dean, are you pissed off at us, or did you, write, Dean? Yeah, am I? I'm on now, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I just meant to, I, I should have used that opportunity to pay homage to the great Fred Willard. And, yes. And say, uh, you know, Wahaba! <laughs> <laughs> Which is something we say in the airplane quite often. What happened? Is that, hang on for is that from Waiting for, for Guffman? No, it's from, uh, I think it was, uh, uh, a mighty wind. A mighty wind, mighty right. Wind. That was his catchphrase. But, you yeah, know, the greatest yeah, yeah. line, the greatest line that he ever gave, I think, was from Roxanne, where he delivers a toast. Do you remember this? I need to see. I, I saw it, but it's been a long time. I, he says, uh, I'd rather be with you people than the greatest people in the world. Such a great toast. Isn't that? Yes. I'd rather be. And I worked for the guy who wrote Roxanne and starred in it. And I said to him, that is the great. I said, who came up with that? Did you come up with that? And he said, no, a friend of his once said it. And that's where, that's where it came from. It's such a great line. I'd rather be with you than the greatest people on earth. One of Fred Willard's great, great moments. Thank you. I can yeah. hear the planes in the back. I didn't give your last name. So oh, we can hear oh, the planes. I'm at home. I'm actually at home, but the airport's not far away. Ah, okay. Thank you, sir. They tend to fly over. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. We're going to, I think we're going to say good night. There is office hours later tonight at 9 Eastern. Come by. It's very valuable. And we're not going to have guests. We're just going to have the listeners. Right, Dan? I think that's what works the best. Just talking yeah, to it, was, it was it was very fun last week, and I'm not I'm not even sure if I would say better or worse. It's just something different, and you know, get something new. It's it's fun either way. It's good. Yeah, yeah. And uh, hang on for one second. This was a hit. Hang on. Hang on. And that is bullshit. I was going to send you an email because I sent you a few versions of uh, Oh No You Dent. And, and, and then Alan was talking about how uh, people in comedy are dented cans. One of them I tried to make you sound like a god. So, yeah, yeah with the thunderbolt and everything. And that is bullshit. What, what I love about bullshit. that is you made that, and I thought, I can't play that in front of the reverend. 
and he laughs every time I do it. Well, let's let's thank everybody. Suzanne Paolo Antonetta, thank you for doing this. Professor Stefan Lewandowski, journalist Brittany Gibson, journalist Joe Williams, screenwriter Dave Cyrus, Animal Behaviors, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, journalist Elizabeth Spires, comedian Lauren Laura House, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, Ben Burgess, and Alan Zweibel, and all the listeners who participated. Thank you so much. Remember, office hours tonight at 9 o'clock. If you'd like an invitation, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, and I will send you an invite. Thank you. <laughs>